Hello again, friends, and welcome back to another edition of the 605 Super Podcast, this being a special edition, as the Mothership and the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network remember Scott Bowden, who tragically passed away this past week at the age of 48. Of course, Scott was a regular for such a long time on the 605 Super Podcast. He was a standout on our Star Wars episodes. And of course, the host of Kentucky Fried Wrestling right here on the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. We are saddened and shocked, like everyone else is, to hear that Scott passed away. And we want to take a few minutes, or in this case, a few hours, and look back on some great moments with Scott Bowden. And I would encourage everyone to go to YouTube and watch some videos of Scott Bowden as a manager in Memphis. Of course, he was there during a period where Memphis wasn't at its height, so... I feel in a lot of ways his work is underrated because it didn't have a lot of eyes on it, but he was an incredible manager, a heat machine, and a lot of fun to watch him interact with Lance Russell and, of course, Dave Brown, maybe his arch nemesis, when it comes to Memphis wrestling. But go there, watch some videos of him as a manager. Go and look up some of his articles that he's written about Memphis wrestling. He was a truly talented and gifted writer, maybe the best actual writer to tackle wrestling history. If you go read some of his stuff, he gets the spirit and the energy of Memphis wrestling in his articles. I always encouraged him to write a book. I thought the one thing Memphis wrestling was really missing was a well-written book about its history, especially during the Jerry Lawler years, and I thought he was the guy to do it, and I think it's something that he may have planned to tackle at some point. And I would also encourage you to go to kfrpod.com. Every episode of Kentucky Fried Wrestling that we did on the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network is there. It's available. It's free. That's not going anywhere. That will be an online resource for the future for anyone who wants to check out Scott Bowden's work, anyone who wants to learn about Memphis wrestling, and in some cases, anyone who wants to have a few laughs learning about Memphis wrestling. So there's three great resources, YouTube, and watch footage of him as a manager of Memphis. Look for some of his articles online. They're all available. And of course, KFR Pod to go through the podcast archive of all the stuff that we did. And on the next 605 Super Podcast, I'm actually going to have about an hour of outtakes, so you can hear just how much fun we had recording KFR. He was someone who I had as much fun recording with as anyone else, because it would always devolve into the ridiculous, and I had such a good time recording with him. But we're going to look back on Scott Bowden today. We're going to start with the very first appearance he made on the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network as a guest on Austin Idol Live. We're going to hear this entire episode from Austin Idol Live. Let's go to this right now. Ten, nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one, fire. Faster than a speeding bullet. More powerful than a locomotive. Able to leap tall buildings at a single bound. Look, up in the sky, it's a bird. It's a plane. It's to Boston and New York to Spain. Here she comes again. It's the Austin Idol Live Love Train. Look at all the beautiful people 
They're grabbing their favorite seat and never really knowing who they just might meet. We're making big news in today's podcast world, even bigger than the dumbbells I just curled. Now, it's time to bring on the Love Train's heavyweight executive producer. He's my pile-driving, body-slamming, drop-kicking co-host. He's the madman behind the 605 Super Podcast. Some call him Hawaiian Brian, but I call him a podcast lion. He is the great Brian, as in the great Brian last Brian. Let's get this love train rolling, darling. Aloha, Austin. A pleasure to be here once again on the Austin Idol Live love train. Have we established if this is high-speed rail or not? You're Meshuggana. <laughs> Ever since that Gefilte you, fish story. You are Meshuggana, my friend. You are Meshuggana. <laughs> Ever since that Gefilte fish story, you've introduced more Yiddish into the show, I've noticed, each week. From here on out, I am Rabbi Idol. Steen. Steen. I, I, Rabbi Idol Steen. <laughs> well, Mr. Idol Steen, we have a great guest this week on the show. And that is Scott Bowden, someone who has a long history with Memphis wrestling as a fan and, of course, as a manager. He was a great heel manager in the 1990s, and I'm very happy to welcome him here to the show right now. Wow, great. Great to have you on the show, Scott. Man, it is a huge honor for me uh, as a kid who, you know, sat mesmerized in front of my parents' television set in Memphis, Tennessee, glued to Channel 5 from starting in the summer of 77, to that bizarre series of uh, hair matches and Cadillac matches between Jerry Lawler and Bill Dundee, uh, all the way through to uh, the incredible feud with you and into the 90s. Uh, I was there the night. Probably has to be the top five wrestling angles, I'd say, of all time. Uh, the infamous night that you saved the royal locks of the King of Memphis and uh, his, his, the, the peasants in the audience his servants were clearly <laughs> climbing the cage to get in there to a sit And I was not, you know, people have, you know, I've often said that uh, uh, the drunken ringside regulars were climbing the cage to help the king. I, I was not one of them. <laughs> <laughs> were you a drunken irregular? <laughs> no. Yeah, well, we're going to talk about high fiber later. Okay. 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 Sounds good. Well, listen, before we get going, <laughs> And, and there's so many things to talk about. I did have one story I'd like you to tell here on the show, Scott. You recently told me you only had anything to do with Austin Idol one time. You were only in the ring or ever did any sort of angle or anything, and it wasn't really an angle. One time. Can you tell us the story? And I'm not sure if Austin knows that story. Yeah, yeah, you know, I, uh, I you know, first of all, I, you know, I was a huge Austin Idol fan, and uh, and all my friends, you know, all the, when all this backyard wrestling started happening in the in the '90s, and guys were you know leaping off roofs and trying to do moonsaults and that kind of stuff, and busting coke bottles over their heads and all that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, my friends and I, we we did the same kind of stuff, but we didn't. We never wanted to actually like do a lot of the moves. It was all like who could cut the best promos. And so, you know, we, you know, because there's so many great guys who came through Memphis who, you know, were just gold uh, on the mic, you know, uh, the King, Jimmy Valiant, 
Idol, Dundee, you know, uh, just just so many guys, uh, Handsome Jimmy Valiant, uh, just, just, you know, Joe LaDuke in his own crazy, you know, weird, bizarre way. And, you know, and guys, you know, who were huge, tall, short, everywhere in between, uh, just so many charismatic guys. And so that's what we did, you know, that was always like who could cut the best promo. And so uh, it was a huge thrill for me. I, I, I had refereed for a few months in 1991. I was a sophomore at Memphis State University. And, uh, and I got replaced suddenly one morning by, uh, by one of Jerry Jarrett's relatives, Paul Neighbors. <laughs> and, and, of course, Jerry Lawler, like, you know, you know, the Teflon King, you know, oh, God, you know, I fought for you. I, you know, I, I'm really, really, really disgusted by this guy. You know, I don't, uh, but we'll bring you, we'll bring you back as soon as, as soon as, as soon as we can. And so, uh, and late 93, uh, I, I was able to come back and start refereeing. And then in 94, Randy Hales organized the very first Memphis memory show. And so, you know, at that point, I, you know, I've gotten to work with Lawler and Dundee and Valiant, all these guys all, who I'd grown up with. And so I, I, I'd sort of gotten used to being around those guys. But there were two legends uh, on my list who I, who I had not yet worked with, and that was Austin and Terry Funk. And on that show, there was a six-man tag. And, I, you know, I was, man, I was so thrilled that, that I got the call uh, over Frank Morrell, who at that point, <laughs> you know, God bless Frank. Uh, if, there was any, if there was any kind of finish involving a bump or any kind of complicated finish, Frank was on the sideline. So I was, <laughs> I, and, and, the way, and the way Memphis was booked, uh, that meant I refereed probably, you know, five of the matches and Frank had three. Uh, but anyway, I, yeah, so I got the six man tag and, you know, and, and I was, I, I was old school, you know, uh, WWS, I think had gotten away from, from the referee inspections and, and even on Saturday morning, they had told me, you know, don't do, don't check the boots and the tie. You know, just, just get on with it because, you know, we're on TV and, uh, but this was the Coliseum and I was in there, you know, with, with, with you know, some legends. I was like, you know, I'm going to do this the right way. So, you know, I, I check Eddie Gilbert's boots and Doug Gilbert's and they're maybe giving me a little bit of a hard time. And then I go over there to inspect Terry Funk. Eddie Gilbert had, had tipped Terry off that, that I had, you know, grown up a huge fan of his. And so Terry's like, you know, he's like, what are you doing? You know, yeah, get the hell away from me trying to check my, you know, and, and rearing back like he's going to knock my lights out and jerking me around. And, and this goes on for, for, you know, for a few minutes. Meanwhile, you know, uh, Idol the King and Brian Christopher are just, are just over there standing, you know, just waiting for, for, the, for, the, for, the, for the bell to ring. And finally, you know, I get the inspection done. I go over there and I do Lawler real quick and Brian and I go to Austin and I'm checking his boots and I'm just, I'm, I'm nervous. Cause I feel like this has already been, been drawn out. And, uh, Austin looks down and he's like, Oh, Mr. Referee. And I'm like, yes, sir. Kind of like probably sounding <laughs> like that, that cashier on the, uh, on the Simpsons. And, uh, he's like, <clears throat> have we rung the bell yet? And I'm like, uh, no, sir. Well then, why don't we ring it? <laughs> and I'm like, no, sir. So I, 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 so I skipped the pre-match instructions. After that, I was going to go through the whole thing, you know, no punching, no air. Let's get this so thing started, right? Yeah, so I'm just like, ring the bell. Ring the bell, and then, uh, <laughs> Yeah, and then all hell breaks loose, and, uh, 
I ended up getting punched by Terry Funk. And later on that night, I got power driven by, by Tommy Rich. And uh, so I got abused by two former NWA World Heavyweight Champions of the same night. And, uh, you know, kind of kind of uh, got a tongue lashing from Austin Idol. So that was, that was a huge thrill. And because the crowd, you know, the crowds had been around the 2,000, 3,000 range, which is a little sad, you know. Uh, yeah. it's, uh, somebody who always went to the Monday night. Ma- Monday night matches as a kid and seeing these crowds, you know, between like seven and 11,000. It wasn't my week fault. It wasn't week. my fault. Hey, well, everything went downhill after you left. <laughs> well, there you go. There you go. I, yeah. But that I, night, but that night, you know, that magic was back. You know, there was, like, I think there was like about 7,000, between 7,000, 8,000 people there. And, oh, uh, you house. know, so yeah, it was, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was probably the last, uh, the last big house that, the, that they drew there. Uh, so yeah, it was, it was pretty, oh, and, and my, and my paycheck went from, uh, from 50 bucks to 70 bucks. Wow. <laughs> yeah. They, they made a mistake. It should have been 55. <laughs> so that, that trickled on down to me. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and I think, uh, which, uh, you know, and later on when I became a Hill manager, I was still making 50. Um, and, uh, and the one night that, and this is kind of a story in itself too, cause I, I, I vowed that I was never going to get color. Uh, and suddenly I found myself booked in a hospital elimination match and they said, there'll be a little something extra, for, you know, something extra for you. And, uh, and I think it was like, I think it was, I think it was like a 20, a 20 yeah. spot. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Red double, turns to green. That's a double sawbuck, right? <laughs> that's right. Double saw bike is a 20. Yeah, come on. I, uh, do you remember that show, the Monday Night Memories show in 1994? Do I remember it? Yeah. Uh, no recollection. Okay. <laughs> no, no, no recollection. What, what, how, how, many were, how many people were there, Scott, you say, on that one? No, it, it, seriously. Uh, I think, you know, the crowds, uh, it at least doubled. I think they were, you know, they were going around 3,000, maybe that were tops. And okay. I think I think it drew I think it drew about seven thousand people in the spring of of ninety four. Yeah, I don't you know but, I don't remember the actual event, but I do I do remember uh, uh, that encounter with you because it, it, it's just kind of a, one of those little weird little deals, right? So I remember that, but right. that's about all I remember. To tell you the truth, so okay, I mean, I don't know. okay, yeah, strange, huh? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And, and 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 here we are. And and at that point, I think at that point, I, I pretty much stopped the inspection of the boot. <laughs> yeah, you stopped doing the well. At least you weren't doing the bumper to bumper. Right. Yeah, that's another. All right. That's another. <laughs> Can I do that bumper to bumper on you, sir? Well, just why don't we just do the boots? Well, okay, but we do. We are running a special. <laughs> not on me you're not (laughs) when did you first see austin idol what were your first impressions of him oh gosh i I vividly remember uh austin idol ruined uh ruined my christmas (laughs) night in 1978 you yes. know, it wasn't too. Yes, it, it, yes. It, it, he was. He he was the Grinch of of, of Memphis wrestling that year. <laughs> you know, uh, he came flying. You know, rolling into Memphis. Uh, I don't know if it was TWA like Handsome Jimmy, but uh, anyway, nevertheless, uh, and and beat Robert Gibson, I believe, in his debut, and then beat Jackie Welch, and I guess that earned him a shot at the King's Crown. 
and I, you know, wasn't quite sure what to, what to, you know, if we could take this guy seriously, you know, he's a great promo and all that kind of stuff. But of course at the time I just thought, ah, this guy, you know, the King will take care of him and Christmas night, you know, we're opening gifts. And I remember, Oh, Jack Eaton, you know, uh, channel five sportscaster does the, uh, the wrestling results on Monday nights. And, and typically the main event would not be in, would not be done yet, but I guess they were probably like, let's get out of here. You know, it's Christmas. Yeah. Yeah. And then Jack Eaton, he was, he was like uh, main event. Uh, well, uh, I hate to break it to you. And you know, Jack, Jack Eaton, we got a deadpan, the results, you know, uh, the King has been dethroned on Christmas night. Jerry Lawler <laughs> and a huge upset has been defeated by Austin Idol for the Southern Heavyweight Championship. And man, I just remember my jaw hit the door and I was just like, I had my toys. I'm like, I'm going to bed. You know, I, <laughs> <laughs> I was absolutely disgusted. So thanks a lot for that. For, uh, I killed, I killed for, your Christmas, Scott, huh? Yeah. Well, and then the next week, I believe you nearly killed the king. Uh, you know, you, you, I, you know, and this, this, this was off, uh, played up later, I think over the years in several angles where you kicked him in the stomach. And, uh, you know, as far as I know, it wasn't like a stiff, you know, it wasn't like a Stan Hansen shot or anything like that. It was just a, a routine kick. And Lawler said, he, you know, he felt like a little something, but, but, you know, nothing out of the ordinary. And then he was actually, for some reason, he was flying somewhere. Uh, I guess, I guess the Mets was maybe in Nashville Saturday night. And then he was going to fly hey, Scott, somewhere. Uh, Scott, I think it was, I think it was Louisville, Louisville or okay. that he was at the airport and started bleeding. Right. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah, he, yeah. He passed out in, in the, uh, in the bathroom stall. So, you know, and fans had just gotten over Elvis dying on the toilet. And I don't know, what, you know, if the King was, uh, what, you know, what, what exactly he was doing in the, in the stall, but he, you know, exactly, he exactly. Of, Can I, yeah. I hate to be rude and interrupt, but I, that's a, that's a, you just threw the door open. We want to know what was he, what he was doing in that bathroom stall to pass out. <laughs> okay. Hey, I'm just throwing it out there. What was he doing? In the, does anybody in our listening audience feel free to just go ahead and chime in and Facebook us or do whatever you want to do? What was the king doing in the bathroom stall that made him pass out? Was it a kick to the stomach two days earlier? I don't. I, I don't know. Uh, you know that's <laughs> anyway. So the but the so the, the you know and there was that internal bleeding, and I guess he actually spent the night in the hospital and uh, and all that. So yeah, man, you you had all kinds of heat on you, and at least at least at least in the Bowden household, you know. Uh, my my. I'm sorry, Scott, but it's a funny thing to bring that up because I read about that in the newspaper. And I was, you know, that's why I think I was flying home on a Thursday morning, flying back to Florida. And uh, I think I read it in an, an Evansville an Evansville newspaper. Okay. Yeah. It, and, of course, it hit, you know, it, it was big news and uh, yeah. and the yeah. commercial appeal, which rarely – you know, covered uh, wrestling beyond the the the, the results. Uh, so this so this was like the the real deal. And I, and it and and I guess Jerry, I guess you were booked to wrestle Monday night in in Memphis. And uh, Ron Fuller had to 
had to uh, step in and, and take Lawler's place. And he was at, he was at ringside, but but I guess he wasn't cleared to wrestle. And so that set up the stretcher match uh, with you and uh, Mill Mascaras against uh, Lawler and Jackie Fargo. And that was the very first night that I'd been begging and pleading for over a year to go to the <laughs> matches. And, you know, I, I, and I, and I was a bit, you know, I was, uh, I was one of those guys that like, I wanted to know more, you know, I always wanted like more information. And so, you know, I started buying the wrestling magazines uh, at, at a very young age. I was like what I spent my allowance money on. And that was <laughs> sort of like the great, well, that was, you know, and that was sort of like one of these great things about wrestling, you know, because at the time, you know, we didn't, you know, there was a cable TV. So you would see these guys and they would appear like larger than life, but you didn't, you know, you, you didn't actually see them. And, and Bill after, I don't know, had this man crush, on Bill Maskers. And I guess he's, you know, because he looked like a superhero, sold a lot of magazines. And so he's flying all over the place and, uh, you know, looks like a combination of Spider-Man and, and, and Superman and just looks like the most graceful guy in the world, which was a huge letdown when you actually saw the guy oh. uh, get into the ring. But, uh, but yeah, uh, I, I, you know, it was a combination of, of hating your guts <laughs> And wanting to see you get carried out on the stretcher. And also, and, and, and again, probably the only territory in the country that would have brought Mill Mascaris in as a heel is, is Memphis. Um, you know, and then Lawler comes out and does one of those interviews. When you think about partners, you think about the people who have given you the toughest bout to your career. And the man who's given me the toughest is Jackie Fargo. And, uh, you know, Memphis always did a masterful job of treating Jackie as a legend. You know, he only came yeah. back about two or three times a year, and yep. man, it never failed to pop the house. Right. No, you're right. Yeah. Absolutely and, right. But that's that was an odd thing uh, with uh, bringing in Mill. Yeah, and and the fact that you know, and the way I re- the, you know the way I remember the finish. Um, uh, I don't remember much else about the card, but the main event and Mill was going for his his uh, flying body breath, so he tiptoed up to the <laughs> up to the top rope and came flying off. Uh, Lawler moved out of the way, and it was like you know Idol was selling or uh, Mascaris was selling the uh, a rib injury, and so Lawler and Fargo are just really putting the boots to his ribs, and uh, they they end up uh, they're hauling him off on, a, on man. He does a stretcher job, which is you know, again, people are like that. You know, for years, Jim Cornette has argued with me. He says, "No, that wasn't Mill Mascaris. That was Pepe Lopez under a <laughs> under a hood." There's no way that uh, Aaron Rodriguez would have uh, would have agreed to do that. But uh, and then as they're carrying him down to as they're carrying him on the stretcher, they're almost to the dressing room, and Jackie Fargo comes running down the aisle, turns over <laughs> turns over the stretcher, and keeps putting the boots to him. Uh, it you know it was just absolutely insane, and and people are like going, given his reputation for being such a pain in the ass, you know, there's 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 no way that that could have been the real Neil Mascaris. But I I had a chance to talk. I sat down with Jerry Jarrett for two hours in Charlotte at one of the NWA Legends Fans Fest, and uh, I, man, I had to ask like, was you know, was that a ringer? Was that somebody else? He goes, nope. And the deal was that he was friends with 
uh, which and, and this name will ring a bell with you, Salvador Luteroff. Oh yeah, me and Sal. I talked to Sal <laughs> yeah. a couple of days. Well, you know, uh, we just had we had Cinco de Mayo just a while back, so yeah. Sal, Sal and I always hook up with Cinco de Mayo. Hey, sure. You and Yeah, Jose Cuervo. <laughs> yeah, Jose Cuervo, yeah, Margarita. Yeah, how's Margarita doing? Yeah, she's doing good. Yeah, tell Jose. <laughs> you can't do this without uttering your most famous phrase in Spanish. Numero uno, numero uno. Oh, numero uno, yes, yes. And, uh, yeah, uh, and you have to put a lime in the coconut and drink it all up. You got a lime <laughs> in the coke. We call the doctor, woke him up, say, Scotty. <laughs> <laughs> Scotty, <laughs> uh, but but I guess that was the deal that, that they had become friends somehow, and uh, Ludroth had invited him out to stay at his Casa Grande, which is <laughs> which is again I think was was part of the was part of the nickname for uh, for uh, uh, what was it? Diamante uh, Negro, El, the black. Yes, Diamante Negro, also the known diamond, as Casa yes, Grande, the big, the big house. <laughs> right. <laughs> What's so funny, so guys? At... I don't see the humor in that. Why is everybody laughing? <laughs> I was a big house well, there just, back in the day. Well, there were just I... so many names for this guy. <laughs> it was just such an unnecessary detail for that angle. Just right. Lance Russell goes, right. I want to introduce the Black Diamond known as Demente Negro. He's the most popular. He's also known as Casa Grande, the big house. Like, it's just, it's unnecessary. That's what makes don't it forget, wait a minute. Hey, don't forget Johnny hey, Tamale. Don't forget Johnny Tamale. <laughs> Well, wait a minute. You guys, you know, you guys, you guys painstakingly went over that that angle recently, and it was, and you and you did a brilliant job. But there was one little moment that you missed there when Lance refers to him as uh, uh, Casa Grande. You you hear the idol do a little like, <laughs> like he recognizes his nickname. <laughs> you know, he recognizes his nickname, and that pleases him. Hey, me amo, me amo Casa Grande. It's <laughs> true. Uh, yeah, numero just, uh, uno. Uno. Yeah. Recently on a super podcast, me and Jim Cornette were looking at an old wrestling newspaper article, and it was about a wrestler named the Big Bad Wolf from the 30s. You know, when the Big Bad Wolf was a big thing in pop culture because of the Three Little Pigs cartoon sure. that he did. And it said the Big Bad Wolf, also known as the Great <laughs> Unknown. I was like, wow, that's. <laughs> <laughs> Right. <laughs> he was on top in uh, Poughkeepsie uh, just about a month ago. Wasn't he? Yeah, Ronald Stolman stepped in. Great. Oh gosh, good, good stuff, man. Well, and Memphis might as well have been. You know, people always ask where is parts unknown. I, I'd say, well, gosh, it's got to be somewhere uh, near near the Memphis city limits because so many guys. You know, somebody uh, recently there was, uh, you know, the big uh, May 4th Star Wars Day and everyone was talking about how, you know, Darth Vader used to wrestle in Memphis uh, in 1978. And the, the kisser, who was Wayne Ferris uh, in Gene Simmons makeup, uh, there was a guy, Kojak. Uh, I don't know if the Fonz ever dropped by or not, but but Spider Man certainly did, and I think I think I think they even made poor David Schultz work as the Riddler one night. So uh, yeah, quite. <laughs> yeah, there were there were quite. no limits, no limits, right in, Me in Memphis. That's the thing about Memphis oh. it, that no limits, there's no threshold, you know, and anything yeah. is if you can dream it, you know, dream machine, right, Troy Graham. Yeah, 
Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And, and, uh, you know, and they really tried to sell that that was dusty road, you right. know, un, under the hood. Um, yeah. and dusty, <laughs> you know, and well, you know, and it made sense, you know, the, the, the stand back powder commercials had just started airing in Memphis. And so, you know, fans, you know, had, had seen dusty doing these promos where he's like, you know, beating up after a match and he, I don't know if he, I don't know if he was snorting the stand back or, well, we don't know or drinking it, yeah. but, but nevertheless, nevertheless, but, uh, but he, he was able to pop back and, uh, and then you hear this, uh, this voice off, off, <laughs> off camera, uh, saying, come on, Dusty, I want a boogie. And he <laughs> smiles with that. <laughs> but the dream machine, you know. Troy Graham could do a great, a great impersonation. Oh. So, you know, oh, it, it hey. Does, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and, you know, and it, and it made sense storyline wise, he was coming in to take to take uh, Jimmy Hart's blood money and had a reputation to protect. And, uh, man, and I was, I happened to be there that night in the cheap seats, you know, because Memphis was a notorious, uh, you know, it wasn't an advanced town. Uh, you know, fans bought their tickets, uh, typically, you know, walk up and, uh, you know, we uh, we got there and uh man it, it it sold out pretty quickly we we got tickets you know in the nosebleed and man the electricity that night was just absolutely uh, you know unbelievable and there there were fans literally like two fans literally kicked the doors in uh at the mid-south coliseum to get in so and and i don't know how they did but there were actually i remember there were people actually sitting in the aisles um, it's funny. It's funny how why, how you when you saying that not in advanced town because when I would get to the building, that that was the first question I would ask. Who, depending on who I would see first, either Lawler or Guy Coffee, say how's the advance? How's the advance? Because I mean I knew it was a walk up town, but if you had like say a uh, a four thousand dollar advance, you knew you were going to have a good house because that would that would have yeah. been a big that would have been a big advance back in the day, you know. Even three thousand yeah. bucks, three thousand bucks was a good advance because you know yeah. you, you knew it was a walk up town. Just crazy. Sure, sure, crazy. Yeah, and, and actually, actually, man, one of the one of the few nights that actually I, that I made the effort to buy advanced tickets was the night of the steel cage match with the uh, hair versus hair. Uh, you putting up uh, the price of it, you know, that kind of, that part's been sort of overlooked a little bit that, I, you know, that had just added fuel to the fire, you know, <laughs> because these fans had never seen Jerry Lawler get his head shaved. And there was also the promise, you know, that, that you had given Eddie Marlin $50,000 of your hard earned money and uh, everyone was going to get the price of admission back if uh, after Lawler shaved your head in the middle of the ring. So, uh, yeah. So, that, yeah, that man. That's a uh, slam dunk. That's, that's a yeah, absolutely. And, and I don't know if you're aware of this, but but uh, starting on Tuesday of that week of the the week preceding the cage match, uh, there were all these ads running in prime time on Memphis, which at one time, you know, the Memphis show was the third highest rated show in the city, including primetime. I think it was only, it was trailing. It was like dynasty or Dallas dynasty. And then Memphis wrestling. <laughs> it was a hot, uh, which is, hot program. <sighs> just yeah. Incredible. I don't know. I don't know of any other uh, territory that, that uh, pulled in TV numbers like that. Yeah. 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 And you know, I just that emotional connection that the fans, you know, had with the stars. And, and, I, and I think it helped, 
that Lawler was from Memphis, you know, went to Treadwell High School, uh, went to Memphis State University, uh, you know, my alma mater uh, on an art, art scholarship. And, you know, so in effect, you know, and, we, and we didn't have a pro sports team. Uh, so in effect, you know, he was like our home team. Uh, I, I think the running joke in years for Memphis was that if you want a pro sports team to succeed in Memphis, you're going to have to have wrestling matches at halftime. And that, makes <laughs> that really makes sense. Yeah. Seriously. Yeah. yeah. We were hot, 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 man. Yeah. That, that TV yeah. put up some numbers, man. It put up numbers and, you know, doing live TV too, you know, I mean, yeah. the whole, just the, yeah. whole, the whole concept, just insane. Absolutely insane. Yeah. yeah. But they, but anyway, they were running these ads uh, throughout the week, starting on Tuesday. Uh, I mean, I saw it like three or four times. Where Lance Russell's like, you got to be sure to tune in this Saturday morning for the biggest announcement in the history of Memphis wrestling. Hmm. And that's and that's the way they were selling. And I thought, you know, uh, I, I was fifteen, and uh, you know, I somehow I was I was already getting like the Wrestling Observer newsletter, and you know, I thought I was like really on the inside. But I was like. You know what, what? You know what's going on? You know, has, has Vince McMahon purchased the the promotion, or he and Jerry Jarrett going to be part? You know, what's you know what what could this announcement possibly be? But I knew whatever it was, it was something to do with that Monday night show. Uh, so I remember, I think Friday was the earliest you could buy tickets, um, and I got there, and the closest I could get was fourth row. Um, but uh, but yeah, that's so it's so the promotion for it started earlier that week and it was very out of the ordinary. I mean, it had, I mean, everybody, I was, a, I guess I was a sophomore in high school and everybody was talking about what, you know, God, you know, what is this going to be? And then, uh, man, cut the, cut the, you know, you guys both cut these incredible promos. I guess Lawler had just, uh, done, you know, the, the, the deal with the chain match where he, you know, slipped out of his chain and just when you just when you think you thought of every use possible for duct tape, the king invents a new one. I think he re, you know he reached into his tights, pulled out a roll of duct tape, tapes his end of the chain to the turnbuckle, and then Calhoun has, has fastened, fastened the chain to his, to your wrist. And then uh, Idol uh, Calhoun rings the bell, Jerry pulls the chain and knocks Bang. you out and beats you. In, yeah, beats you in record time, and you know. Like three so seconds. We, I mean, bang. Yeah. Yeah. Bang. Yeah. It was over a uh, quickest, you know, quickest loss of the Southern title in history. And so it just all made, you know, the seeds were just carefully planted, you know, Lawler just beating you and, and four seconds, whatever the time was, you're infuriated. Won an immediate rematch. Uh, Lawler says no rematch. So, you know, you put up the hair and you put up the 50 grand and man, that thing was hot. That, uh, that 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 was really unbelievable. Yeah, it just got hotter and hotter and hotter and hotter, you know. And you I mean you knew at some point there's going to be a blow off, but boy, you know when, you know, I'm, I'm listening to you describe all of this, right? So if, I'm just kind of flashing back, you know, while while you're while you're talking, and you think about when uh, Tommy Rich and I posted Lawler, you know. Oh. Uh, uh, I mean, you know something. I mean, that was big. I mean, that was big stuff. I mean, it really was. And yeah. he was out, you know. And uh, man, we were we were hot. We had serious serious heat. You're not gonna that heat will never exist again. It ain't gonna happen. No. Uh, 
for obvious reasons, but even after, before Vince really, you know, let the genie out of the bottle, I mean, we were, we were scorching hot. We were yeah. so hot, man. And, uh, yeah. I can't exactly remember, uh, after the hair match, Scott and Brian, I know you guys can, but, uh, that Tommy and I came back, what, in tag team matches with who, who Dundee and who are Bam Bam. I don't, I don't, can't remember. But yeah. They yeah uh, well, yeah, with, even, with the following week, even without Jerry on the card, uh, drew 9,000. Yeah. Which was, which was almost unheard of. Back to back weeks of drawing 9,000 fans without Jerry Lawler on the card. I mean that that can, that tells you right there. I mean how how much heat we're on the hill. They um, want they want I, exact, they want to see us get killed. They want to see yeah. us get murdered. You know, so uh, we were hot. Yeah. Well, and and it, you know, and I, I was in the fourth row, and I and I had my my you know my dad's uh, Pentax camera, and I was like trying to get some, some good shots of this, and uh, and I got up right near the cage, and then suddenly, I mean, it, it was like a wave of people came. Uh, pushing up against, you know, my, my lens. I thought I'm going to get crushed, you know, against this cage. And, 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 you know, and then of course there were uh, yeah, at least two, maybe three guys trying to climb the cage. The police were, were yanking. And then Tommy, of course, goes over and he's shaking the cage. This one guy almost made it to the top. Uh, well, I, had the, but I had the chain. I mean, I had that chain swinging. Do you, you recall that? I grabbed that chain. Yeah. That, that, yeah. Yeah. That's yeah, right. Yeah. Cause chain. you had it. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I knew if yeah. somebody comes over, I mean, you're a fair game, you know, and you're going to get walloped because yeah. you got to do that. Yeah. We were lucky to get out alive. Yeah. And well, and then, uh, you know, it was, uh, I, I guess you guys were in there and it, you, you waited, at, you know, you Lawler got his, uh, it was more like a Bruce Willis kind of, uh, haircut, I guess, you know, what, I think he had his own personal hairstylist there to ensure that it wasn't, wasn't a total head shaving, but, uh, but nevertheless, uh, you guys were in the ring for about 20, 25 minutes after, after the finish. And I think they were calling more the reinforcements, like more police to get there to surround you guys so you could get out. And the fans weren't leaving. <laughs> you know, most fans after the finish, you know, no matter if if a baby face got screwed or whatever, they'd be heading to the parking lot because and getting out of that Coliseum. That, <laughs> yeah, we we were tra- we were trapped. We were totally trapped. Yeah, it was very intense, and. Uh, of course, Paul uh, Heyman. He his, he he didn't. He really did not know. He did not know. He was, <laughs> he was just kind of reveling in the thing, you know, jumping up and down. And hey, look at me, rah rah! He yeah. thought he was in the Macy's Day Parade. And uh, Tommy, Tommy, uh, I think Tommy was a little bit, uh, you know, not as he, he wasn't quite as tuned in. Let me put it that way. But I can tell you, I was. And I told yeah. those guys, I said, guys, I'm going to tell you right now, when we when we come out of there, I said, I'm not playing games. I'm running. You know, and we've talked, mm-hmm. Brian and I've talked about this. That's one thing you just don't do, you know, as a as a bad guy, as a heel. You don't run, you know, because you're showing fear. But when you have that many people who want to kill you, well, yeah. try to walk tough and see what yeah. happens. And you're not going to, we would have never made it back to the dresser. I know it. We would have been mobbed. They'd have kicked our brains in, you know, and uh, I, I ran, man. I'm still waiting for well, yeah. gold medal from the International Olympic Committee, and I think, uh, <laughs> I think there's something yeah. dicey going on there. 
Yeah, even you know, even even with the cops surrounding you guys, uh, I remember you oh. guys started and you're making making your way down. It was a little slow at first, and then the crowds they they start converging against yep. the police officers, and then this and you know and the and and, and it actually came off uh, like the police were picking up the pace. Like let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go. Yeah. You know because uh, there was just so you know they were they were outnumbered. Uh, oh, I'm yeah, sure the cops are freaking out too. Like, hey, <laughs> this ain't worth twenty bucks an hour. You know, right. I could have been home. Right. No, wow. right? Yeah, so everybody yeah. uh, had their dancing shoes on, their running shoes on. Yeah, absolutely, no fun. Man, yeah, yeah. But he's uh, lately, yeah, uh, yeah. Oh man, I, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, and. Gosh, and 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 then it just it remained hot for I guess about two more months and culminated with the scaffold match. Yeah, uh, I guess which uh, yeah, and then Paulie, <laughs> I guess he he waited to tell Jerry uh, on Monday night that that he was afraid of heights, and so he <laughs> he couldn't go up he couldn't go up the scaffold. And Jerry's like, "What the fuck? You know what? What the hell do you mean you you can't go up the scaffold? That's the whole thing." And uh, so yeah, he ends up breaking, uh, Paulie's jaw. Uh, well, you know, they asked me about the scaffold thing and they asked me, Hey, can, w- are you, are you okay with this? And, uh, I, I told them and initially I said, you know, I'm not a fan. No, I'm not really a fan. I, maybe I have a, a plane crash survivor syndrome. I don't know what it was, but I said, I'm not, I'm not a fan of this thing. And, uh, they said, well, listen, if you, if you, if you just do the thing, you know, just climb if you just climb the thing, you don't have to go out there and whatever. Uh, and you know, we'll get somebody else to do it, whether it's Paul. Was it just me and Paul, or was it two the two of us? Or yeah, it was, was you, yeah, it was you and Tommy, but the, but I believe that what they wanted to do was have it where uh, somehow you you escape because i think you you were i think uh there was i think maybe there was like one more match where, where you involved this was the end for tommy i think i think they did a deal where tommy kind of fell halfway off it and broke and the deal was that he broke his wrist he may have he may have really broken his wrist i don't know um but the, the big finish was supposed to be that you were able to escape virtually unscathed uh and that paul e was going to take the big bump off the scaffold, yeah. similar to what right. they did to to poor to poor Jim Cornette uh, at Sharkade '87 when he when he tore up his name. But uh, yeah, right. uh, but and then Paulie's like talking like I can't go up there. I'm afraid. I'm afraid. Exactly. <laughs> I can only, only yeah. I can only, only imagine the look on uh, on Mahler's face when he when he got that news. Yeah. But uh, yeah, yeah. Well, I know when I got up there and I got to the top of the thing and the, the, the scaffold's there and I'm looking down. And I mean, looking down, and really, it seemed like I was eye level with the the, the top tier there at the Coliseum. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, it really it did. Yeah, it was very high. And I'm looking and said, "Wow, man, this is dangerous." One little, you know, one little screw up. I mean, you you might be dead. You know, you got a concrete floor down there too, and uh, whatever. Yeah. I said, "Shoot, man, I'm not taking any chances." I think maybe I crawled out there. My maybe I went three feet out on my hands and knees. You know, yeah. uh, no way. Uh-uh. They yeah. ain't paying me enough yeah. to do that. Exactly. Exactly. No. No. Yeah. Uh-uh. Yeah. No way. But, uh, you know, I know. So, you know, I, I read because this is the 30th anniversary of the of the whole deal. And, uh, you know, I, I had written a, a article about it and uh, put it on my Kentucky Fried Wrestling site. And 
you know, and for the last few years, I've actually been retweeting about it just because, uh, you know, easily one of the biggest angles in Memphis history. Uh, but, uh, but Heyman, I guess, retweeted it to his one at one point million five followers that, yeah. uh, that he got. And man, overnight that thing just went, it went crazy. And, and, and the big thing that everyone was really impressed was the promo with Lance Russell afterward. Yeah. When he yeah. comes in and he's just disgusted. <laughs> and it's like, he's like, you guys, you've been planning this. And you're like, well, of course we've been planning this. You idiot. You idiot. What do you think? Yeah. Hey, I retweeted that too. Uh, did you, you saw me retweet it, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, and, I and, uh, uh, and Lawler did. And, uh, and actually, and I, this is not the intent, but somehow overnight, I guess because I was the original one who, <laughs> who tweeted it. I started trending, uh, and my and my dad in, in Florida. You know, he's, I'm in I'm in Los Angeles, and he's a few hours ahead. And, and he calls me. I'm asleep, and uh, he's like, he's like, son, what what have you done? What are you doing? I'm like, what are you what are you what are you talking about? He's like, yeah, you're 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 trending on on this Twitter box. Uh, what's going on? And I'm like, oh, oh no, 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 Dad! It's just, it's just a rest, it's just a wrestling, it's a, it's a wrestling thing. Don't worry about it. Oh, that's that, that's funny. And I saw what I saw what Paul Heyman tweeted. He says, I, I think it was something like, uh, I did what I did when I was 21. What nobody else was ever to do. About the the hair shaving, you know. And I, I had to look yeah. at that thing twice. I mean, I really did. You know, I. I really had to look at it twice. I kind of held back on on the on the reply, you know, because like I, 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 you know, when people say I, I, I all the time, I, 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 me, 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 come on, come on. I mean, you know, and, and Brian knows this. I mean, I gave him his spot. If it wouldn't have been for me, he'd have never yeah. been in the match. Yeah, that's true. And and Paulie Paulie was 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 all right. You know, you could tell he was a natural, but he was a little. He was a little over the top, you know. Yeah. He was a little over the top, and and you'll notice it in, in the po- in the post match promo. You know, it's it's Tommy Ty and Tommy <clears throat> sometimes could be hit and miss on on on, on a promo, but uh, you know when he, I thought you know the great thing about Tommy when he was a baby face, and this is the way that I've sort of put it. And I don't mean it as an insult, but he was so unpolished. It was almost like a clumsy charisma. And I think that that the fans just identified with him, and and uh, that endeared them to you know to him. And then when he was a heel, that was that was the best heel work I've ever seen him do. Um, and then it goes to you. And Heyman doesn't say a word. He's sitting there holding the bag, but he was a very minor part of of the whole deal. He was on you and Tommy, not not on Heyman. Yeah. Well, again, he wouldn't have been in that spot. I mean, I'm the one who yeah. went to Lawler and I said, hey. This kid, I like him, you know, he's got a little, you know, something to him, you know, he dresses cool, he's got that, walks around with the phone, doing the phone thing, and blah, 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 and I said, I like him, he's from New York, and, yeah. uh, you know, I was born in Brooklyn, I said, why don't you just give him to me as my manager, which I really hadn't had a manager, I did a couple times with Jimmy, but for heart, but for very short periods of time, so I said, you know, it'll, it'll give him a break. Paul, give Paul Heyman a break. And I said, it'll give me a little bit of a twist, you know, kind of a, or just a little bit of a fresh, you know, just a different look, you know, a different feel, you know, I said, I think it'll be good. Bang. Had I not yeah. gone to Lawler, that would have never, he'd have never been in that position. Yeah. 
Yeah. I, saw, I saw that yeah. tweet also. I had the same thought as you, where it's just when you think back at that angle, it's always Austin Idol beat Lawler and him and Tommy Rich shaved his head. Tommy Rich was under the ring. Paulie's like an afterthought for that whole angle, yeah. that whole run. Yet you listen to him and it's I shaved Lawler's head in Memphis. <laughs> oh, yeah. 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 Get over yourself. Get over yourself yeah. already. Yeah. 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 And, you know, and it, and it was a big deal because nobody, you know, I mean, it, you know, it was like, it was almost, you know, they compared it to like the Undertaker Street, which uh, to me, I, yeah, there, there's some, some similarities. But to me, that that was more like you know the the fans were were shocked. It was a swerve; they didn't expect it. But it was nothing like like this. I mean, you know, this this was true heat. This was uh, yeah, it was a real deal. Scott, let me ask you a question: Do you do you believe that there are people out there that miss the those old school days? Oh uh, man, I you know I I I certainly do. I. But, you know, by the time I got into the business, uh, you know, and Eddie Gilbert is the one who turned me heel and he kind of saw something in me, uh, yeah. I guess, sort of like, you know, you, you did in Paul. And and I, I, uh, I got, you know, I was I'd grown up watching it. And man, I was just I didn't open my mouth for the longest time as a referee. And slowly they started asking my opinion on finishes and I yeah. just come up with some stuff and but was always very respectful and didn't, didn't, <laughs> didn't open my mouth unless I was asked and slowly started, you know, sort Eddie started sort of paying attention and asking me like, you know, what do you think about, you know, and I would give him uh, some, some, some ideas, you know, what, what I thought just bouncing some stuff off him. And, uh, and one night I, I walked in and I, I knew they were trying to figure out some kind of creative way to get out of, um, uh, out of you know to come back with a rematch, uh, throw throw a match out between uh, Jeff Jarrett and, and Lawler against Dream Machine and, and Eddie, and I'm like, well, you know, why don't you go to throw the fire? Maybe you know, maybe Lawler ducks it, hits me, and then just a big smile breaks out, and you guys come back next week. And so Lawler calls me in about 20 minutes later, and he's like, Scott, we're turning you heel tonight. And I look over at Eddie, and he's kind of rubbing his chin, like gives me a devilish, yeah, right, right, devilish smile. And uh, man, uh, referee, you know, Frank Morrell actually takes a bump, uh, which 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 was rare. And uh, so, you know, he's down and out, and I come out, and Lawler's got Eddie pinned instead of counting three. I rear back, and I just you know smash Lawler's head <laughs> with a with a big boot, and put Eddie on top, count three. And, uh, man, and, you know, even, in, even in 94, uh, man, the fans still were really into it. And, and I had some friends at ringside and I said, you guys go, just, just go get, get, you know, get out. Don't wait for me in the parking lot. Just, just, just get right. out of here. Right. I mean, right. Nothing, you know, nothing on your level, but still in 94 in Memphis, I mean, there was still that at least the willing suspension of disbelief. You know, um, yeah, exactly, I, exactly. They held on. They I, held on. Yeah. yeah, they did. They did, and especially when we went to, you know, when we, if you went to like Union City, Tennessee, which we all know is the um, home of WWE Hall of Famer Coco Beware. Um, but uh, you know, you'd go there, and uh, the entire town was there. It seemed like, um, and. You know, I remember. I remember I was in the dressing room, and and they had a picture of the cheerleaders in, in the uh, football locker room, and I went to the room like, 
was like, wow, look at this. This is the only high school I've ever been to. The cheerleaders are bigger than the football team. Oh. And, man, I'm just getting pelted with hot dogs. <laughs> And uh, it, it was, yeah, it was, it was almost like uh, Memphis was like that that last territory that was just stuck in time for for a moment. Yeah, they um, held on. They really held yeah. on. It's surprising how long that they did, you know. But it turned yeah. out good for him, though. I mean, look at the look at yeah. Jerry. You know, he's what a run he's had. You know, I mean, my oh, goodness, yeah, unbelievable. So it's it turned out good. It was a good. The whole thing was good, really. But uh, I, you know, we Brian and I, we we get it all the time. You know, we people say, "Man, I wish like it was like it was." And of course, we know it never will be. You know, time, everything changes in time. You know, but uh, wrestling was so different back then, and uh, it was just really, really cool. It was a great industry to be in. I mean, you didn't make the money like the guys make now, for sure. Yeah. But but uh, it's it still, it was just a great, great era. Yeah. Yeah. Just, yeah. uh, yeah, the, the, the atmosphere, it's, it's really hard to explain what it, what it was like, uh, to, to fans today. You know, I remember because I, I had, I moved to Los Angeles in, in 98. I, I, you know, uh, been out of, out of wrestling for, for a couple of years. And I went to, uh, a WWE event, well, actually one of their big events, like a, like, I think a Royal Rumble in Anaheim. And I, I, I just, I was amazed. I was amazed. Like, you know, the entrances, the crowd got to their feet, like almost like Pavlov's dogs, you know, the entrance music hits and they, you know, bark and cheer and all this kind of stuff. And then throughout the match, they're just dead, dead quiet. <laughs> yes, yeah, like a it's like no. a golf match, like a golf match or, or, yeah. or like in J Japanese wrestling. It's like, yeah, yeah. It's, it's crazy, isn't it? I mean, it's just yeah. crazy. You see that. So it's, it's almost like, why are you there? You know, I mean, yeah. There's no yeah. crowd involvement, you know. I mean, and I don't mm -hmm. watch it that, that that often, but the few times I've, you know, I'll stumble on something. I I look at it too, and I say they're just sitting on their hands. Why? Yeah. Why are they? And those are expensive tickets. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Expensive tickets. Yeah. Why are you yeah. there? And then it and then it sort of turned into this thing where the only way you could get a pop is if you did, you know, some kind of crazy thing where you risk breaking your neck and and uh, you know that's you know people look at lawler and they're like you know how did he have this incredible career well you know he's still able to go out there and have by and large you know a lot of his matches were psychology i mean yeah i mean he was a tremendous bump taker and and, and a hell of a brawler but uh you know so much of the business was was psychology and 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 getting slowly luring the people in and pulling them into the match and kind of responding to what they're giving you and and uh uh, and not having, he wasn't and not a high, having hey, 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 Scott, he wasn't a high flyer like me now. You saw, no. <laughs> you saw my, come on, come on now. Let's just don't talk about baller, baller, and all that. What about me flying around the ring, huh? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Right. The, only, the only man to be in a scaffold match and not leave his feet. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I did the first somersault in professional wrestling, ladies and gentlemen. A new moonsault. <laughs> hey idol can i ask you a question um Yo, yes you may not be comfortable giving the number and i understand that but in general if you could narrow in on this for the cage match with the hair versus hair stipulations and of course you put up the money if you lost yeah how much bigger than your normal payday was it substantial yeah it was substantial well and this, you know, this brings up something that jerry jared has wanted me to to ask you uh oh! Oh, I see what's uh, going on uh, here. 
No, according, nice according to according to Jerry Jarrett, I'm not you know I'm not pointing any fingers. Uh, prior to the uh, to the hair match, I believe you had a um, some some renegotiations. I've about heard that. the uh, about the payoff. Yeah. About the about, wait a second about the payoff that to be. Yes. About the payoff to be. Yes. We could have. Yeah. 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 We could have. Yeah. What the, so, what something, something to the Tell effect that I'm not go, that I'm not going on unless this number is is met. It could, we could have. We well, certainly could have. I'm not in denial. I mean, you know, we're we're hearkening way back, but we could have. Was there a number? Did you hear a number? Uh, yeah, uh, he didn't tell me that. He didn't. He didn't tell me that. He did not tell you. He told you everything but the number. Uh, what kind of a cliffhanger is this? Who I know. I know. Boston Idol. He's stuck in the Huh? It, maybe it was maybe it's for that five grand check that you crashed of of uh, Fred Ward. I don't know. Is he? Are you? Are you saying he said it was five k? He said it was thousands of dollars. Spit out the gefilte fish, will you? <laughs> he, he said it was. He said it was, he said he said it was thousands of dollars. Thousands. So thousands yep. would be anything over one two thousand and up, right? Yeah. He. You know. He made. He made it sound like it was. It was at least five grand. At least five? Yeah. It could have very well been. And I think that would have been a very smart move. Well. (laughs) Well, why not? Hey, listen, you know you're you're done. I mean, well, of course, I stayed on longer. But that would would make total sense to me, Scott. You know, I don't remember all the details. But, you know, that would make total sense to me. Like, you know what? We got a big old house out there, a big one, and I'm played a very important role in that house. So, absolutely, shouldn't I receive a fair share, not a partnership share? Of course, it's not my promotion, right. not my business, right. but I should be compensated accordingly. Yeah, I probably did that. You know, I, I that was that's been asked me previously, and I and honestly, I. I couldn't quite remember and i was a little vague on the thing and i think i actually said no i didn't do it but now the since you talked to jerry jarrett and he said that i did it i think i probably did it then well and to be fair you know and lawler was a partner right so yep. obviously you know his his pay was was going to be on on point um uh, so yeah sure i mean you know it it, it makes sense and 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 also you know to be on um Jerry Jarrett was, you know, certainly not as bad as Nick Goulas, but uh, some of the boys say that Jarrett was not the best payoff guy in the world. Um, I, and, I and, and, was good. and that was, yeah, okay, well, and and uh, they well, they I heard that when Lawler, <laughs> well, I heard that when Lawler was, well, I heard that when Lawler was booking that that he was a better payoff guy, but I, I don't, I, well, Lawler I don't always know. took care of me because my deal was with Lawler. You know, he, yeah. um, when I wrestled, who did I wrestle? Always. He wrestled the top guy, Lawler. So, and, and you know, so Jerry always took care of me and I, I wouldn't, I was, I definitely was going to make sure I wasn't going to get the shaft on, uh, on a big house like that with all that building. Sure. Yeah. So, uh, 
Yeah, and that goes back to something we've talked about a few times. This, it's a good time to talk about it now that I've always, uh, you know, mentioned on, on some previous episodes about being a leader. You got to take a risk. You got to jump out there. You got to stand up for yourself. Uh, Stan Hansen was on recently. We talked about it. You know, yeah. said, hey, you got to you got to stand up for yourself. You know, I mean, if if, if, yeah. you're, if you're at your job. And you're doing a great job, and maybe, but and if you're being abused financially, whatever, I mean, listen, go talk to the guy, go talk to the boss, man. Say, hey, come on, man, come on. You, yeah. you may lose your job. You may lose your job. Yeah. You got to yeah. take that risk. But uh, I think it's. Well, uh, well, I'd you rather be. You're not going to lose the job when there's nine thousand people in the building waiting yeah. to see you. So you were in right. a good position. Yeah. Well, I knew yeah. I was. Like, yeah. I'm, I knew I was going to get my you, money. You talk about a ride. If they had, had if they had, cause they had tried to do that once before with a hair match with Waller and Valiant, where Valiant came out on crutches and and uh, nailed Dundee or nailed Lawler, and then Dundee came out and nailed Dundee, and they were and he was about to save Dundee's head, and then Lawler made the save, and I guess they thought, and there was actually going to be no match taking place, even though it was advertised as hair versus hair, and they thought that since the baby faces. <laughs> you know, I uh, had, had run Valiant off and, and, and Lawler had saved Dundee from getting a head shaving that, that the fans would be happy. They were not. And, and they, and they rioted and they did, they did, I think $2,000 worth of damages to the Coliseum seat. Well, there you go. Well, I had a Royal yeah. flush. Yeah. I had a Royal flush. I was yeah. pretty, con- I was pretty yeah. confident that I have a winning hand. So, uh, but you know, I mean, and maybe that's probably Jared probably has a grudge against me, but that's I don't care anyway. But uh, uh, I'm not a grudge holder, so that's why I don't even I don't even care. But uh, hey, listen, you know, be a leader, ladies and gentlemen, yeah. be a leader. Yeah. You well, be here, uh, and and Quit your job and. Yeah, I well, highly and, and, suggest and, it, Scott. I want you to quit, <laughs> give your notice immediately after this podcast is over. Hey, I'm out of here. Now, Austin Idol said, hey, leave. I'm tired of this. One more money. Exactly. One exactly. more money or I'm gone. <laughs> going to go to work with Idol. Brian Lance. We don't know what we're going to do, but we're going we're gonna to do it. All right. <laughs> we'll think of something. We'll think of something. Take a risk. <laughs> well, and, and at, the, at the risk of, of trying, trying to get myself over, when I did, when I did that, when I did that, who, me? When I did that, when I did that deal, when I kicked all in the head and all that, yeah. uh, I, I assumed that I was going to be Eddie's Hill manager from that point on. And, and, uh, and actually that was only going to supposed to be for a week. And then he was going to turn on me and say that he'd just use me and I was going to go back to refereeing. And I got that news on Saturday morning and I'd shown up, man, I'd pressed my, you know, my polo shirt. I had my fraternity pin on, you know, the thing and I had the sunglasses and they told me that and they said, you know, we want you to kind of go out there and be apologetic, but you just lost your temper. And I'm like, oh man, you know, I was devastated and I thought, man, this is live TV. This is the only chance I'm ever going to have in my life to do the heel promo that I've always wanted to do. And so I just went out there and I <laughs> and Lance goes, how do you feel about what you did? And I said, I feel pretty good about it because Jerry Lawler has pushed me around. He has shoved me, he has abused the rules and I stomped him like the cockroach that he is. <laughs> and and uh, Kevin Lawler in the back, Jerry's son said, he looked over at his dad and his uh, it's, eyes are as big as saucers like what the hell is he doing hey, you jumped out there, it, man. 
man. And, and, and it, and, and then it, and then Eddie came out and it, and Lance is all furious. And it was, you know, and it, and we, Eddie and I walk off together and I say, he's my best friend now, Jerry Lawler, you expect the unexpected. And, uh, you know, we walk back to the back and Jerry calls me over and he's like, okay, uh, that, was, that was, that was, that was pretty good. That was good. Yeah. What's up? Really? What are you saying? Next What's time. Up? Next time. Yeah. He's hey, like, hey. Ne- he's like, next time do what I yeah. do what I tell you to say. Hey, and you I jumped said, okay. out there. You took a risk, you know, yeah. so that's, there you yeah. go. Okay, let me flip some on you. This is a segue. Brian knows what's coming because we always do this. I always do it. Um, Let me flip it. Uh, Scott, we talk about nutrition on the show a lot. We talk about, you know, exercise a lot, fitness, wellness, that whole thing. So let me ask you, being out there in Los Angeles, do you – are you any, I mean, do you take pretty good care of yourself? Tell the truth now. Do you take a pretty good care of yourself nutritionally or do you exercise or – you know, uh, I, I had never been a runner in my life. I, okay. I when I came to Los Angeles, I thought that, man, uh, the nightlife here is going to be just unbelievable. Parties are going to be outrageous, man. Everyone goes to bed here at one o'clock because they've got to get up in the morning for a photo shoot. <laughs> you know, they've right. got a, you know, they, they've got a pilot they're shooting tomorrow. Uh, and so, man, yeah. So I started running and I, right. I've, since I've, I've run seven LA marathons. Man, since I, that's since huge. I've since I've been here, and uh, oh, wow. yeah, that first one, that first one, that first one was man, that was tough, and it never feels around mile twenty one. You're going, you idiot! What? What are you thinking? You're some kind of athlete. <laughs> you're cutting a promo on yourself, basically, uh, when you hit that twenty mile, twenty one mile wall. Uh, but yeah. So I, you know, and it wasn't until I moved to LA that, that, uh, that I, yeah, that I adopted that, that, that lifestyle. What is it? Marathon's what? 26.2. Is that what it is? Or 26.2. That's 26.2. Okay. So man, that's unbelievable. And that's great to hear. It really is. What about from the nutritional aspect? You eat relatively clean or just kind of 50, 50 or. Yeah. Uh, sort of 50, you know, there's some some great Mexican food out here. Um, and, and it's cheap, but. But yeah, by and large, uh, you know, my friend, I eat a lot of vegetarian dishes. Uh, really? My wife and I, we, yeah, my wife and I would cook a lot. Uh, yeah, yeah, the uh, very, very little red meat, uh, which my friends just, you know, back home in Memphis would just tease me un- unmercifully about it. But uh, yeah, but yeah, yeah, I, I definitely, I definitely had a had a shift when when I moved to uh, to Los Angeles. I mean, you know, you go to football games out here; they're tailgating with sushi. <laughs> you know, it's, oh, I know. It's, it's a whole a different, different culture, yeah. totally different culture, yeah, yeah. very fit culture. And that's a great, it's a great thing, but not everybody lives in a fit culture, right? So, you know, right. I always get up on the podium and do a little preaching about nutrition and fitness and everything. And uh, we've had some, I, and all on my website, maybe you've seen it, maybe you haven't, but I have a, like a fitness and nutrition booklet, a, a workout booklet. Now we threw some t-shirts, t-shirts up there and koozies. But the uh, the nutrition thing, you know, it's it's numero uno. I mean, it really is. I mean, you can work out all day long. Yeah. Uh, now, maybe if you're running like crazy, you're putting all those miles in, you're going to burn up just about anything. I mean, you're burning up so many cows. But, you know, the nutrition is so critical. And I really, really just preach it because I really want to help people. Uh, to get them, you know, to get them, make them aware of in just in case that they're not really paying attention to their, to their nutrition, that they, they really need to do it because it is a, yes. 
it's a life extender. I mean, unless you get hit by a truck or a, a love train, but it's a life extender. So, and we've had a lot of people. I mean, I, I don't want to mention any names, but we had an email just a few days ago about a, a, a person who uh, was well, 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 almost 400 pounds. And he, he, he bought my nutritional booklets, like 35 bucks plus shipping. Uh, and as of like first uh, of May, he's dropped over 30 pounds. He's at, he's, he's, he's walking 30 minutes a day, five days a week. And, and when I hear stuff like that, it's like, Oh man, I'm reaching out. I'm yeah. reaching, connecting with people, connecting with them. So, you know, I'm glad to hear you you say what you just said because you know it, it's a big deal, man. Well, and to your point, you know, when I first when I first started running, and that first marathon was the toughest because I was running, but my diet didn't change, and and I was eating uh-huh. a ton of carb. And uh-huh. so, man, I'm you know I was running like 10, 15, 20, you know, because you stagger the miles as you prepare to run the, the marathon, and then you start tapering off. Well, I, I think I lost maybe two pounds. You know, as I was training for the marathon because my diet didn't change and I was eating more carbs and, uh, it wasn't until I, and until I made some modifications to the diet and combined that with the running that I started, the marathon started getting a little easier and I felt a little lighter. So energy level going up. Yeah, energy level going up. Yeah, we juice. I mean, I juice like a madman. You know, fresh juices with my Vitamix. I mean, like a madman. So I'm on it. I stay on it. I feel great, and uh, I'm very th- very thankful that I I got on the the health nutrition thing of decades ago, and I haven't budged really. I stayed on it pretty well. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I thought I saw. Yeah, I saw the picture of you in the gym the other day, man. You got you still got the guns going. So got those tries, baby. So got those tries. Yeah. And I'm doing my cardio. I'm not running marathons, but um, I'm doing plenty. I'm doing plenty of cardio. So it's a it's a balancing act. On that topic, of course, you can get the Austin Idol nutrition and workout booklets at austinidollive.com. Encourage you to check those out. And before we wrap everything up, Scott, tell the listeners a little bit about Kentucky Fried Wrestling and how they could stay in touch with you. Uh, well, there's a. Uh, I, I, now you can either do it Kentucky Fried Wrestling, if you're you know if you grew up in other parts of the country. dot com, uh, where I've got a whole slew of uh, just great Memphis wrestling history. Uh, you know where I just talk about the, a lot of the great angles in depth, uh, including the the infamous hair match with uh, with Idol and, and Jerry, uh, and also you know my viewpoint, my interactions with some of the guys because I, can, I was there at a time when when the rock came through as the flex Cavana and, and worked with him and, and a young Steve Austin. Um, and I'm actually in the process of redesigning the site. So I've basically been focusing on my webs on my uh, Facebook page, which is at Kentucky Fried Wrestling uh, on Facebook and uh, posting a lot of new material, a lot of, a lot of great stuff. Um, and just, you know, kind of having, having some dialogue with fans who grew up with wrestling, because it is a passion. It's something that, it just uh, it just resonates with people. If you if you lived in the city of Memphis at one time or another, you were a fan of that show, and uh, and 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 a fan of Jerry Lawler's, and and probably one time or another couldn't stand Austin Idol. It was after that appearance on Austin Idol Live, and I had him on the Six Hundred Five Super Podcast that I thought, you know what, I'd like to do something more with Scott. I was such a fan of his writing, such a fan of his articles, that I thought, what if there was an audio? version of Kentucky Fried Wrestling. What if all of his articles had an audio component to them where you could hear classic clips, where you can get the humor of Scott Bowden, where you could learn something? 
And that's what we set out to do with Kentucky Fried Wrestling, which quickly became a very popular show diving into Memphis wrestling history. But there was one topic that Scott was particularly obsessed with, and it created some interesting moments, some funny moments, and of course, a kind of legendary moment at this point. And that was Scott's search to find out the truth behind what he deemed the Mil Moscaris Monday Night Mystery. This, of course, being when Mil Moscaris allegedly appeared in 1979 at the Memphis Mid-South Coliseum. Well, we set out to find out some answers, or at least Scott did. Here we're going to play a few segments from Kentucky Fried Wrestling, a conversation with Scott and I guess we'll call him a Mil Moscaris denier, Jim Cornette, followed by a conversation with Scott and Memphis promoter Jerry Jarrett, and of course the famous occasion where right before we were about to record the show, we found out that Mil Moscaris was not far from Scott's house, leading Scott to run up to Mil Moscaris with a hidden tape recorder and try to get him on the record to say whether or not he was in Memphis on that fateful night in 1979. Let's go to these clips right now. And we are back on Kentucky Fried Wrestling. And you know, my first card as a kid at the Mid-South Coliseum is very special to me. I would imagine for folks living in New York, it's like maybe the first time you stepped inside Yankee Stadium. And on that night, in January 29th, 1979, I got to see a main event that has been talked about and debated for years now. Jerry the King Lawler calls on Jackie Fargo, the legend, brings him out of retirement, has to go to Nashville, sit on the couch, plead with him to come to Memphis on Monday because he's in a stretcher match. And you see, you don't need a great technical wrestler like Jack Briscoe as your partner when you're in a stretcher match. You need a street fighter like Jackie Fargo, especially when you're going up against the universal heartthrob himself, Austin Idol, darling, and the international wrestling superstar, Mill Mascaraz. I begged and pleaded to take my, for my uncle to take me to this card because I had been a, just a voracious reader of everything I could get my hands on about wrestling. And Mill Mascaraz was all over the aftermags. Bill, after I think had a serious man crush on the guy. And hey, I admit he looks spectacular flying across the ring on those magazines. It's almost like he's going to leap off the cover and right into your lap. Now, in person, he wasn't the most, uh, let's say, spectacular performer. He was good. He was graceful, if anything. But uh, at any rate, he impressed me that night, not only for his flying body press, his, his aerial maneuvers that I had not seen in, in, in Memphis before, but also for the fact that he did a stretcher job for Lawler and Fargo and sold his ass off, put the local guys over, made them look like world beaters, and then not only that, as they were carrying his mass carcass back to the back, Fargo runs down, tumps the stretcher over, and continues to put the boots <laughs> to Mill Masgras as he's begging off and literally has to crawl back to the dressing room. Now, fast forward to 2009. I've been out of the business for several years to that point, but that memory has always, you know, just continued to burn bright in my heart. And I'm at, uh, I'm at Charlotte at the uh, NWA Legends Fan Fest, and, and, and Cornette, Jimmy Cornette is there. Now, I have, this is one of my wrestling heroes. And in front of the entire cult of Cornette on hand, I politely introduce myself. I'm shocked to find that he actually knows who I am. And then I ask him his thoughts on this match. 
And he, in front of everybody, in front of the entire cult of Cornette, embarrasses me and says, hey, buddy, I got news for you. That wasn't Bill Mascaris under that hood. That was Pepe Lopez. (laughs) (laughs) Well, of course, you know, that kind of uh, stuck in my craw for a little bit. And uh, so I did a little digging and I had to talk with, uh, with Jerry Jarrett. Actually, during that same trip, I sat down with Jerry Jarrett for two hours and we talked about a lot of things, but I did bring up the topic of the match. And he explained that he was friends with promoter Salvador Luteroth, who flew he and his wife to Acapulco. And it gave me this incredibly detailed story. <laughs> he remembered what they had for dinner. He remembered the dog's name. He remembered the names of three, all three of his kids and that he arranged this deal to bring Mascaras in. And the thing is, it happened late. He got the call on late Thursday night that it was a go, that for some reason, Mill was going to be passing through and could actually do the shot. So they had already sent out the ad for a stretcher match one-on-one, which, which was red hot. You didn't, you know, you didn't even really need to mess with the formula. Lawler and Idol was a hot feud. And this, you know, that was advertised as a one-on-one stretcher match. So they immediately scramble, call in Jackie Fargo, because they know that'll pop the house. And it does. It actually, I think, uh, I think the house went up uh, by about uh, five grand from the previous week. So then, Mark James, uh, my, you know, is a, is a good friend of mine, mutual friend of, of, with Jim Cornette, publishes a book. Uh, he does some research on, uh, on the Tennessee Athletic Commission. Uh, does a, it's very w- well researched. He pours through all these records, and he finds uh, the commission's report for that evening. And there is no Aaron Rodriguez listed. There is, however, Francisco Flores, who was wrestling out the, not the original legendary Francisco Flores, but another Francisco Flores, to even make this more confusing. <laughs> He's on that list. And so I guess, you know, Mark decides that, well, it must have been a ringer. That explains everything. That explains why it wasn't advertised. That explains why he did such a convincing job and just sold his ass off. But he has a reputation for being an uncooperative ass everywhere else that he's worked. Why would he do this for Jerry Jarrett? Well, that seemed to clear it up. But I have been a, doing a little more. I'm not going to let this go, in other words. And I, and I know we have, we, have, we have Jim Cornette waiting on the line. I just want to know, if do you have anything to say for yourself right now? <laughs> Me? <laughs> I'm loving this so far. You have, to, you, have, you have tarnished a childhood memory of mine. Oh, my God. You're, you're going to need therapy for years and years to come about. And look at what's already become of you. Uh, no, no, you've done a good recap so far. So, you know, what new research have you uncovered? I'm willing to look at this with an open mind before I tear apart your hopes and dreams and, and sup on your tears. Well, t- well, t- t- take it easy on me, Jim, please. But I, I do offer me to submit Exhibit A. Uh, please do. But what, now, wait a minute. <laughs> that would you- is that what you call the little Bowden? Well, you know, look, hey, as far as the way I'm looking at this, this great Mill Mascaris Monday Night Wrestling mystery is I'm Sherlock Holmes and you're Inspector Clouseau. I'm doing some real digging here. And I pulled out, ironically enough, I used Mark James' own record book. Now, I'm, I'm going to give Mark a little plug here. It's Memphis Wrestling History, Tennessee Record Book, 1973 to 1979 that he did with Tim Dills. It's a great book. I, I reference it often. And yes, I was yes. looking at uh, the date in question, sir. 
January 29, 1979. Do we not agree that that is the date that Bill Masker supposedly appeared in Memphis as the partner of Austin Idol? I've, I believe that's that's the one that's been under discussion. Brian, would you concur with that? I would concur with that. You you would concur with that. There, yes, we we concur with that. Would you also concur, Mister Cornett, that it would be impossible for a man to appear in two places at once? Uh, yes, it, except if he was working for Nick Goulas, in which case it often happened two and three times a night. <laughs> right. Okay. Well. The only problem with that theory <laughs> about Francisco Flores appearing under a hood as Mill Masker says a ringer, like Jerry Jarrett would ever do sleight of mask. <laughs> you heard it from sleight of hand. Like he would ever do sleight of hand for such an internationally renowned superstar as Mill Masker says. First of all, that's outrageous that you, that you would even insinuate that. But it could not have been Francisco Flores because you see, he was working that night, according to Mark James' very own record book, in Birmingham, Alabama, teaming with your own man, Bobby Eaton of the Midnight Express against the Freebirds, Terry Gordy and Michael Hayes. So how could he now, do that? Now, how could he what, do now, that? Was, 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 that the news, that, was that taken from the newspaper ad advertising the match or from results after the match was over with? Now, this is from Mark James' book, so it must no, be. No, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not asking the, the source of the author. I'm saying, was that the <laughs> newspaper ad that was listed as what the matches were supposed to be, or was that the report of afterward of what the matches were indeed in actuality? Well, I don't know. Because according to yeah, the, well, you don't well, know. No, no, well. <laughs> You, you just don't know. The point is, here, here, let me present for you an alternate reality, my son, as you grasp on this hopeless uh, uh, clinging to your childhood fantasy. <laughs> the reason why, when I first saw the newspaper ad, uh, it was just a few weeks after the, the incident, the, the card had happened. And I was dumbstruck because there was no mention of Mill Mascaris on the Louisville program or, or they just certainly didn't make any of the other towns on the, uh, in the territory. And so naturally I, uh, I said, this is odd. And then of course, later on when it came out that, that yes, it was Mill Mascaris did a stretcher job. I was like, okay, that this could not be Mill Mascaris. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's just the, the opinion that I had framed in my mind until you came in that fateful day, my son. <laughs> It started giving me all these details at which then I could confirm for you once and for all. No, you, you have been hornswoggled. You have been, you have been gobsmacked my son, because uh, no, there's no way that was Mil Mascaris. And I'll tell you what really happened. What really happened was you see, oh, it was, advertised. I'm looking forward to this. Go ahead. It was advertised as a stretcher match. See, even Harley Quinn is coming over here now because she wants to hear me smarten up this mark. <laughs> it was advertised as a stretcher match. <laughs> In the uh, in the newspaper as Jerry Lawler versus Austin Idol, because they never smartened the commercial appeal up as to what the real Monday night card would be when they did angles on Saturday morning TV where they would change the card because Correct. the deadline for the ads was on Friday. Correct. So they had Jackie Fargo coming into town <laughs> and they were able to get Fargo who's going to jump that house. But they say, wait a minute. Who's going to be the uh, the partner for Austin Idol then? We don't have any other big name that we can get on this short notice. Toto. And then somebody. Toto. And then somebody, <laughs> somebody said, wait a minute. Why don't we just make it a guy under a mask? Because don't you remember Exhibit A? 
April 24th, 1977, when the executioners, the WWF tag team champions who took on Ron and Robert Fuller turned out to be two guys that were the executioners from Knoxville and not Chuck the Monster O'Connor and Killer Kowalski. <laughs> uh, but do you not remember, sir, when Mr. Wrestling Tim Woods was indeed Dick Steinborn, a capable competitor, but still not the original article? And basically they said, we'll make it some mass guy. Well, who's the biggest name massacre? Well, let's make it Mil Mascaris because nobody's ever fucking seen him. And the reason why I said Pepe Lopez, because it was anybody of, of, that could pass as an Hispanic, up to and possibly including Eddie Sullivan, if he was around the territory oh, come at the time. Mil Mascaris, his, his, his physique is so unique oh. it, with his stomach holding, you know, held in no. and, his, and that V shape that he's got. I mean, nobody, nobody else looks like that. That's the thing. Any anybody that could pass for Hispanic that had, that had a big chest, the people in Memphis would, oh, it's Bill Mascaris, because why would they think any different in those days? So, and I think that then it, it is it is all these years, because you've attached such importance to this otherwise forgotten match, <laughs> that all these years, Scott Bowden, because of your childhood memory, all these years, you've tried to validate that, and, and Jerry Jarrett, being the kind and compassionate man that he is, did not want to cause you emotional distress and mental disturbance and turmoil and PTSD and things that would require you, such as I'm now imparting to you now, require you to have therapy. But stone-cold fact of the matter is he just made that story up to you about flying out to fucking Mexico with fucking Salvador Luteroth and having dinner and made up a story like when he convinced Plowboy Frazier that Jerry Lawler had deceived him about the quality of the diamond rings that he had given him. Jerry Jarrett wove a story that deceived a simple mind like yours and convinced you that your childhood memory was true so he wouldn't hurt your feelings because he's that nice. But I mean, he is a a nice, kind, generous man. After all, he did give a mark like you your big break in the business. I don't Um, have any (laughs) Scott Bowden people. And there's no that was Mil Mascaris. Well, and we've pretty proven that was not bad. They, he would have had to have flown so, from Mexico, Memphis, under cover of darkness, and worked under an assumed name without a Tennessee Athletic Commission license. Why? Okay, what, and, right, right, right. That's a good point that you bring up. That's a good point that you bring up because a lot of this evidence is centered around the fact that he's not listed on the Tennessee Athletic Commission. Well, you know, you have to pay for that license, and so why do that? If Rodriguez is only going to be in for one night. Oh, good Lord. He's brought Mil Moscaris in from Mexico. He's worried about a life. At the time, the licenses were 5 or $10. Yes. I don't think yes. that's anybody's living. And we know how that Jerry Jarrett sometimes cut corners. Oh, good Lord. <laughs> Bras, you're the, you're falling off the cliff, Bowden. But what you you've know, got what, what what you're doing? You're you talk about a fantasy. You talk about a wait a minute, wait a minute now. You talk about a fantasy world. You're you're talking about a, a real life situation here, and then mixing it with a wrestling angle, like Plowboy F- Frazier being deceived. This is this is. <laughs> let me introduce you to reality, Jim Cornette. Let me introduce you. This is the equivalent. See, right now you've got me on the ropes. You're pounding away. You're about to put me away. The referee is pushing you back. And I'm taking this moment right now to turn my back and pull the proverbial chain, the gimmick out of my trunks, because I would like uh, for you to hear from the man himself. You know, why go to a book and, and, and just see something printed there? You're right. I mean, it means very little what's printed on, on, on paper. Let's go to Jerry Jarrett himself. 
And uh, I have a little something for you. I'm pulling, I'm pulling the train out right now. Brian, can you run that clip, please? Well, I am here with the legendary promoter himself, Jerry Jarrett, because frankly, Cornette, you and I could discuss the Mill Mascaris Monday Night Wrestling Mystery till the cows come home, and it still wouldn't settle anything. Mark James could write all the books in the world, and it still wouldn't prove anything until you go to the man. And that's why I reached out to Jerry Jarrett. Now, he's already explained a little bit of the story to me. He's a busy man. He doesn't have much time today, but he does have a message for you, Jim. Jerry? Mil Mascaris, the great Mexican superstar, was indeed in Memphis in the night in question, tagged with Austin Idol against Jerry Lawler and Jacob Argo. Uh, I was there, and while my memory is not as good as it used to be, I wouldn't forget Mil Mascaris. And really, Jerry, it's a simple explanation, which uh, the theory that it's certainly possible that uh, Flores, you just use his license. I mean, why get a new license for Aaron Rodriguez if he's only going to be in the territory for one night? Well, yeah, I mean, you know, I hate to admit it, but we did do some shortcuts when it proved necessary. No. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, well, uh, more than likely with Flores being in for just one night and one match, I did not see the you mean, sense, and the wrestlers had to pay for it in those days. You mean uh, in you, getting? You mean Rodriguez in for one night? Yeah, I'm sorry. Okay, I just want to clear that up because Cornetta Cornetta probably pick up on that. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, well, I'm sure we had Flores in too. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, he but was not he, as Mil Mascaris. Yeah, I believe he came in later as the Turk, didn't he? Or the Turk and El Toro. Was was he part of that tag team? You know, I don't recall. Okay. I think so. Okay. All right. Well, we, um, that's easy enough. That that part's easy enough to figure out. But I'll tell you what, Jerry, I appreciate you uh, kind of clearing that up a little bit for us. But we'll come back next week. And we'll say, we'll, we'll, you know, because you gave me the complete detailed story of how this appearance took place, why it wasn't advertised ahead of time. We talked about all of that earlier when we, you know, kind of off the record. But uh, we'll come back next week. We'll try to get Cornette if we haven't totally embarrassed him, if he's not too much of a coward to come back on this podcast and face the truth and face facts and face life in general, really. Then uh, we'll have a yeah. fun discussion. One thing I don't want to do is Mark James is a great guy. A great friend of mine, too. Taking Mark James's historical data is the equivalent to taking the people that um, said that Hillary Clinton was going to be Trump by 30 points. <laughs> uh, that's the equivalent. And, you know, Mark wasn't there. Yeah. And the posters didn't do an accurate count, or the Donald would not be our president. That's right. Um, but that's one thing that Jimmy and I are in common on. We both love the Donald. <laughs> well, and uh, yeah, well, uh, I don't know about that, but I will say that, uh, you know, that, that's the thing with like Mark, Mark James and I have talked about this before, and we're, and we're, and we're, we're buddies. I wrote the forward for his, for his first book. It's part of the fun of being, I don't know. So, you know, we like to think of ourselves as wrestling historians, uh, but we are. We're just big marks at heart, really. Uh, you know, I'm just, I'm a mark who just happened to get into the business. And I think Cornette, 
it probably feels the same way. But uh, you know, it, it's you know, writing about wrestling is so difficult because it was so everything was so closely guarded back in those days. Uh, it was like trying to do a, a story on the mafia or something, and so you're constantly unraveling this mystery. So I, I you know, Mark and I've been kind of like trading uh, jokes back and forth about the whole thing. But now he'll he'll take this in stride, I'm sure. But uh, maybe and maybe we'll even have him come on next week. Uh, we'll do a little uh, Memphis roundtable. Okay. Look forward to it. All right, Jerry. Thank you. Well, what do you have to say for yourself? Are you still there, Cornette? <laughs> or wait, or who still was? Brian said he was stopping the tape. Are we on goddamn? <laughs> Wait a minute. This is the first. I'm glad I'm recording because this is the first. Jim Cornette is at a loss for words, ladies and gentlemen. But no, I, I didn't want to not use my words when Brian said I'm stopping the tape. I didn't want to use my fucking words. Uh, are we recording now? <laughs> yes, use your words. <laughs> why, well, why don't you just ask me again what I think of whatever the fuck it was I <laughs> I, I'm, I, I, yeah, go ahead. Well, the way you, the, the way you broke it down, and you were you were a photographer uh, back then. Uh, I'm assuming that you were backstage at the Mid South Coliseum on January 29, 1979, since you know exactly how this all came about. No, 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 I wasn't. Oh, I just, oh. I, I just, I just actually know what would happen in an alternate universe, not one where Jerry Jarrett is a saint. He is so compassionate. He is such a kind human being that he knows what irreparable emotional damage beyond repair. You would be driven off the edge into a, into a rubber room at the puzzle factory, uh, literally off your rocker by the knowledge that your most treasured childhood dream was all a lie. And he stands by this, despite the fact that we all know that there's no way that Jerry Jarrett, even as a businessman, <laughs> Spent the money that it would take to get Mel Moskers to Memphis, even on the airplane, even if he worked for free, which he never did in his history, but he certainly didn't pay to go work for people. Uh, it, it, they got Fargo and they wanted to false book, which they did probably 10 times a year, a card in the paper so that the people would see it so they could change the match on TV on Saturday morning and it would be look real. They did that about 10 times a year, and I loved it when they did that. But it did lead to con sometimes confusing newspaper ads. Uh, they knew they were going to get Fargo, who would jump the house. As I said, somebody said, hey, let's give him a partner under a mask, a big star. Somebody with a big chest uh, 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 filled the part out. Mil Moskras didn't do a stretcher job for anybody in his life. Uh, afterwards, uh, now, Jerry, wait, now, Jerry, Jerry, afterwards, Jerry Jarrett has probably forgotten about this part of history until you reminded him and, and reminded him how great it was. Whereupon then he didn't want to, he didn't want to ruin your life, son. But the fact of the matter is the, the athletic commission report was basically the reporter's statement to the athletic commission, which is a division of the Tennessee state government, which means that it is Jerry Jarrett's affidavit to the state of Tennessee that Francisco Flores worked that event. So I take none other than Jerry Jarrett's written statement also to heart when I tell you this and pop your bubble, son, because it didn't happen. And, uh, and, and, and also, and, and has anybody proven where did Mill Moscaris? He wasn't even anywhere in the Tennessee or in the Southeast area. No, no, no. During those, we, he was wrestling in Texas right. and but in he, Mexico. He, but he, right, time. right, right. And we have researched that, Jim. See, you're, you're just spouting but all the information. Like you're cut, you're cutting a promo. Hang on a second. You're cutting a promo like, like you normally do. Moon, 
And the man in the moon that's made out of green cheese was on the flight next to him, sitting, and they were having a chat with Amelia Earhart. <laughs> he told me uh, he told me all about the flight to to, uh, to Acapulco with his wife and the place they uh, the mansion that they stay at Salvador Luteros overlooking Acapulco Bay. He remembered the <laughs> he, re he remembered the name of the driver who picked him up from the airport. See, I come, I come, I come that still doesn't put Mil Moscaris in, in fucking Memphis. It's Coliseum on Monday night, January, whatever the fuck. January 29th, 1979, sir. Thank you. Do you even know what date we're talking about, sir? Oh, good Lord. I have no idea why I'm talking on this program right now. You, you're delusional, my sir. Brian, try to talk some sense into him. Brian, I've given up after week one. Brian, oh. can you explain? You did a little research on your own. Uh, Bill Maskers, you're right. He was working Texas quite a bit. Did we find any results at all on that Monday night? We do not have anything from that specific night, but he was actively working in Houston, Texas for Paul Bosch. Who never, who never ran on, on Monday night. But uh, do we have the complete list of all... Lucha Libre events that occurred in the country of Mexico for that that particular day. Is there some book we can study that and, and see that? There is not a single day that we have the complete results of what happened in Mexico. Well, the, but, but, but Mil Masters wrestled in Mexico for 40 years and never wrestled in Memphis, Tennessee once in his fucking life. So well, where do you likely, more likely would Mil Masters have been? Well, we know well, Mexico we, or Memphis, Tennessee. We do know where Francisco Flores was. He was uh, at Boutwell Auditorium. In Birmingham that night, teaming with uh, Bobby. So, 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 so we, we, so we might suspect. And once again, I'm not even sold on the idea that it had to be Francisco Flores. Oh, I wait a minute! Wait a minute now. Well, who I think I think it. I think it could. They could have substituted Francisco Flores in Birmingham, and sent him to be the Mil Moscaris at the last minute. If we're once again, if I had the information, whether we're going off the newspaper ad or the results afterwards, and even then. If the results afterwards were a description of the match, which is sometimes done in the Goulas territory, that would be helpful versus just line results, which may have been called in by the local promoter and uh, may or may not have uh, been accurate to begin with. And then we would need eyewitness testimony from somebody that was in Birmingham. We'd also need who was in Memphis that night besides you, my I was, son. I was there. Who took a picture? <laughs> who took a picture of Mil Moscaris in that ring? Well, we, all right. Now, that, that they, now, that they can second. look back on. Hang on a second. Now, Mark James even agrees. Now, they didn't show the finish because Jerry t explained to me he has had such great respect for Mil coming in and doing such a clean stretcher job for Jerry yeah. Fargo yeah, that he yeah. agreed not to show it on Memphis TV. However, the clip did air on Tuesday afternoon. Jack Eaton, when he was doing the wrestling results to, you know, pop, you know, pop the news. Yeah. Trades, he showed a clip from the match and it was Mil Mascaris. You know, I was in the cheap. It was a guy in the Mil Mascaris mask. That they, yes, that, I'll that, agree that, with you that, there. That, 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 that you're saying on Friday night, they just said, hey, let's just make it Mil Mascaris. So they went out and they, they bought a Mil Mascaris outfit. <laughs> Well, no, this 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 may very well have been. Have we, Brian? By the way, have we spoken to Austin Idol about this? Where does Austin Idol stand on this? Austin Idol has stated that it was in fact Mil Moscaris, <laughs> and then he went into detail about how he didn't like Mil Moscaris, and the worst match he ever had in his career was in Japan against Mil Moscaris. Let's now go to a popular segment here on the show: Austin Idol, true or false? And right. this time we're going to talk about a match you were involved in. 
that a lot of people have questioned throughout the years. A lot of people have wondered what was really going on. Was it really the guy? And uh, let me give a little bit of background for the people at home. You, of course, had within a year worked in Dallas. You had a run in Portland that I don't believe was very very good for you. You didn't really enjoy it up there. You worked in Detroit, and eventually you were back in Tampa. You were working out. You're running to Rocky Johnson, and and he recommends you go to Memphis. He says you can make money there despite all the experiences you had with Nicholas. You can make money in Memphis. And that you do. You get there, I believe, the end of 78, December of 78, and within a couple of weeks, you win the Southern title. And you and Jerry Lawler are involved in this feud. And it's a very interesting match that takes place. January 29th, 1979, the Mid-South Coliseum in Memphis. It's Austin Idol and Mil Moscaris against Jerry Lawler and Jackie Fargo. Now, this is one of the very few appearances of Mil Moscaris as a heel anywhere. I mean, he's a babyface everywhere he goes. He's a babyface in the magazines, a babyface everywhere he wrestles. <laughs> this is his only, his lone <laughs> appearance in Memphis, and he loses a stretcher match. So this man notorious <laughs> for not selling anything from anyone gets stretchered out. A lot of people throughout the years have questioned whether it was actually Mil Moscaris or in typical Memphis wrestling style, just <laughs> some guy with a mask that they said, hey, it's Mil Moscaris, and it really wasn't. So Austin Idol, true or false, did you team up with Mil Moscaris on January 29th, 1979? Yeah, I, I, I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure it was Mil. I mean, the guy never, or I would say rarely, I guess, took his mask off, but uh I mean, I think the 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 tell the the tell all would be the body. I mean, if you you, you know you, he had a very distinct body, so if that body was anywhere near there or close enough to it, then that was Mill. And I do believe it was Mill Masters. Yeah, I sure do. But I understand what you're saying. In Memphis, you you would never know. It could be the guy who's uh, working downtown at the right. uh, the Jiffy Lube. You know, <laughs> they had assassins. They had all sorts of guys. You know, Pat uh, Hutchinson could get a mask and become anyone. <laughs> within a minute yeah. oh yeah i mean there was no limit i mean there's absolutely no limit but yeah I, I i'm pretty sure that was mill yeah what makes people suspect about this is a he did the job and did a stretcher job b he was a heel he was never a heel and then c of all the places to show up at for one match memphis tennessee with a very small Hispanic population, I would gather, going to the Mid-South Coliseum every Monday night. So a lot of people have always thought this was a rather weird deal. But he had all that magazine coverage, though, see? So he was a star, even though he wasn't, you know, really exposed there in the area. But, you know, the magazines were so big back then. That's where you saw who was who in the magazines. So uh, I would say that uh, probably Jerry Jarrett really did a schmooze job on Mill. To, to get him to do that, yeah. And he probably figured, hey, I'm never going to be back, and uh, they're paying me good. I bet you that I'll, I'll guarantee Austin Idol had a Mil Moscaris fucking, then <laughs> now that I know that, I guarantee you Austin Idol had a Mil Moscaris fucking mask from when he was in Japan having a rotten match with Mil Moscaris. No, no the, that match happened after. 
Well, I guarantee he still hated the motherfucker. And he said, I got an idea. We can get Fargo. Let's dress up fucking. It couldn't have been Pepe Lopez because that was after the accident. So let's dress up somebody as Mil Moscaris and do, they beat that motherfucker and get into a stretcher job with him because fuck him. Now I know exactly what happened. So you're saying that. And so, oh, and so, and so, so this bout between Idol and Mascaris takes place in 1980. Idol is so livid about how the match goes that he time travels back to 1979. I'm, 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 say, I'm saying it it wasn't the first time that fucking oh. Idol had probably met or dealt with Mil Mascaris and probably had carried over into the rotten match they fucking had. Because, yeah, because Idol toured Japan so often. <laughs> oh, but he did spend a lot of time in Houston there, uh, pal. So before well. you fucking... Before you run that dick liquor, make sure you know whose balls are in your mouth. Oh, uh, he spent a lot of time in Houston working for Paul Bosch and, and for all over Texas, for that matter, when he was in Texas out of Dallas for Fritz. So I'm sure their paths crossed. <laughs> but the point is, that makes a whole lot more sense for a one week angle, especially involved why would why would they bring in mil moscaris do a stretcher job for jaggy fargo when they were bringing jaggy fargo in as a special attraction anyway well here's the thing and, here's the thing but here's, here's the is too nice man jerry jarrett's too nice man sunshine it, well you consider this point now if the plan all along is to do a hoax right that they're going to bring in a ringer why not you would ever you would have plenty of time then to advertise that no, because it didn't make it a shit because nobody would have paid to see Mil Moscaris in Memphis, Tennessee in 1979 to begin with. He was an unknown quantity except for nerds like you that, that yes. read the magazine. <laughs> and they were already going to the matches anyway, I guarantee you. Well, it popped, they the, were it popped, the, it, it popped the house. No, no, no. Granted, Fargo had a lot to do no, with that. Fargo, Fargo, of course, you idiot. Let but, me explain booking 101 to you. I can't believe it. Worked this closely in the Memphis territory, and you still ain't figured this out. They get they get a chance to fucking juice the deal up because Idol and Lawler are working singles matches a lot in that time period, so they're going to juice the deal up. They get a chance to bring Fargo in, so they false book another match between Lawler and Idol on purpose. So that, at least for the newspaper ad, so that they can do a shocking angle or a violent angle or whatever on television. And then they've already made the deal with Fargo, but they call Fargo on the phone or Lawler says, I'm bringing Fargo or whatever. And goddamn it, wish we still had the tape because then that would be able to tell us exclusively at a picture or a tape would be able to tell us, but none of those seem to exist. Uh, but th that's when fucking idol would say, well, I've got my goddamn partner, Mil Mazgras, who I hate. And I barely want to bury in a town that he'll never work ever, ever. And it's a big name, but nobody gives a fuck about Mil Mazgras in Memphis, but it's somebody they're going to beat. And they've shot this angle and Fargo comes back and jumps the house. I'm surprised only five grand, honestly, because usually, uh, Jackie was worth more, but probably because nobody give a fuck about Mil Mazgras. Well, well, but you've but that's always been like a point. Like if you're bringing in Mil Moscas, why wouldn't you advertise it? And that's because that's because that's that you, shit. <laughs> <laughs> it was a big name that could go out on a stretcher because they had heat with somebody in a fucking match, or they figured he'll never know to begin with. <laughs> I'm just trying to smarten you up to the facts, son. What facts? You're, you're all you give me is theories. I give you results that put Flores in Alabama, not Memphis, on that night. I talked to Jerry Lord. Jarrett, who was backstage. 
it's Pablo Crenshaw. I don't fucking know, but it wasn't, it wasn't Aaron goddamn Rodriguez, Bill Moscaris, because he was off someplace making a big fucking payday or sitting in his spacious uh, home at that point in time. Okay, all right. You know what? I, I, sure. I, I'm going to let Brian last. Brian? Brian, please we, help me help we, here. We have, we have, we have both. Off the ledge. Either that or shove him. We have both presented evidence. I think I've presented facts while Mr. Cornette has just presented fantasies and really uh, immature uh, juvenile insults. Uh, I, they, they were, they were certainly might've been amateur, but they were certainly not juvenile. <laughs> Brian, uh, what are your thoughts on, on this case? As the resident expert in house of juvenile activities, I will state that um, I think it's a very interesting back and forth here. Now, the main point that I agree with Mr. Cornett on is we don't know. We simply don't know. Now, there are different people with different points of view. Of course, the people directly involved are saying one thing and the people on the periphery who weren't there but know a little bit about the history of things, like Mr. Cornett was saying. Well, what is like, has Law ever chimed in on this? Has, has the king ever fucking yeah, chipped yeah, this? Yeah, yeah. I, I, as a matter of fact, ironically enough, I was going to Louisville. It was my first car ride with the king going to Louisville, and I thought, man, this is great because I get to ask him all the questions you get, I ever wanted you to. Get to. You get to show, what he, show him what a mark yeah, you are. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and I asked, him about, I asked him about this match, and he goes, I don't remember. Man. I don't. I don't remember that at all. And I said, "Come on, I explained the whole deal." He goes, "Huh? I don't remember." And then he fell asleep for three hours. <laughs> I think, hey, okay, Judge Last, I rest my case. Yes, but Lawler has the worst memory. He even. I mean, that's why it's like people ask me, like, "Gosh, don't you want to have Lawler on the show?" And I'm like, "I do," but in a, in a way, it's like he'll be the worst guest because he he doesn't. I- I guarantee you this is this is an Austin Idol perpetration, and Jerry, Jerry Jarrett is 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 either actually doesn't remember it himself, or more more likely is trying to be compassionate to you and your childhood memories. You are a you are a fool, sir. I your mother smells like elderberries, and your father uh, sells secrets to the Nazis. I wish you uh, nothing but crotch rot, sir. Well, uh, do you accept the challenge to come back next week? Uh, do, do, what, do, what are we going to argue about next week that you won't listen to me about? We're going to have Jerry Jarrett on, and he'll explain it to you. He, he's going to break it down for you so you understand, because you talk like no, you were about, you, you, you talk, but see, But see, the fact is, in 1979, you were not allowed in the dressing room. Anyway, even if you were in Memphis, which you were not, sir, you were in Louisville. God knows where you were or what you were doing, but... You were not there, Jerry Jarrett. We've heard from we've heard from Jerry Jarrett. We've heard from the tag team partner of Mill Maskers that night, Austin Idol. So, all right, yeah. I, I, tell you, I will come back. I will be on if we can also book Mill Maskers on the same program. <laughs> oh, well, I, I'm glad to be on with with Maskers. We can't guarantee that, but we have Francisco Flores or a version of Francisco Flores. If we could get the if, who was actually El Toro, also, but his partner, the Turk, was a a short, much squatter man who actually they worked uh, in the Tennessee territory. Um, oh my God, I'm trying to think how far ago uh, uh, or a longer he he did rather as uh, as one of the uh, Jean Pierre and Pierre Bonnet boys. Did he not? Yeah, I believe uh, but, so. You know what? I, I'm going to send a I'm going to send a wire to to the to the family of Salvador Luteroff. 
Oh, see, to see if they can clear this up. Just give it and, and, and maybe yeah. Diamante Negro, El Diamante Negro, the Black see. Diamond, uh, or as he's known, the Big House, Casa Grande. Maybe he can clear some of this up. You need to. You need to seriously enter some kind of inpatient therapy where they keep you out of public for a long period of time and 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 prevent you from mixing with people until somehow your sanity is restored to you. Oh, that's rich coming from you. You're the, you're a deranged cult leader who has these followers, your minions, who just believe everything you say, sir. I present facts, you present insults, I rest my case. Well, actually, I, I present enter- entertainment, but we, I don't want to go over your head with that one. But, but nevertheless, all right. Scott, I've done my best. Brian, I've done my best. Yeah, how does this segment end? I don't, but there is no end, apparently, with, with Bowden. He's going to cling to this like a trumper. Oh, oh to, hey, hey. Down no. to the very last bit. No, sir, that, that was uncalled for. <laughs> but, 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 okay, I tell you what, I, I will not admit that it was Mil Moscaris, but I, I do admit that it may have been uh, Dos Caras. <laughs> so, okay, so now that's the theory. It was his, it was his brother. <laughs> and a pronunciation of Dos Caras we have never heard before. <laughs> well, I don't speak to such good Spanish from up here in, in I thought it was Dos Caras. Well, and for years I always said it as Dos, I, I always said it as Mil Mascaras. Dos Carreras, whoever the fuck. It, it wasn't Gory Guerrero, though. I, it I, wasn't because the match would have been better. Jerry Jarrett now pronounced uh, Mil Mas- Well, I, I say Mil Mascaras now because that's the way I've heard it pronounced, uh, I think, on some of the Houston tapes. But for years, I used to say Mil Mascaras. Well, besides that, who who in Houston? Who knew? It, it depended if it was Peter Burkholz or Paul Bosch. They might pronounce it one way. It depends on who was doing it or if it was Jim Ross. Who, who alternated, as did Watts, for years between Dugan and Duggan. So we won't go into that. What was the story on that? It was almost like a inside. I don't know. It was the way Watts said it, and it was goddamn infectious. Where you almost thought that for a while there, you thought that's the way it was supposed to be, and I don't know. I it had already been established before I got there. Oh, too funny because they're, they're just going back and forth, and and one one the one guy's going. Well, don't going. try to fucking buddy up to me now when oh. I'm, I'm just poo-pooing you to begin with. For one thing, you fucking numb nuts. I'm just telling you, you can believe what you want to believe. I, you know, if 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 you if you find happiness in this one childhood memory of seeing an overrated fucking uh, Mexican lucha legend ten years past his prime or whatever, then. Uh, then, then go ahead and and take that approach to it. Aren't but you, I'm are you aren't you the same one who booked this washed up guy ten years later in Houston for Clash of the Champions? No, I did Barnett book. <laughs> I just conned him into doing the spot with Cactus to get Cactus over. Okay. Yeah. Oh, all right. There you have. And you didn't. Well, ask, on that note, you didn't I ask. Him, you, didn't, you, didn't, you didn't ask him if he was in Memphis then. Did it, now when when he when he was there that night. Did he deny being in Memphis on January 29, 1979? The subject did not come up <laughs> because find, when we were trying, when we were trying, when we were trying to keep him from beating Cactus Jack in less than like four minutes, it didn't come up to ask him if he'd done a stretcher job for Fargo and Lawler in the Coliseum uh, 11 years before that. I, I can't imagine why it wouldn't have come up, but all right, if that's your story. Uh, Bowden, I'm sorry. You got you got no, you you got no legs to stand on. 
and right there coming, coming, is the perfect time. Coming, coming from a man with no legs at this point, because I've cut you underneath with. Facts. Oh, if I if I were you, if I were you, I'd I'd work on it and do a fucking uh, <laughs> wild line later on where you got a better comeback than that. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think that about wraps this segment up. My guest, uh, Mr. Cornette, always a pleasure, sir. Good to see you. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. Well, Brian, I think we probably raised more questions than we answered here today on Kentucky Fried Wrestling's uh, inaugural edition of Unsolved Memphis Mysteries. But hopefully uh, we will be ready to come back with this next week with uh, some more new evidence. I uh, just thought of a couple of things that Jim sparked my memory about that I want to check out and uh, and perhaps confront him with down the road. And hopefully uh, Jerry Jarrett will come back on really soon to clarify some of the stuff that we do find along the way. back on Kentucky Fried Wrestling, uh, and it is my distinct honor to call to the witness stand once again as we attempt to unravel this unsolved mystery of Memphis, the great Mill Mascaris Monday Night Mystery, if you will. I'm talking about the legendary promoter himself, Jerry Jarrett. Welcome back, Jerry. Thank you, Scott. Glad to be back. Okay. Um, and <laughs> as you know, last week uh, we had uh, Mr. James E. Cornett on the witness stand. And uh, to say he was a hostile witness, uh, would that would be an understatement. Um, despite your convincing testimony, he remains steadfast in his belief that uh, it was a ringer on that night. January 29th, 1979. Mill Mascaris, uh, you and I both know that that was indeed the real deal, who was teaming with Austin Idol in a stretcher match against Jackie Fargo and Jerry Lawler. I, and Jerry, I, I think the biggest point that uh, Cornette raises is the fact that not, not that Aaron Rodriguez uh, appeared in Memphis, uh, but the fact that he was so cooperative and willing to do the stretcher job when he has a sort of a reputation for being a bit of a prima donna and not really wanting to sell that much. I, I think that's what's what Jim is having a hard time wrapping his head around. Can you explain, first of all, for the people who don't know, uh, can you explain exactly how this booking came about uh, and your relationship with uh, Salvador Luteroth, the, uh, the legendary uh, Mexican promoter who helped arrange it? Uh, yes, Salvador and I got to be buddies at a National Wrestling Alliance convention in New Orleans. And he, his wife and my wife and the two of us had dinner on a, a couple of occasions, or it may have been a lunch and a dinner. But anyway, we, uh, we got to know each other and, uh, and I found him to be a charming, nice guy. And he extended an invitation. He, Salvador promoted boxing and wrestling. And uh, during our conversations, he knew that I was a fight fan, or he found out that I was a fight fan. So anyway, he invited us to stay at his villa in Acapulco. So 
My wife and I flew down. He was very gracious and uh, had us a driver and just really the royal treatment the whole time. I believe you mentioned that there's also a, there's also a story about the driver. Can 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 you share that with the folks? Yeah, well? yeah. I I looked out of the window, and the, his place had a wall around it, <laughs> and the car sat inside the wall. And uh, I looked out, and uh, the driver was sitting there, uh, and it was like two or three o'clock in the morning. So I put on my clothes and I went down and I said, you don't have to stay here all night. Uh, we're not going to go anywhere until breakfast. And uh, he said, oh, no, Mr. Luderoff told me to stay the entire time and let, in case you wanted to, you know, go out and needed a car. So, um, you know, I was up. And I sat there and I talked with him and I said, have you been driving for Mr. Luderoff long? And he said, oh, no, this is the first time. I said, uh, what, what do you, how often do you work? He said, oh, I'm, I'm the manager at El Presidente Hotel here in Acapulco. And that's one of the nicer hotels in Acapulco. So Salvador, you know, being so gracious, didn't want to risk, uh, I guess, just having a regular driver. <laughs> so <laughs> he had the guy that was the manager of the hotel Wow, sit there. And so that's the background of our relationship. And Salvador, I didn't call from Mil Mascara. Salvador called me and said he'll be here. And I literally changed the card to put him in. Okay. And so that your fans can follow the story a little bit more, Salvador Luderoff was a huge star in Mexico, but he didn't really mean anything in Memphis. The Memphis fans were not aware of his background. So, you know, I just I did some promotion to say that this is a big star of wrestling and and movies. Uh, Mil Mascaris was in some movies. Right. In Mexico. Yeah. And uh, so anyway, I changed uh, the program and added it changed the single match and added him in to the tag match and made it a stretcher match. Okay. And when we got there, Mil Mascaris asked me, what are you going to do? And I said, well, we're, uh, you know, we got to put somebody on the stretcher and we'll put idle. And he said, well, I, you know, I won't be back and I'm just passing through. Uh, I'll be glad to do it. And I said, okay. <laughs> I mean, it was very casual, nonchalant. 
it, you know, it really wasn't a big deal. Yeah. But the the fans that are historians, uh, like yourself, feel like it was a big deal. And I'm not good at picturing time, so I don't know Jimmy's status or how long he'd been in Memphis at that time or well yeah uh he his first uh assignment uh shooting the matches at the Mid-South Coliseum was in 1977 and you know he remembers that vividly because I I explained last week that like if you lived in New York uh it it going to the it's like going to the Yankee Stadium for the first time you know if you grew up in Memphis going to the matches at the Mid-South Coliseum it had that special aura and you know just like he remembers 1977 vividly your first card after you broke away from Goulas uh, at the Coliseum with Rocky Johnson and Harley Race working on top you know I vividly re- now I was young grant <laughs> granted I was eight years old uh, or about to turn it I was seven and three quarters um, but I, I just I, I have vivid memories uh, of that evening and not only that but uh, the next day uh, in his Tuesday afternoon sports break, Jack Eaton uh, showed the finish up to the match. And you, you and I have talked about this. You, you didn't show it on Memphis TV because you had too much respect uh, for Mill. And, you know, the fact that he was so gracious and willing to do the stretcher job, uh, you didn't show it. Uh, so that's why it never aired on, on Memphis TV. Yeah. And now tell me again so that I'll get... The, my date straight in my mind. Okay. When did this match take place? <clears throat> this was January. <laughs> it's so funny how I, I have this burned into my brain. Uh, <laughs> January 29th, 1979. And the, the ironic part about this, Jerry, is that, uh, you know, it, it, it came in. It, I, had, I had written about this match before only because uh, it, it, it was unique in that, you know, Mill Mascaris never appeared in the territory again. He he was merely passing through, um, and the fact that he did he was the one who took the ride on the stretcher. Uh, you know, he has a reputation for being not so cooperative and not selling and and all of this kind of stuff. Um, after hearing your convincing account of it, I just assume that hell, you know, maybe he enjoyed playing heel for once. You know, the guy was always booked as a babyface. He knew that, you know, he wasn't going to be back. He knew it wasn't going to hurt him. And, you know, maybe he just looked at this as has a, a, an experience and had no problem making the local guys look good. Uh, and he certainly did. Well, I'm, and I'm sure that a factor of it was that Salvador Luderoff, his boss, said, you don't disrespect Jerry Jared, he's a personal friend of mine. Mm. And what this would have meant was, you know, if they tell you to jump through your butt, jump. <laughs> right. And and I mean, you know, it's that's the way it was back in those days. Mm-hmm. There was, uh, you know, if I sent somebody down to Eddie Graham and Eddie called and was unhappy about him, I never booked him again the rest of my life yeah. and they knew that mm-hmm. so uh so jimmy had been around a couple of years 
Yeah, he had been around a couple of years. Um, he did not know uh, about this booking, so he was not there, unfortunately, to shoot photographs. And I have not, I don't know who else was taking pictures on the Memphis end at that time. There, there appear to be no photos. I'm hoping that a fan out there, we've actually, <laughs> I've actually like recruited fans who were there that night who may, uh, have some pictures, uh, to, to, to help me out with my, oh. with my case, but. Oh, so so let me get this straight. Jimmy was still taking pictures at that time. Yes, uh, but he wasn't. He wasn't managing. No, he was not managing yet. Uh, he, uh, I believe you. So, I believe he broke in around so, eighty-two. So he would have been persona non grata. <laughs> well, beyond. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I think you shocked him last week when you called him a mark. But uh... <laughs> <laughs> well, he most certainly was. Yes, <laughs> because when he showed up at Memphis and annoyed me in the coffee room, <laughs> coffee break room, and I said. Uh, you know, show up next week. I'm going to let you manage. You are? Why? I said, because if you get as much heat with the fans as you have me sitting in this room with your blabber mouth, you'll draw a million dollars. Uh, and I was, I was right. You know what? You know what? So, you know what's fun, You know what's funny about that, that, Jerry? Jerry Lawler told me the exact same thing <laughs> when I was a referee. <laughs> Yeah. Oh goodness! <laughs> but I think I find that humorous that Cornette would be an authority from his picture-taking position. <laughs> well, yeah, and um, I, you know, to to his to his point, um, I, I guess because he actually uh, when you know when he was booking for WCW later. Uh, he had to work with Mill on a finish for a Clash of Champions show that was being held in Houston. Uh, and he found him to live up to his reputation of being uncooperative. However, everyone forgets the fact, the the relationship, you know, that you had with Salvador Luteroff and that that was very that was likely very key to Mill being so cooperative, cooperative and Cornette and the people in WCW didn't have that same cooperation and didn't have that relationship with Salvador Luteroff. So I think that really clears up a lot. And I, I guess, you know, your story was, was largely accepted uh, because you've been forthright in admitting in the past that you used ringers. Uh, you've explained that, you know, D uh, Dickie Steinborn was Mr. Wrestling uh, that uh, I believe Jerry Stubbs uh, worked the territory has the mass superstar. And I think, I mean, and correct me if I'm wrong, and you may not even remember that that was in 1985. I think that was more to do to set him up with a feud with Dundee over the superstar name than it was necessarily to try to deceive the folks into thinking it was Bill Eady. Uh, yeah, that's, that's right. We, you know, back Eddie Marlin, my father-in-law, just got out of HCA, which is a place you go to from the hospital to kind of rehab. And he and I were reminiscing. And the very first time I met Eddie Marlin is 
I took him, he rode with me to Memphis to wrestle as the mummy. And the mummy was in a uh, loser gets unmasked uh, kind of situation. You know, that was the stipulation of the match. And so the way, and I was just refereeing at that time, and Roy Welch, the way they set the match up is uh, the scuffling hillbilly. The hillbillies broke up, and I think his name was Garrett. Anyway, he was, he had been wrestling as the mummy. Well, they couldn't very well unmask the mummy and have the fans go, oh, he's the good guy of the scuffling hillbilly. <laughs> so it was a two out of three fall match. And Billy Garrett wrestled the first two falls and hurt his back taking a bump over the top rope. So he limped to the dressing room severely. And then, of course, they wrapped Eddie up as a mummy, and he limped back to the ring for the third fall. And, uh, you know, naturally, the first time he got in the ring, he got pinned because of his hurt back. Right. And they unmasked Eddie Marlin as the mummy. <laughs> And, you know, we did whatever was necessary so that the people could suspend disbelief. Right. It wasn't that we were trying trickery. Uh, wrestling has lost something today. And that's just not my opinion. I talked to hundreds of people mm. because they're not allowed to suspend disbelief. Right. And and it wasn't that we protected the business. Common sense will tell you is you can't jump off of the top rope with a knee in somebody's throat and that guy get up and make come back and win the match. So it was really not that different in the moves we made. Uh I learned the hard way. Uh, in a little scuffle on the school grounds, that drop kicks really didn't work. <laughs> I think I had that same experience. I and because I was a wrestling fan, you know, Tex Riley had always knocked people's head off with his drop kicks. So I drop kicked this kid, and of course he just moved out of the way, and I fell on my back. Fortunately, there were some people to pull him off of me. He was <laughs> hammering me pretty good. Oh, did but you did you reach for a gimmick? Over, <laughs> oh, yeah, overall, <laughs> we made every effort to suspend disbelief. And so, yes, we would swap people around if we uh, if we had a good reason. Particularly with mass people, we would put somebody in it and substitute them. Right. But if you go back and study the card and the program that was going on at that time, it really didn't, 
it probably didn't draw a dime or it may have cost us money changing it from a single to a tag. Well, no, it, the, the house actually uh, was up uh, for, from the previous week. Uh, not, not a lot, but I think, I think it was, a uh, was a few grand. Uh, so yeah, it, I mean, so it definitely triggered something, but what's interesting is the fact that, uh, the rematch the following week, uh, you know, Mil Mascaris has this big international reputation, but as you said, locally, uh, unless you were a, a mark like myself who bought all the magazines, <laughs> uh, it probably didn't mean that much on, on a, on a grand scale, uh, just, just because of the fact that, that Mil had never appeared in the territory before. And this was really before people had cable TV. So they would have had no way to, to see this guy. Um, but the following week, Idol came back with Tojo as, as his partner and nearly drew the exact same house. <laughs> uh, because, yeah. because Tojo Tojo and Jackie Fargo were legends uh, in Memphis and Mil Mascaris was not. Right, right. Yeah. And I guess that's – Cornette raised that point. He, he was saying uh, – that this was one of those occasions where they needed to, they wanted to pop the house. And you guys always did a masterful job of not relying on Jackie too much. It was maybe done once a year where a baby face was in trouble. And Lawler, had, and, and I believe the stretcher job or the stretcher match came about because uh, Lawler had that bleeding ulcer, that sideline. He nearly, you know, he passed out, in, I believe, in an airport. Uh, had internal bleeding, and he went to the hospital. And, and the story that was told on television was that Idol had kicked him in the gut and and caused this uh, this internal bleeding and basically sent him to the hospital. So that, of course, set up a stretcher match uh, to, you know, yeah. obviously take the, you know, obviously the stretcher was going to lead to an ambulance that would take the person to the hospital. Um, and if you're in a match like that, you don't need a guy like Jack Briscoe as your partner. You need a street fighter like Jackie Fargo. So yeah. Cornette was claiming that they had the date on Fargo. They got him to come in, but who can we get to tag with Idol? Let's just put a guy under a mask. I guess he thought, I guess he's saying that you can go out and buy a Mil Mascaris outfit <laughs> off the rack somewhere. Um, <laughs> because, because Mark James, uh, you know, saw, he remembers seeing the clip uh, on Channel 5 News at 5.30 on Tuesday, which I was hoping somebody out there might at least have that on tape, but no one has come forward yet. And we all agree he is wearing the classic Mill Mascaris outfit, you know, and Mill had a Mill yeah. had a certain and not only did he have a certain look, he had a certain physique, you know, that that I mean and and Idol Austin Idol. I, I interviewed Austin Idol. He says it was the he said it was the real deal. And he actually wrestled the guy in Japan about nine months later. And he said, Yeah, well, same same guy. Yeah, I can't imagine that you would disparage the word of our picture taker, James E. Cornell, <laughs> when the guy that wrestled him and the promoter were in conflict with the picture taker's account. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, and it's like I just don't like what what would you have to gain by by making up such a story? And you know, one thing that uh that I want to ask you about. And and I broached the subject with you last week. Uh the fact that Francisco Flores uh his name appears on the Tennessee Athletic Commission report. Now, 
before I even spoke to you, we had been talking about the theory that, well, yeah, I mean, Mill's only going to be in, in the territory for one night. Why have him buy a license? Now, granted, I think well, a license was, what, 20 or 25 bucks back then? Yeah. Okay, but I think it was probably less about the money and more about just the hassle. You know, you got this international – do you really want to have him, you know, fill out this paperwork – 25 bucks, get a license when you already have Flores on file. I mean, it certainly seemed like a logical explanation to me. And when I suggested that to you, you said that was exactly right. Yeah, that, that was right. Yeah. We, uh, we often did that because I really did not approve of the athletic commission. I mean, you know, I couldn't come out publicly like Vince did in New mm. York. And say, you know, we're theater, we're not sport. And uh, that's how Vince beat the athletic commission in New York. Yeah. You know, he just said, "Hell with it, I'm theater." Right. That had to. That had to. So, that, that that had to be like a stiff kick to the gut, I would imagine, when when McMahon did that. Oh yeah, and we th- you know actually we thought it was terrible because. Again, the suspension of disbelief was our code, our motto. Uh, somebody started the term kayfabe, but uh, it was it was really so that the, for the fans' sake, mm-hmm. they didn't they didn't want us to expose the business. Uh, Terry, really quickly. Uh, it's, it's, it's interesting because we had sort of laid this topic to rest. Uh, you know, the, the book came out with Mark James where he has all this information and, uh, you know, and it, it actually, it, you know, it looked fairly convincing we just kind of floated the theory around, but then I, <laughs> and I was joking with Mark about this. I was looking through his, uh, one of his record books, uh, Tennessee record book, 1973 to 1979. And I, I looked at the date, January 29th, 1977, the night in question of the Mill Mascaris mystery. And Francisco Flores was booked that same night in Birmingham, Alabama, working for Goulas, second from the top, tagging with Bobby Eaton against the Freebirds. And the main event that night, you know, I, I know Nick Goulas every week was the greatest card ever signed. <laughs> But yeah. <laughs> but this may have been the best card he had signed in, in at, for the Batwell Auditorium because it was to be the first appearance, I believe, of Harley Race defending the NWA world title against Randy Savage, which would have been a hell of a match. Uh, and he had three dates on Harley. And Harley no-showed them all, uh, I believe, because of a legit family medical emergency. I don't know if this is the same excuse he gave Paul Bosch when he missed those dates that led to all the controversy uh, or if it was legit. And Tommy Wildfire Rich was called in from Atlanta uh, for emergency duty, and he filled in on a couple of those nights. Um, So what is the likelihood? Let's say you did want to bring in Francisco Flores as a ringer. He worked the night before for Goulas, second from the top. He had, you know, apparently had a hot program going against uh, Gordian Hayes. Uh, what are the odds of him skipping, no showing that card in Birmingham to work for you instead, then rejoining the Goulas crew two nights later, 
uh, in the same spot, working with Bobby Eaton against the Freebirds and continuing on uh, and working for Goulas for the rest of the year. What a, <laughs> would that be possible? And could he have gotten away with that um, during those times? I, it, it doesn't seem likely to me. No, absolutely not. And the reason is there was tremendous competition between Nick Goulas with his territory, which was known as the Birmingham Inn, and Roy Welch, which was known as the Memphis Inn. They both ran on Monday night. And then uh, what ended up being my territory or my end of the territory, we go to Louisville, Tuesday, Evansville, Wednesday, Lexington, Thursday, back to Tupelo and Jonesboro on the weekend and in between TV. So there is zero chance of that happening. First of all, it was would have been terribly illogical. Why would you substitute two cards instead of one? Right? Right. Right. Um, and I'm I'm trying to think in that time. I think Bill Costello was here. Um, probably Pepe Lopez. Well, you know, well, but... yeah, it's, it's, it's funny. Uh, Cornette, when I initially asked him about this card, he goes, oh, no, 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 no. That wasn't Mill. That wasn't Mill Maskers. That was Pepe Lopez. And I'm like, well, Jim, unfortunately, Pepe Lopez had been killed a couple of years before. So I, oh. I think he was. I think he was saying that mostly in jest. But uh, I just, uh, I know, I know that by the end of 1979, uh, I believe you had sort of, you know, the war was won. Uh, Nick had lost practically the shirt off his back at that point, I, I believe, and you guys started. Started working together again. Started trading talent at least. I know. I know Lawler defended the CWA title uh, against Jackie. Uh, gosh, maybe weeks after he won it in November of '79. Uh, yeah. And, uh, so I, I know the fences were starting to mend at that point, uh, but not in January of '79. Correct. I mean, was there still some animosity there? You know, I am the world's worst at dates. Okay. And the other thing you have to remember is I've had three careers in my lifetime mm-hmm. and the wrestling business. And then from that, I went into construction and building houses and schools. And, and so that represents 10 or 12 years. And then for the last 10 years, I've, been in the real estate business. So all of that is a cloud to my yeah. old 75-year-old brain. <laughs> right. And, yeah. you know, and it's, I don't it, remember. It's, yeah, it's just one night. It's it's. Yeah, uh, I don't remember dates at all. Now, incidences, uh, I do. Oh, well, hey, Jerry, I really appreciate you uh, coming back on and, and clarifying some things for us. Uh, I think the whole Mill Mascaras situation makes a lot more sense now, now that there's context. And what people need to understand is that the power of relationships 
uh, back then and, and the strength of the brotherhood. And that's why this match took place. That explains the booking. Uh, and that's why Mill was so cooperative. I think we answered every, if there's still some doubts in people's minds, then I, I can't help you. <laughs> well, you know, talking about, and I don't mean to get philosophical at the end of this long winded conversation, <laughs> but relationships that I learned how to navigate the promotional waters has served me well my whole life. And it's, I think it serves everybody well if they will think about it and remember it. Um, when you call me, it isn't because I want to be on your show or I do it because of our long-term relationship that goes back to Memphis. And, and I think that Jerry Lawler and I have talked about it. Jeff and I have talked about it. The lessons we learn in the wrestling business will translate to any business you're in. And it's just important that you show everybody respect, build relationships along the way without thinking that you're going to get anything in return. Well, I'll get off my soapbox. No, I, I, uh, I, I appreciate you saying that. And I know that, uh, that obviously there, there are other things you could be doing with your time. And I, it means the world to me, uh, that, that you would take time out to, uh, join us on this show. Um, and especially kind of, I know last week you kind of cut the promo on, on Jim Cornette and it, it was a lot of fun. And I, I so appreciate this and, uh, can't thank you enough, Jerry. Well, Jim, I can do that because Jim knows I love him. He's one of the, he's one of the great talents in this business. Oh, all uh, time. Yeah, absolutely. And I told him that. I said, "Here, I said you're one of my wrestling heroes." And in front, you know, yeah. I well, the first time I asked you about this match, it was in front of the entire cult of Cornette, and you said it was Pepe Lopez under the hood as Mil Mascus, and all the and your and your your fellow cult members, your deranged cult, they were all laughing at me. <laughs> <laughs> so I was uh, I was uh, really giving him a hard time, but it, he did not have the balls, the tennis balls, to show back up here today. Uh, I guess maybe he's retired his tennis racket, but uh, I will uh, I will make sure that he listens to this episode uh, and and uh, hear your testimony, uh, which okay. uh, which should convince him. But uh, at any rate, Jerry, take care. Uh, congratulations on uh, Jeff being inducted into the Hall of Fame. We got to get Jeff on air now. So see, see, yeah, yeah, give him a call. Well, uh, maybe when we get off the air, maybe you'll give me his number. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'll, uh, I'll I'll text it to you. Okay, sounds good.
Hello again, everybody. Scott Bowden and Brian Last, right along ringside and ready to go with another big day of the Kentucky Fried Wrestling Podcast. And we are flying by the seat of our pants today because we are coming at you with a completely different show than what we had planned. It's very much like a Saturday morning at 1960 Union Avenue, getting ready to tape an episode of Channel 5 Wrestling, and Jerry Lawler comes in at the last minute and rewrites the entire show. Uh, Brian, do you want to tell them about this golden opportunity that was presented to us? And I seized it, and I think I have some compelling evidence that may finally solve the Mill Mascaris Monday Night Mystery. It was a crazy chain of events. We had another show ready to be recorded. We had a whole nother format, a whole nother topic. And literally, as we were on the line together about to record, I remembered that I had seen something about Mill Mascaris doing an autograph signing. I didn't remember where, I didn't remember when. And when I did a quick search, I realized it was now. And it was not too far from Scott Bowden's house. So we dropped the show, we dropped the call, and you headed over there and you met one-on-one with Mill Moscaris with an opportunity once and for all to clear up the Mill Moscaris Monday Night Mystery. That's exactly right. Mono Imano. Of course, I was at a decided disadvantage since I don't speak Mexican. However, I approached him like an earnest fan asking him to honestly answer the question, if he was in Memphis, Tennessee at the Mid-South Coliseum in the main event, tag-teaming, working as a heel with Austin Idol against Jerry the King Lawler and Jackie Fargo on January 29th, 1979. And the answer is coming up next. It was bitter cold outside in Memphis, Tennessee on the evening of January 29, 1979, but the heat was off the charts inside the Mid-South Coliseum, home to the territory's biggest shows on Monday nights. According to official reports filed with the Tennessee Athletic Commission, 6,102 customers, including my Uncle Robert and me, paid $22,091 to see a stretcher match main event involving local legends Jerry the King Lawler and his former rival Jackie Fargo reuniting after many years to square off against brash newcomer Austin Idol, the universal heartthrob, and his mass Mexican partner, the international superstar, Mil Mascaris. Or did the fans see that at all? Arthur Mark James discovered a startling revelation when researching his latest book, Memphis Wrestling History Presents Tennessee Athletic Commission Report Filings, 1977 to 1980. According to the official report, which promoter Jerry Jarrett viewed as a necessary evil to protect the business as true sport, the licensed wrestler appearing under a hood on the evening in question was not the real Mascaris, but an imposter, a sly Mexican ringer named Francisco Flores. Not the original Francisco Flores of Lucha Libre fame, but another man assuming that famous name. Adding to this mystery, we've heard testimony from two men who were there that night, promoter Jarrett and the Mass Stranger's partner himself, the Idol, who both agreed it was indeed Aaron Rodriguez under the hood on that frigid Memphis night. We've also heard those testimonies challenged not only by Mark James, but by another man who was not in the building or even in the business at that point, renowned manager Jim Cornette. 
Despite compelling testimony by Jarrett, who provided detailed explanations of how the appearance came about through Mexican promoter Salvador Luteroff, and that their relationship was the key to the mass sensation not only appearing in the area, but also doing the stretcher job. And he's the one who requested that the finish be changed because he was merely passing through. Because of all this, these naysayers have continued the question why the mysterious hooded egotist would be such a team player on this night when he acted like a tiptoeing prima donna everywhere else and since that appearance. The key to the mystery lies ultimately with Mill Maskers himself, who has never commented on the evening in question until now. Tonight you will hear it straight from the donkey's mouth. Was Mill Maskers really in Memphis on that fateful evening? Or was it a lookalike working for pesos, which is more than he would make with Nick Goulas? Join me as we unmask, finally, the Mill Maskeris Monday Night Memphis Mystery. Although this audio is rough around the edges and is far from an excellent day, Mill's answers, which are somehow both earnest yet arrogant, do indeed solve this mystery, in my opinion, showing us what really happened and answering many forgotten questions. Let's go to the audio. So I, I was a big fan of yours. Uh, getting all the magazines when I was a kid. This is the very first wrestling magazine. Oh, beautiful! This is a travel jacket. Yeah. And, uh, I grew up in Memphis. Uh, this is Scott Garden. This. Uh, my Square Garden or, or Tokyo? Yeah, I think it's. Uh, I think it's the Garden. Yeah. The Garden, yeah, I don't think. Um, but uh, you came to Memphis in 1979. Yeah, um, so Tennessee, yeah. 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 Uh, for Jerry Jarrett. Yeah, yeah, I wrestled there. Yeah. Okay. I wrestled all over the United States. Yeah. All, all the states in the United States have wrestled. Uh, do, you, do you remember that night, though? Uh, that was the first time I went to the Mid South Coliseum in Memphis. Uh, was oh, you and yeah. Austin Idol? Austin Idol. Yeah, I remember, I remember this match in Blues. Because, you know, they I traveled all over the United States many times, you know, with this uh, part of, the, of my profession. They yeah. take me all over the world, you know, and the same times a lot of small towns and not only the United States, you know. In Japan, BMOs, all Japan, all, I have a hundred, seventeen times to Japan. Wow. Uh, you have a lot of Japanese wrestling magazines. Uh, uh, it's all over the full yeah, color uh, spread. United States too, you said probably more. Yeah. Okay, what name? Yeah, okay, um, you want it in black? Uh, yeah. Um, yes. And uh, I was talking with Jerry Jarrett, um, and he said that uh, Salvador Luteroff uh, uh, helped line this up in '79. Mm -hmm. uh, is, is that uh, is that Because you worked as a heel that night, which was a little unusual. And some people, have, Jim Cornette, oh, yeah. has speculated that it was that it was a ringer, that it wasn't really you. Um, but uh, Jerry Jarrett says that uh, that it, 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 it was. Uh, do, you re do you remember that at all? No, it well, but I know Jim Barnett, and I know everybody. In this business, I know everybody. It's part of the inclusive uh, uh, Westwoods. I've been working for Paul Bosch a lot around that time. Well, Paul Bosch regular in Houston. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, I have a, the promoter there is Paul Bosch in Houston. And uh, San Antonio have another one, and uh, Dallas have another one. 
Sport promotion is in Texas. One is 180. 180 is Dallas. The is Dory his father. This is Amarillo. It was crowd control. Yeah, this, I know everybody uh, and so this, we were thinking that maybe they, like you went from Houston to Memphis to stay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know the spot of the, of the work. Okay, what is your name again? Uh, my name is Scott. Scott? Yeah. Scott. S C O D T. C T. It's the hundred greatest nights of yeah, would you mind, would you mind writing, like, yes, that was me? Maybe write C, because, uh, like I said, a lot of people think it was uh, somebody else that night, but I, I, I think it was you. I was only eight years old. I was here. I was here. No, it's a program. It's a Thank you for clearing the wall. You check I got it. You okay, check. okay. Did you like uh, working for Jerry Jerry? Yeah, but not wrestle anyone, you know. This is part of the life, you know. Promotion. Yeah. Every day, this is part of the business. Yeah. You know, this is, this is all, you know. And you got a chance to wrestle in some places. They, they have a wrestling there and don't see you. The people want to see you. you know. They have a chance to go there. Well, I've been begging to go to the Coliseum, but I was really young. Mm -hmm. um, and because you were going to be there, my parents relented and, and took me because uh, they knew I'd been buying the magazines with you on the cover. And I was like, no, no, Mass Cross is going to be in Memphis. I was so excited. So, uh, yeah, it's a big mistake. I remember. Please, please to be you. Yes, Well, there you have it, folks. You heard it from Mill Maskers himself. He was indeed in Memphis on the night of January 29th, 1979. And it may be hard to tell from that audio clip, but you have to understand, I was, I was actually carrying uh, one of Mark James's books, the top 100 nights in Memphis wrestling history. Now, now, Mark wrote this book when he was still under the assumption, as we all were at the time, 
because uh, Jerry Jarrett told a very compelling, detailed story about how this appearance came about. I mean, it, it definitely would be regarded as a top night in Memphis wrestling history, if indeed it were uh, Aaron Rodriguez. Um, when I showed him this book, and I got, actually got him to autograph it, as soon as he looked at it, I said, you were tag team partners with Austin Idol. And he, as soon as he looked at it, he, he, he laughed. It was actually reminiscent of the, of the slight little giggle that, uh, ironically, that Austin Idol did when he ambushed Jerry Lawler as Diamante Negro when they uh, referred to him as his nickname, El Casa Grande, the big house. There's a little detail that Idol just goes, hmm. <laughs> as if he, you know, he not understanding any of what Lance Russell is saying in English, but as soon as he says something in Spanish, it triggers uh, a laugh from uh, the idol under the hood. So clearly he, he had he had a memory of this. It was his only appearance in Memphis. I would be, I, you know, some of the stuff, uh, I, as I said earlier, I do not speak Mexican. He, and this place was, it was bizarre. It was the most bizarre autograph signing I think I've ever been to. Uh, first of all, there was no sign on, on this place. I, I pull into the parking lot and I'm looking around for it. And I, I see this sort of makeshift banner. <laughs> and this abandoned, you know, there's like all these abandoned stores. And, and I go and I walk in and you can tell, you know, from the audio, I get this warm greeting. The woman, you know, as soon as I pay my fifty dollars for a, an autograph and to breathe the same air as Mill Mascaris and to, uh, to to get him to sign uh, uh, my book and and to talk to him for a little bit, fifty dollars for that. But hey, you guys are worth it, and uh, I think it's pretty compelling evidence. What do, what did you think of the audio clip, Brian? It's interesting because you give him nothing but opportunities to say no, it wasn't me. You give him nothing but opportunities to deny that he ever wrestled in Memphis. And instead, he just agreed with everything, but he never specifically did. For instance, you would say, well, do you remember Memphis? Ah, see, see, I wrestled all over the world. I wrestled every city you could think of. Ah, I was talking to Jerry Jarrett. Ah, I've, I've met everyone. I know everyone. <laughs> so he never said no, but he brought everything back to the grand nature of this elegant, extravagant, traveling masked man. Yes. Yes. Um, and it did, you know, again, it was, it was sort of, it was bizarre. It, it was like, it was a little humble, like, well, that is the nature of this business. Um, and uh, yes, of course I wrestled in Memphis. Why wouldn't I have wrestled in Memphis? I wrestled all over the world. But it, but it was also like, uh, as, it, as if to say, I don't know why you're making such a big deal about this. I'm, you know, uh, I appeared in Memphis. Uh, to me, it was just another night at the office. That's the impression that I got that he thought of it, you know, that, yeah, sure. I, I remembered it. Uh, and he, and he really looked at the book for a while and, you know, there's a point in the audio where I ask him, cause I'm not quite getting exactly what I want. I want definitive proof. I want some kind of detail like, oh, that Fargo man, when, when he, when he dumped the stretcher over, uh, I didn't know he was going to do that. And he kicked the ever loving shit out of me. Something like that. Some little detail or, you know, as soon as we got in the ring, Fargo had beer on his breath or uh, a kid slashed his tires on the way out, you know, something to wear or it, it, it would give definitive proof. What kind of cologne Jerry Jarrett was wearing that night? I don't know. And he, he just, he wasn't doing that. But when I asked him if he would say, if he would, Right. Yes, I was here. Or maybe see. He laughed and he said he said something in Spanish to one of his handlers. And then he did a very methodical check mark by his name 
on the recreation of the card created by Mark James for that main event. Uh, and then his, his, and it was so funny at that point, it was like one thirty, and this thing was shutting down at two o'clock and the number of handlers, he had a whole entourage, you know, and it wasn't, he was wearing, uh, it was almost like Vegas meal mascaras or uh, Liberace mascaras. Um, and, and his handler goes, the check mark says that's proof that he was there that night. And I said, okay. Good enough for me, uh, but that didn't stop me from. <laughs> you can't, yeah, again, you can't tell from the audio, but the guy kind of like taps me <laughs> at one point, like, "Hey, come on, we got we got some other people here," because uh, it really turned into an interview from uh, from from the start. When you brought up that he was a heel, how did he react? I, you know, honestly, I have to say, I was I was looking for some kind of reaction from that. And who knows? I don't know how I don't know how open he is about speaking uh, about the business. You know, a lot of guys have begrudgingly gotten used to it. Uh, you know, Jerry Lawler used to hate it when uh, when somebody would use the term heel or babyface in his presence. Uh, I think Ric Flair was the same way for for a long time because uh, you know I think in their opinion it just makes you come off like an idiot trying to show them that you're smart to their business. And I, uh, you know, and a lot has changed and most guys feel totally comfortable with it. I don't know. Maybe I crossed a line there. Uh, he didn't act annoyed, but he didn't really say anything either. And as we all know, <laughs> uh, underneath that mask, it's kind of hard to see uh, the reaction, which I think uh, Gorilla Monsoon and Gordon Sola used to say that that was an advantage uh, as a competitor because you, your opponent never knew uh, if you were truly suffering or not. So. But let's remember, the ridiculous nature of the story wasn't just that he was in Memphis. It was the nature of the way he lost. That, that he is was true. a heel and that he did a stretcher job. You did not bring up the fact that he lost and that he did a stretcher job. So let me ask you, a man of the sizable ego that we assume Mill Moscaris has, if you don't bring up those facts, wouldn't he just agree with anything? Mill, I saw you wrestle in Egypt. Ah, yes, I wrestled all over the world. I saw you in Canada. Oh yes, yes, yes. I, I don't know. I, 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 if he had, let's just say that that he, if he had, if he had worked Memphis uh, one other time or a couple of other times, I would, I would agree with you. But Memphis was such a unique town, and I did sort of say, you know, during that time period, we looked, we looked at your record books. You weren't booked anywhere else that evening, and you actually had been working a lot for promoter Paul Bosch and his. And that his eyes lit up, you know, and I thought, OK, great. We're going to get this story about, you know, yeah, I was working a lot in, in Houston and Texas is not too far from Tennessee. And uh, I had an off night, so I went. That's what, you know, I kept feeding him this stuff. And some of it may have sounded repetitive. But again, I was just wanting some kind of spe a specific detail. But, uh, you know, he, he wouldn't he wouldn't give it to me. You know, it, it was really like, well, yeah, of course I did. But I think in his mind, what he what it, what it, what in effect he was saying was that I don't know why you find this this appearance so unusual. And I, I honestly got the feeling I was pushing my luck by asking so many questions. And I and I almost went, well, you know, because you, you know, you, you did the thing, you know, you rode the stretcher to the back. You did a stretcher job. That's why people really have a hard time uh accepting this uh i did think it was I did, I did think it was especially interesting that i mentioned uh jim Cornette as one of the guys who has trouble swallowing this story and 
you could hear him repeat the ah, Jim Gordon, ah, he, and he laughed for some reason. I, I'm not sure what that's about, but uh, I thought that was really interesting. But that's the thing. We hear, we don't see. You saw it. So yeah. how much of it was just you bring up something, you go, ah, yeah, Paul Bosch, yes, yes, yes. And how much was it that he was actually following along with what you were saying and directly responding to not just the names, but what you were saying? You know what? It almost felt like a gag. It almost felt like <laughs> like he was starting to give me something, and then he would sort of veer off because he goes, like I said, he goes, "Ah, oh, yes, Paul Bush, uh, you know, in in Houston there." And then I and then I would go to uh, the Fox and Amarillo, and then <laughs> and then he starts like kind of just naming off the other territories, and so yeah, so of course, yes, of course. Why 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 wouldn't I have appeared in Tennessee? Why wouldn't I have appeared in Memphis? Uh, and then I, you know, at the very, I think the last thing that I, that I asked him, you know, I told him the story about, I even brought the first wrestling magazine that I ever bought, uh, in 1978, uh, sign of the times I had seen somebody reading a wrestling magazine on an episode of Charlie's angels. And I'd been a wrestling fan for about a year and I thought, Oh my God. And I was a, just a voracious reader at an early age. And I begged my father to take me to a Seven Eleven. The next day to get a wrestling magazine and the first one i had some uh, mil mascaris and rick flair uh on the cover and i had that with me and after he signed mark james's book uh and i also thought it was amusing he had no idea how to spell scott <laughs> which is i guess is not a very common name uh in in mexico and he had picked you know he had already he was already looking at the magazine and you can hear him asking i think he goes he goes that is either tokyo or madison square garden <laughs> I can hear that, but hold on, hold on. You just hit on a major thing. You hear on the tape, he doesn't know how to spell Scott. But when you say your name, he repeats it back to you like he knows exactly how to spell it. Yeah, yeah. And it and sometimes, you know, he would look at his handler like he didn't know what I was saying. And I thought, I've heard him do interviews before, and I thought he spoke English fairly well. It was almost like it was very selective in, in his answers. Uh, I almost looked around for like a camera, uh, to see if I were, it really, it almost felt like I was being set up in, in some ways because he was sort of being, uh, I guess it was more, I guess it, just that opening moment when he, when he really, you know, he held the book in his hands and he was looking at that main event and he just, and he laughed. He's like, yes, see, see, he said, see, yes, yes. Um, but again, just no real definitive answer. And then, and then he, as he, he was going to sign the, he was going to sign the magazine, and the guy goes, no, 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 he only paid for one. <laughs> oh my gosh, they were about to uh, have a fit because he was going to give me two autographs for the price of one. I like how you went from you never mentioned. Oh, I used to work in the business, or oh, I used to have a column. You went in there as just the average fan, but then all of a sudden you start name dropping like, oh, I spoke to uh, Jerry Jarrett the other day, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> we talked about you, <laughs> coincidentally enough. Well, yeah, I thought the best approach would be to go in there as a wide-eyed fan, which is why I'm just like, oh, you know. And, it, and that, you know what? It, a lot of that is very true. I did think that he was really something special, and I love superheroes. I was a big Marvel Comics guy before I was a wrestling fan. So I see this guy wearing these outfits uh, on, you know, he's practically every cover. We talked about how Bill Aftor had this huge man crush on him. Um, when you see the guy in person, uh, you know, a little, not quite what I expected. Um, 
but again, you know, a solid performer. But I was really, really fascinated with the guy when I was young. And, and that has to be the reason that I was able to finally convince my uncle to take me to the matches because I was, you know, I was already like a huge Lawler fan. And so now, you know, these two, and this is one of the great things about the kayfabe era, you know, uh, when you didn't have cable and these guys who appeared in the magazines, they almost took like mythical proportions because we never saw them on TV. You only read about these fantastic exploits in the magazines and you just thought that they were incredible uh, without even seeing them. So when they came to your area, I, I I must have just begged and pleaded and, and bugged the shit out of my poor uncle until he agreed to take me. And that was, you know, the first night that I was able to go to the Mid-South Coliseum. So, yeah, getting the answer to this mystery was very important to me. As soon as you said it, Brian, I was like, oh, no. I went in there. I asked permission for my wife because we... <laughs> We had had plans. <laughs> we had plans uh, scheduled for the day, and she's like, "Go, just go." I know how much this means to you. <laughs> oh my gosh! Because as Jim Cornette says, "All my hopes and dreams, all you know, every my childhood will be a lie if it's not the real Mill Maskers." He's in effect that he's saying that that's why Jerry Jarrett uh, continues this charade, even though it was really Francisco Flores, which. Brian, I failed to mention this earlier, and you and I have talked about it. Francisco Flores was booked elsewhere that night, wasn't he? Yeah, funny enough, you know, I know you mentioned earlier that one of Mark James's books has the actual wrestling license for Francisco Flores and indicates that he was Mil Moscaris that night in Memphis, but another of his books is the same guy doing the research for that book, did research for another book, and in that book it has results for him wrestling in Alabama that night for Nick Goulas. Yes, and Jim Cornette did raise a very good point. He said, now, wait a minute. Was that the published card, the advertised card, or was that the results? Unfortunately, and again, this just adds fuel to the fire, no one can find results. I've asked several different historians. They found two different versions of the newspaper ad. But you also have to think about this was the biggest card that Goulas to that point had promoted in Birmingham because it was the first time that Harley Race would defend the NWA world title against Randy Macho Man Savage, the Mid-America champion. And they had been bringing up Savage and talking about his climb to get a shot at the world heavyweight champion for, oh, it was almost, it was very reminiscent of the push that Jerry Lawler got. They were constantly talking about Savage's spot in the ratings and and where he was and if he suffered a setback how that was going to affect his chance of finally cornering harley race now unfortunately as we know with paul bosch sometimes when harley didn't feel like going to the (laughs) didn't feel like showing up he just didn't show up uh he actually no showed that night and and uh at the battle auditorium in birmingham so i find it very hard to believe that francisco flores who you He was able to get away with no showing that match to work for Jarrett and then rejoin the crew days later when he's the second from the top. He was uh, working. uh, He was involved in a really hot feud with his tag team partner, Bobby Eaton, against the Fabulous Freebirds at the time. So that would be a major, major deal if he missed that show, I would think. Funny enough, it was a little while after this where Harley Race missed a second show for Paul Bosch, leading the Paul Bosch having nothing to do with the NWA and using Nick Bockwinkel as the AWA world champion on his shows. 
Yeah, I believe. And didn't he? Because I, I believe the opponent was Wahoo McDaniel, and they had a makeshift tournament that That's night. Right. Yeah, and Wahoo won it. And wow, the one thing you do not do is is talk about crowning another world heavyweight champion. And for a while, I I, I think it may have been only for a week or two that they were actually billing uh, Wahoo as the true world heavyweight champion. Which uh, you know, back in those days, you just didn't do, you didn't piss off the alliance by doing that. And he gave up that championship to get a shot against Nick Bockwinkel and the AWA championship. But obviously, Mil Mosker is a big star in Houston. Memphis, not too far from Houston. If you were flying from Houston to Memphis, how long would it take you? Oh, gosh. Uh, two and a half hours at the most, two hours. So, again, it's not crazy to think that Mil Mosker is already wrestling in Texas would get on a plane and fly to Memphis. Yeah, and and the funny, you know, what's what's weird about it, uh, Jerry Jarrett says that it was less about Salvador Luderoth doing him a favor and more about, <laughs> and this is this again what what makes it somewhat humorous, uh, because to me, even though I think I think they often discounted just how many fans paid attention to the magazines, maybe they weren't. You know, loyal readers that maybe there were a lot of subscriptions in the Memphis area because Memphis was traditionally like a like a, a a not advanced town. But I think a lot of people were reading those magazines on the newsstand. They had to be aware of their existence. If you if you were a wrestling fan, you're at a newsstand, you're going to see these wrestling magazines. And Mill Maskers was right there with Andre and Dusty for the most appearances on a cover at that point in time in 1979 and or in and in late, in late 1978 when I started buying the wrestling magazines he was on virtually every cover um because I get you know I with the colorful outfits clearly he sold magazines so uh it's 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 just a it's a bizarre situation i think going in i was about 90% sure uh just because Nothing ever completely shocks me in the wrestling business. Coming out of it, I would say I'm about 99.9% sure. Again, just, you know, you just have to take my word on it. He really looked at that main event. He saw the lineup. He, he, and he goes, Oh, Austin Idol. Yeah. I mean, he, he, it looked like to me a guy remembering that night that he played heel and did a stretcher job. You know, which goes against everything that he would normally do. And maybe that's why he laughed. But he really it did strike me as the kind of guy that's going to reveal a lot to a fan in an autograph signing. Was there anything that you saw that we wouldn't pick up from listening to the audio tape? Any even minor indication of him? Well, yeah, you know, there was there was some conversation in Spanish that I felt like, you know, again, I feel like he could have answered me directly if he really wanted to. Um, so that's curious. And I, and I thought about asking a friend of mine who's fluent in Spanish to, to just have a listen and, and see what he's saying, which, you know, the whole thing is a little, <laughs> is a little underhanded. Um, I can't believe Very you haven't called me I can't believe you haven't called me out uh, for, for taking the tape recorder in. But I, I was actually wearing my skinny jeans that my wife had bought for me, which was just a total bit. And it accidentally set off the voice recorder. Uh, totally, totally uh, plausible. I'm sure you you believe that. Um, so I had no idea I was getting this audio to begin with. But again, it, and it, obviously the man who took your phone to take the picture had no idea the audio was being recorded oh, on that phone at that moment either. 
Oh my God! Yeah, you could hear like there's like a little bit of a of a jump in the in the and I, I can only assume that when he's taking you know he took uh, two photographs uh, and when he when he took a, he yanked the phone out of my hand. I assumed for fifty bucks that they had a nice camera and it was going to be like a glossy eight by ten. <laughs> but no, it's like, hey kid, give me your phone, I'll take your picture, and I'm like. <laughs> because I had the voice recorder thing going and I just knew that he was going to look at it, you know, what is this? And smash the phone. Maybe they, you know, these guys are going to rough me up. And then ironically, I would be carried out on a stretcher. <laughs> Salvador, this <laughs> is Mill. You're not going to believe it. Someone showed up with a tape recorder. <laughs> asking, me about that, asking me about that night in Memphis. <laughs> Damn you. I knew it would come back to haunt me. <laughs> Oh my gosh! And I have to say, the response has just has been amazing uh, from 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 our listeners. I posted about it. I did a little bit a little bit of a of a tease uh, about the answer because it's something that you know I've waited so long for. Uh, no one's waited longer than me for the answer to uh, to this question. You know, even before the even before the the whole argument about the license came up, Brian. You know, I had my doubts. You know, just given the way that uh, Jerry Jarrett would sometimes take liberties, but he's been forthright about every single one of those. When he when he booked the Mass Superstar or, or advertised the Mass Superstar, has appearing in the area on two separate occasions, two different uh, years. It, it was uh, uh, gosh, it was definitely not Bill Eighty, Jerry Stubbs in '85, and I believe one of the Bounty Hunters, Jerry Novak, who actually played. Uh, several different masked uh, superstars over the years. Uh, when they brought in Mr. Wrestling, uh, as a rival to Jerry Lawler and Bill Dundee, at one point has the North American heavyweight champion. Uh, it was not Tim Woods. Um, who was that? <laughs> Dick Steinborn. That's right. That's right. And but you know, and even with that though, Jarrett remembers the whole situation. And he explains that he was at, he had actually talked to Tim Woods and had pitched him this story, the storyline where an imposter would come into Memphis claiming to be Mr. Wrestling. And then he it would turn out that he would be exposed and Tim Woods would come to you know fight for his identity. And then somehow I think Tim got injured and it never worked out. Um, and if you look at the programs from that era. It was, you know, Tim Woods had had a pretty a pretty well defined physique, one that was very distinct. I feel like just like Mill Maskers had that had that V, that V shape uh, that Austin Idol mentioned. Uh, he said, you know, I, I mean, as far as I know, that was the guy. I mean, there aren't too many guys that have that kind of build. And if you look at Francisco Flores, the Mexican angel at the time, yeah, he he was thick, he was in shape, but he man, he he was not cut. Uh, like Mill Maskers. Not at all. No. No. So I, I don't know. I, it, it's, but it would have been easy for my eight-year-old eyes, sitting in the cheap seats, to be fooled. Admittedly. So, uh, gosh, I, you know, I wish there were photos. I have no idea uh, if it's one hundred percent true. But I called Jerry Jarrett after I got out. I said, "You're not going to believe who I just spoke to," and he's like, "Who?" And <laughs> I said, I said, Mill Maskers. He goes, what? And I explained the situation. He goes, uh-huh. And what did he tell you? And I said, he told me. <laughs> like, he knew exactly what the answer was going to be. Not a doubt in his mind. I said, he said it was him. 
he said, you know, he didn't give me a lot of details, but he looked at it and goes, yes, yes, that was me. He goes, see, he goes, and I don't know why that picture taker, he wasn't even in the business, wasn't even in my locker room. Don't know why he would uh, try to say that it wasn't him when he wasn't there because he wasn't there. So there you have it. Uh, I'll, I guess I'll open it up uh, to our listeners, and I'm sure they will let me know what they think of the audio and if it's uh, compelling evidence to finally put the Monday night mystery to bed. Well, let's look briefly here at the evidence on one side and the other. On the side that it is him, Jerry Jarrett and Austin Idol both said that it was him. They don't really agree on very much. So two people who are diametrically opposed on almost every issue both said it was Mil Moskris. We can't find any results for any other shows on that date or even on that week, I don't think. But we do know he had just been in Houston and he had been going in and out of Texas frequently during that period of time. Obviously, he had his regular Japanese tours. We do not have a record of Mil Moskris for 1979 to examine everything. But that's a lot of the evidence that he was there. The evidence that he wasn't there. Jerry Lawler remembers nothing. There are no (laughs) photos of anything. Apparently, clips of the match aired on the newscast. But that video has been lost to time to the best of anyone's knowledge as of right now. And then, most importantly, the idea is ridiculous. (laughs) That's the biggest thing that the side that says there's no way it was Mil Moskris has going for it. It's ridiculous to think this man who is known for not selling much, who is known for having a big ego, who is known for wanting the magazine coverage, who is the biggest babyface star to many people all over the world, that he would go in there and for the first time and only time work heel and lose the match and do a stretcher job to Jackie Fargo. It sounds crazy. It gets crazier because when you approach Jerry Jarrett and ask him about this, he doesn't just say, yes, it's true. (laughs) He has a whole story for you. Yes. Yeah, uh, that he met Salvador Luteroth at uh, the uh, one of the NWA conventions in Las Vegas. And this is, I, I believe, shortly after he had won the war with uh, with Nick Goulas. And a lot of people in the alliance were impressed with this soft-spoken young man. I mean, not only was he very mindful of speaking out of turn and was very respectful toward his elders and the membership – but you know he 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 was a perfect example, I guess, of of uh, walking softly and carrying a big stick. You know, uh, he, he was there was no doubting his ambition. Uh, the fact that he was able to get that backing of Eddie Graham, one of the major power players in the NWA, uh, and Jim Barnett's backing as well after helping Atlanta win the wrestling war. Um, you know, it, it it had to impress a lot of people, including. A guy like Salvador Luteroth, who's looking at this guy and thinking, you know, this guy's going to be an alliance figure uh, way after I'm gone. Uh, As it turned out, that was not the case (laughs) as uh, Jarrett, you know, eventually abandoned the NWA largely. And uh, I mean, they were still a member in theory, but began pushing Nick Bockwinkle as the AWA World Heavyweight Champion. And then by 1979, had crowned and created their own heavyweight championship of the world, the CWA Championship. So, uh, again, all these things that just piss off the alliance. But I think that the crazy aspect of it is what makes this also interesting. Uh, but now, if you really look at the facts, Brian, I, I, and I understand all, you know, everything that you said is true. 
But you have his tag team partner that evening. The fact that Jerry Lauder doesn't remember is not shocking to anyone who knows Jerry, and I'm not knocking the king at all. Uh, these guys, the king, Dutch Mantel, they've all said, man, back then, it was all a blur. You know, it, it meant something to you guys because you just saw us every Monday night and every Saturday morning. But, man, you know, we're not only traveling and wrestling uh, in a different town every day, but we're also trying to come up with ideas and we're writing the television show. So it's it's all going to just go by so fast and we're not going to remember, believe it or not, if Mill Mascaris was truly there that night or even on the card at all. We asked Bill Dundee, uh, who appeared on the undercard, and he said, no, no, I, I've never appeared on a card with the guy. But then, you know, yeah, I asked him to take a look at the result. He looked at it. He goes, well, I'll be damned. And, it, you know, and he wasn't saying that it wasn't the real Mill Maskers. He just didn't remember at all that Mill Maskers was billed in the territory. And as it just so happens, even though a lot of 1979 footage has surfaced, that particular show has not. And so we don't, you know, for, and for the life of me, I can't remember the exact explanation of why Idol was bringing in Mascaris. I do know that the whole thing about the stretcher was because of the fact that, uh, and we talked about this on Austin Idol's podcast, that uh, supposedly, I think, I think Lawler had a bleeding ulcer and had passed out in a, <laughs> had passed out in a men's room. Idol was trying to say that maybe he was doing something else. Uh, but they went with the story that Idol had kicked him in the gut too hard uh, with a stiff shot and put him in the hospital. So the whole idea was that, you know, Lawler was out for revenge. He was out of the hospital. He had missed a Monday night and was coming back with Jackie Fargo as his partner because that's the kind of guy you want in a fight like this. And again, there was footage. You actually saw the footage on the news, correct? Yeah, uh, at, at five thirty. This is this is how powerful that that Memphis wrestling show was. I'm sure that and Jack Eaton was a good sport. Jack Eaton was the legendary uh, Channel Five sportscaster, but mostly known for calling Memphis State basketball, Memphis State football. His his and they were his. He loved that job, and I think he tolerated wrestling. And he would sort of do the results in, in very, de very deadpan fashion. They'd be like, ah, Jerry Jarrett there, or Jerry Calhoun rendered senseless momentarily by an errant blow. <laughs> and he would sort of, sort of chuckle to himself uh, as, as he was, you know, on. Oh, Bill Dundee does not know Jerry Lawler has a chain. Pow! He does now. <laughs> uh, just, just hilarious. But you, you always tuned in on Tuesdays at 530. Because he would open his sportscast with highlights from the main event. And not only did I see that footage, but Mark James did as well. But unfortunately, this was about, I think, a month before my parents got our first VCR. So I ended up taping a lot of those over the years, but I did not get that one. Someone has to have that footage. I am hoping that somehow, somewhere... Somebody has not only that episode of Memphis Wrestling, but a whole collection, maybe on beta somewhere, <laughs> of just all these great Memphis Wrestling shows. My Uncle Robert uh, had for years a 1978 show, and I remember like it occurred to me many years later that they had that in pristine condition. And I called him. I was like, you remember the beta player you had? Uh-huh. And, and it was Handsome Jimmy's first babyface turn. And actually, and also Jimmy Hart's first appearance in the studio. It was it was just amazing wow. stuff. Yeah, yeah. Because Lawler was, the story was that Lawler had just won his match over Terry Sawyer. 
and had to immediately leave. So they're kind of setting up the angle, right, for Valiant to turn babyface, that he's got to make these personal appearances. And he's got so many, being the king, that he has to have somebody remind him. So he's like, uh, I don't even know where I'm going today. Jimmy, Jimmy, come over here. And Jimmy Hart walks over, and he's like, well, you're going to be in Jonesboro (laughs) over at the Tasty Freeze, and then you go wrestle that night, and then, you know, starts rattling off all these appearances. And then Lawler goes, all right, that's about enough out of you, Jimmy. And he shoves Hart, and Lance Russell, and Hart's first appearance, strikes first with the insult. He goes, huh, look at that. He's so so skinny, you practically knocked him down, Jerry. As we all know, Jimmy Hart would have the last laugh and the loudest in his final appearance on the show when he dumped a bag of flour over Lance's head. Where's the footage? Did you get the beta tape? No, he. They sold it. Uh, they sold everything at a garage sale for like twenty bucks. <laughs> it just kills me. Back to Mill Scott. Obviously, you were face to face with him, right next to him. I've seen the picture, and I'm sure many other people have. And We'll continue to see it every time you post it for the next several years. I've got it framed right now on my wall. <laughs> is there anything else? Is there anything where I'm not asking that wasn't obvious in the audio that you think is important to note? Um, I, I, I'm going to hold off until I actually have uh, a chance to forward that audio to a friend of mine. Because, again, it's, it was almost like I was I was asking for top secret information. Like, we're, like perhaps we were still in 1979, and you're not supposed to ask the kind of questions I was asking. Uh, and, again, they were all, like, very interesting. Like, one of the guys actually – and I'm not going to say he was a bouncer. But the whole thing, the whole thing was completely dodgy because you, you walk into this place, and, I, and it's not like a regular – this place is not there all the time. They had set up that day <laughs> – uh in this abandoned retail store that you know obviously they had rented for the afternoon and there's a big curtain <laughs> you can't even look at mill maskers <laughs> unless you pay money <laughs> and then you go through and there's like all these people surrounding him like he's gonna get jumped or something uh it it, it, it was it was just odd and the, so anyway the when i you know mill looks at the book and he does the check mark the guy goes hey let me see that and he like really, he's really looking at it and looking at me, and I, I, the whole thing. I actually felt well. I guess I was technically breaking the law by, by recording it without their knowledge, but uh, it really felt like uh, I was like this was some kind of clandestine uh, mission or something. So I, I guess the best way of putting it would be like you, you know, again, you can't tell from the audio, but when I would ask him for these specifics, he he would sort of veer to his his right and and whisper like and speak in spanish and then he, either his handler would answer or then he would give me one of those very well yeah that is the nature of a professional wrestler especially a superstar like me who travels all over the world and i you know i had the feeling i just knew when i said you know you were a superhero to me i would see you in these outfits all over the cover and you're flying around and uh, gosh you know you were my super- i felt like well yes i was your superhero, and I was a superhero to millions around the world. <laughs> See, he only can act like that because someone like you walks in that room and turns into a child. <laughs> well, hey, man, fair enough. I was, I, you know, again, that was the that was the whole thing that I was going for. That whole kind of wide eyed. Oh my gosh, it's such an honor to meet you, sir. I didn't. I definitely did not want to put him on guard, uh, but I wanted to get. And it, and it wasn't just one question. 
you know, were you in Memphis? I, I needed to ask several questions in order to be satisfied. And I guess the best thing that I got, and I do have just this hilarious picture of after, even after Mill did his emphatic check mark next to his name and signed, uh, I think he even, I think he still managed to misspell Scott somehow. <laughs> um, He's still he, he's like he's he's got his hand on his on his mask chin and he's looking at the book, <laughs> you know, and I would just give anything to know if he was like really going, what? wait a minute. Was I was I in was I at the Mid-South Coliseum or not? Uh, I, this you know, what, what's so frustrating about this, I just know that there are still going to be some people out there that say, nah, this doesn't prove anything. We need someone to ask him in Spanish. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for saying not in Mexican. Uh, yeah. You know, I, I don't know how, I don't know. I I've tried doing research before uh, on if, you know, if, there, if there's ever been a, a, a detailed, like a good book about his life, uh, how willing he is, how much he, you know, and how much does he remember? Uh, you know, the answers he gave me, yeah, you know, yeah, but uh, yeah, of course, Houston and then Amarillo and the Funks, yes. So, you know, and he wasn't answering slowly or anything like that, but it was very methodical. Uh, I don't, you know, I don't know how old he is, but I mean, gosh, I, I mean, he would have to be what in his 70s, wouldn't he? At least. And as of a few years ago, he was still active. I don't know if he still is. Huh, he's still working? <laughs> he was. I'm, I'm actually looking up his age oh, as you, okay. uh, do that. Mil Moscaris is 76 years old. Okay. And, yeah. So, and yeah, it, Wikipedia has been married four times. <laughs> Maybe one of his ex wives knows the truth. <laughs> <laughs> you should have asked him about his brother. You know, hey, Mil, how's Dose? <laughs> well, I almost said, uh, asked about his daughter. I was going to say, Howard Baum says hello. <laughs> but I, <laughs> again, I already felt like I was pushing it, but uh, I really wanted to ask him about the stretcher and, and doing that. But I, I don't know, man, it just, I, it was a whole kind of feel thing. You know, I was like, if I can ask that, if he's, if he's receptive to it, if he seems like he's remembering and he goes, you know, Oh, I just had a good time that night and just helped Jerry Jarrett out. But he didn't quite say that. He just nodded a lot and, Looked at it, and but the biggest thing again was that little tick. It was just ah, yeah, Austin, yes, yes. Like the only, he, the only thing he said no to was you getting the extra autograph. Yeah, well, no, he was going to do it, and then one of his handlers nearly leaped over the uh, the table. No, 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 he only paid for one. So, uh, but that was the end of that. <laughs> I mean, yeah, like you said, he doesn't say no to anything. And he agrees with everything you say, but he doesn't explicitly say anything. Right. Like, I mean, this guy ought to run for office. I yeah. mean, seriously. And, and, it, and it was very much like that. It was like uh, it almost felt like I, I was suddenly had put him on trial, you know. Uh, and again, he, they were. When I, and when I did ask him about, like, will you write, you know, write C if this really was you? He really did laugh. He, I mean, he really thought that was funny that I had a hard time believing that it was him. So I think that even says a little something, right? I mean, because to him, he's like, yeah, why is it so hard for you to believe? And I did outline the whole Hill thing. Maybe I should have just gone for it. So because he wrote a 
Do a stretcher. <laughs> you never sell, period, let alone do a stretcher job. That's why people don't believe it. But I just I just uh I just couldn't bring myself to do it. You don't know if it was the real Mill Moscarus in Memphis that night in 1979. How do you know this was the real Mill Moscarus? <laughs> this was definitely him, dude. It it's it's all in the eyes. It's uh, you know, the physique may be gone. Was he sucking in his gut? Uh, <laughs> Was he on his tippy toes? Well, he did. He he did have to take a bathroom break uh, during our discussion. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, no, he. I did not see any tiptoeing at all. But that, dude, that was definitely him, without a doubt. I mean, who else is going to show up with a with an eight, seven or eight person entourage and wear that kind of outfit? That that was definitely Bill Mascaros. And it was one of those personal appearances. Again, I've been keeping an eye out for, I wish I would have been great if you would give me a little bit more of a heads up, but because uh, I would have been there right, I would have been there at 930 when he arrived, hopefully maybe before anyone else and maybe had a little bit more time to spend with him. But uh, I didn't know, but I, I'm, just, I'm glad I got there at all. I mean, I was flying. Uh, down the 101 to get there. So it took me 45 minutes to get there. One last thing we're going to play this week here on this special Remembering Scott Bowden is his appearance on Ron Fuller's Super Studcast. This is a show available only to patrons of the Studcast, so not everyone has heard this. You don't just get more of Scott's story, but you also hear Scott the historian. Scott trying to find out details from Ron about things from his past in Memphis wrestling this was a lot of fun. It actually ended up going longer than we originally had intended for it to go because we were having such a good time. Let's go to this right now. Scott Bowden on Ron Fuller's Super Studcast. Let's introduce the host of the Studcast, the man of the hour, the Tennessee stud himself, Ron Fuller. Ron, here we are, another Super Studcast. How are you today? I'm just fantastic, my man. Uh, very glad to be here. And uh, very glad to have the guest we have for us here and uh, looking forward to it as usual. You know, Ron, it took you a long time to really become a historian, I think, in your own eyes. But we're about to speak to someone who's a little bit of a jack of all trades. He's the fan. He's someone who got involved in the business, someone who's written many fantastic articles, someone who is also a host of a fine podcast, Kentucky Fried Wrestling, right here on the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network, and someone who has also become a historian, one of the foremost historians of Memphis wrestling, and that is Scott Bowden. And let's welcome Scott to the show. Scott, welcome to the Super Studcast. Well, thank you, Brian, and I, I appreciate all the uh, all the accolades. Um, I didn't expect quite an introduction, but uh, and because really, I am humbled to be here uh, talking with one of the greatest storytellers in wrestling today, the Tennessee stud Ron Fuller. Well, thank you very much, Scott. That's a real nice thing to say, and uh, I appreciate it. And, uh, you know, I have, I'm have i not as experienced maybe as you are. Uh, it, it, it's, uh, I have not had the opportunity to uh, watch you that much, but I have seen some things that you have done, and, and I was very impressed. I mean, uh, you obviously uh, have a gift for the business, and, uh, you know, you had the experience of uh, working in a lot of different areas, and, and uh, that's pretty uh, – Pretty remarkable, and, uh, you know, I'm really glad to have you on our show today. 
Well, thanks. And, uh, you know, I, and I think I'm, I'm not sure if I was a natural necessarily for the business, but I, I had a, I had a, a knack for getting under people's skin. <laughs> I think yeah. that's what it was because I, uh, you know, I kind of lucked into a referee spot and I think Lawler was like, well, you know, let's, uh, let's put this guy out there as a referee. And then when they eventually turned me heel, the explanation was, well, you get, you get, you got so much heat here in the back with the boys <laughs> so we figured it might translate well on television uh with the fans hey yeah if you if you can get the heat in the back you're gonna have a <laughs> problem with the fans you know so uh, that's a that's a good place to start uh in the back there and uh you know i guess uh you probably had a relationship uh brian was telling me briefly that you had a relationship with uh jerry lawler's ch- children went to school with them. well or- yeah you know it's uh, really my my path i think uh, to to the point where I, I appeared on Memphis Wrestling, it, it was always something, Ron. Even, you know, when you don't grow up in the business, um, it's it's very hard to get in, uh, as, as you well know. Uh, even though uh, obviously you come from one of the best families in wrestling, um, so those doors were open for you. It's a lot harder for an outsider to get in. But I I always felt, even from a young age, that it was going to happen. And, you know, you hear all this stuff about the, the, the power of positive thinking and projecting yourself uh, into a position. And my friends and I, we, you know, we didn't have a pro sports team in Memphis. Uh, so Jerry Lawler, especially being from our hometown, um, he was our home team. And so, you know, we were reenacting those Monday night battles and those and those Saturday morning television angles that they would do every single week. And, you know, we didn't And really what we did, though, we did the promos. You know, we weren't trying to like jump off roofs like Cactus Jack and some of these guys yeah. were doing. That's you know, smart. the act. Yeah, the action was, was was very minimal. It was all about the personalities and and the promos. Because if you stop and think about it, I mean, so many and Ron, you know this. I mean, the cast of characters that came through Southern wrestling. Uh, you know, you look at a match with a six man tag: Lawler, Jimmy Valiant, uh, Handsome Jimmy. Uh, or handsome and Bill Dundee. So you've got the Australian, the boy from New York City, and the hometown king. It's Lumberjack Joe LaDuke, uh, Sonny King, and John Louis. I mean, it, it, all these guys look completely different. Uh, they've each got their own unique style and a certain amount of charisma. And the heels knew how to get real heat. And my friends and I, it, it was the most riveting show on television for a young man growing up in Memphis. And you had that hour and a half show too, right? Oh yeah, oh you know, yeah. That, that that was unique in itself. Uh, not too many, not too many uh, people or territories uh, ever had that hour and a half program. I think that goes back to my dad's time. At yeah, WXPQ I heard about there. that. He is the guy that started that hour and a half program, and he's the guy that hired Lance Russell. Oh my goodness! Well, nineteen fifty-nine. Uh, Lance, uh, obviously, very near and dear to my heart. Um, it when 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 Lance passed, uh, I, and I spoke to a couple of people who were in the business. We, I, it, it was like our grandfather had died. Oh yeah, uh, you know, and 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 then some people said, well, if you weren't from Memphis, then maybe you don't get it. Um, but that's not exactly true because I, I got phone calls from people from all over the country, people who listen to the podcast, uh, and they were feeling it. 
you know, because they, even though they were tape traders or maybe they just became fans on YouTube, everyone just fell in love with his style. <laughs> he, he was, he was one of the best. I mean, uh, yeah. I would, I would, I would put, place him in my, my top five commentators in history, probably. Yeah. Uh, really, you really Gordon. super you, at the job he did. You love Gordon, don't you? Oh yeah. Yeah. Gordon yeah. did quite a few shows for me. He did my Southeastern program in Pensacola uh, he did my USA wrestling after uh, Continental. After I sold Continental, he did Continental for me. Uh, so Gordon and I, and I spent my first four years in uh, wrestling in Florida. And Gordon was the man, obviously, there. And Gordon and I had a tremendous relationship. And more than just business, we're, we're really close friends. And, uh, you know, in, in my estimation, Gordon is, is definitely in that top five, too, maybe the best. And uh, there are... There are a lot of great commentators out there, but you know the Lance was just just tremendous, and uh, and I think he had it from the very beginning. I don't know how he, how my dad found him to be honest with you, uh, but I do know that uh, that he set up that WHBQ way back in uh, probably '58. It may have started as early as '58 uh, that they actually went to that hour and a half program, and uh, it was 10:30 to noon, and. Uh, mm-hmm. And it was a great time slot, and it just lit up wrestling. And it happened so quickly after they got that going, and they got Lance involved. And Dad had his own crew that he used to take with him when he was starting territories, and he built many territories during his lifetime. And Memphis was one of them. And oddly enough, I don't know if you know this, but Memphis was pretty dead back in the 50s. Mm -hmm. It was not the wrestling market that it would become. Uh, and it just uh, it just exploded uh, after they got that HBQ set up with the hour and a half live program. And uh, it just rest of it was history, basically. Yeah. And it's interesting to look at some of those cards uh, in the 60s when business started picking up uh, because it, it almost had the feel of a St. Louis promotion because, you know, the clicks weren't in place yet. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and they would, you know, and they would bring in guys like Johnny Valentine. Uh, Bruno Sammartino came in to defend the WWWF title against Crazy Luke Graham. Uh, and then Luthez would defend against uh, the NWA title the next week against Gorgeous George and uh, Gene Kaniski. Uh, you know, just all these, all the, all the top stars would come in for shots here and there, but there was no real consistent established star appearing every week. Uh, and, you know, and I don't know if that was by design. I know that was the way Sam Munchnick liked it because that way no one wrestler had too much power. Right. Um, but then, you know, then eventually, you know, with, with Jackie Fargo and Tojo uh, becoming such huge stars, um, and Jackie obviously was going to finish up his career. Uh, you know, he had such a tremendous career before he even hit Tennessee. Um, and so it just made sense, to, I guess, to build around those guys. And with Lawler being uh, Fargo's protege and the man he groomed, um, it was pretty much the same <laughs> cast of characters by the time I became a fan in the summer of 77. Yeah. You know, we left there. My dad and I, uh, when I was a kid, I came there in the fourth grade, actually, to Memphis. Uh, and we had been, dad had developed the Gulf Coast, actually named it Gulf Coast Wrestling, uh, all along the entire Gulf Coast from basically Tallahassee into New Orleans. 
uh, and a little bit further north uh, into the Dothans and the Montgomery areas and those areas. But uh, once we went to Memphis, we stayed there about, uh, we were only there about two years, three years. And during the course of the time we were there, Dad liked to do it a little bit different than the St. Louis style. He built Memphis basically with Monroe and Wicks. Mm, uh, right, and, yeah. Uh, and those guys, those two guys uh, became the monster stars there in Memphis uh, and and really kind of exploded Memphis. I don't know if it had been how big it had been prior to the 50s because I haven't had any research to, to look back and see what they were doing in the 40s and the 30s. But I do know that that late 50s era there, uh, Monroe and Wicks really carried the load for them. And uh, it was, I remember as a kid, uh, I didn't get to go very much, but my dad every once in a while would let us go. And I do remember the show in the outside baseball stadium. Uh. Russwood Park. <laughs> there you go. Russwood Park crowd, which was maybe one, maybe, I don't know that it's not the biggest Memphis crowd ever. It is. Still okay. to, this, to this day. To this I think 30, day. 30, 32 or 34,000. And I love that story uh, uh, that I love to tell about being there as a 12-year-old and watching them park that Cadillac out in the middle of the field. <laughs> and and Wicks went in the car and going and getting into the car and the crowd coming over the fences out of the stands. And they surrounded the Cadillac, and they were going to take it. The, the plan was he was going to get in the car. They were going to open the back gate in center field and let him drive the car out onto the main street there. I can't remember that street, uh, but uh, it's a big one of the biggest streets in Memphis, and he was going to drive the Cadillac out. And once he won the car and got inside it, uh, it was awesome. I, it meant thousands of people uh, just flooded onto the field and uh, surrounded the car, and he couldn't get the car out. He couldn't move the car. <laughs> and they actually picked the car up. I'll never forget it. One of the most memorable things I ever saw in wrestling, the crowd actually picked that Cadillac up and carried him out and <laughs> set him down in that road out there. It was absolutely oh. unbelievable. You know, that is just a testament to how into it everybody was yeah. in back in those days. And I think that kind of laid a foundation for for Memphis to become one of maybe the best wrestling city in America. Certainly one of the best and maybe the best. Well, and, and Sputnik, uh, I, I, you know, from, from what I understand that, you know, that unfortunately, you know, there's not a lot of footage uh, of him, especially when he was in his prime in his Memphis days. Uh, but maybe by all standards, not, not necessarily a great worker, but understood the psychology, knew how to draw heat and what a self promoter and what a showman. And just the guy just, even in later years when they would occasionally have an interview with Sputnik when he was older and they would show it on Memphis TV, he still had more charisma uh, in his finger than uh, most guys will ever have. Yeah, And it, and it's just something that I, you know, I guess you're born with and then you develop it and you hone it when you're in the wrestling business and especially working that crazy schedule that those guys were working back in the day. Uh, if you had it, if you had a lot on the natch and then work that schedule and work that loop where you're working in front of the same crowds weekly, uh, you're going to get better. <laughs> yeah. You, oh, yeah. You know, you know, you got, you, yeah, or you'll be the gone. It, the way it was, the way business was. And, uh, you know, back in those days, uh, you had so much, you got so much experience in the ring because you were there every night. And that's what I think the guys in the business today really suffer from a lot, especially these independents. They don't want to get that opportunity to work 
six nights a week, uh, seven nights a week. Uh, that that's really what makes uh, makes it easy for you. And then you learn so much and you become great worker, but you have to have those hours and that time in the ring. It's kind of like being a pilot. The more hours you, you have uh, underneath your butt, the better you're going to do up there in the air. And uh, the same thing with wrestling, you know, so. well, and don't you think Ron too, that a lot of, you know, not only the time in the ring, but the time going from town to town, where the the veterans uh, are not only ribbing you a little bit or, or a lot, but but they're also giving you tips. And, yeah, teaching and, lesson. It's a teaching lesson. It's yeah. a process. It was a process that that carried on through the fifties, the sixties, the seventies, the eighties. Uh, with my companies that I ran, you know, you you felt obligated to pass along knowledge to these younger guys. Uh, and my experience was once I got to uh, Southeastern uh, and Pensacola in particular, we just started running so much great talent through there and and were able to quickly send them from one territory directly to New York. Uh, basically, a lot of those guys, uh, Honky Tonk Man, uh, uh, a, uh, Wayne Cowan, uh, uh, and, uh, you know, uh, Arn Anderson, uh, Hulk Hogan, uh, Brutus the Barber Beefcake. I mean, with just a line of guys that came through Southeastern that went directly from there to New York. And uh, you, you, it was part of what the business was all about. Uh, it was what you needed to do if you owned a company. If your heart was in it, you wanted to pass along your knowledge to make it easier for those guys below you that were coming up. And we evidently had a lot of guys in Southeastern, the veterans that took these young guys under their wing and, and as you say, rode with them in cars every night and uh, would discuss going home, uh, what kind of match they had and how they could improve it and what they could do better. Uh, I kind of had it myself when I started in 1970 in the Georgia Territory. Nick Bockwinkle was the champion. Oh. Nick took a liking <laughs> to me. And every night he watched every match I ever had. And after the match, he took me directly into a dressing room somewhere in the building, me and him alone. And he would he would he would up my game every night. And uh, I felt just so close to him and I just admired and respected him so much. And in my opinion, he's one of the greatest champions of all time. Uh, just a tremendous athlete and a great, great personality. Well, and it's interesting you mentioned him. We uh, actually just came up on the anniversary of the of the first world championship match I saw as a kid uh, was in August of '79. Uh, Lawler and Bockwinkle, and I believe it was only the second time that Bockwinkle had defended uh, the the uh, th that big turkey platter sized AWA belt uh, in the city uh, against Lawler. Anyway, uh, after Jarrett broke broke away from well, it didn't break away from the NWA, but. Yeah, I, I guess the the big problem was he felt like the NWA was never going to give Lawler a run with the world championship. And even though he felt like Jared had the backing of uh, uh, Eddie Graham, uh, Jim Barnett, it, it wasn't happening when it, when it came time to vote. And, and the thing was, they were all saying, well, he's not tough enough. 
And Jarrett was like, well, what do you mean tough, guys? This is show business. And, you know, uh, <laughs> and shoot, lo- lo- they were talking lo- shooting, I guess, right? <laughs> shooting background. No, uh, no, no, oh. uh, there's a good, uh, you know, shooting backgrounds are great, something great to have. But, uh, you, you know, that's the case. Uh, you know, it, it wasn't really based on shooting. You didn't do any shooting, uh, even as a champion. If you were lucky, and I'm sure in times, Probably, uh, I'm sure Thez and a few of those guys oh. had, had guys try them every once in a while, for sure. Uh, you know, the, the Danny Hodge type, uh, you know, that that uh, could really go. Uh, the guys wanted to just find out how good they were. But, uh, you know, I, I always was impressed with Jerry Lawler's work. Uh, Jerry actually started, I don't know if you know this, but Jerry actually started basically, well, he, had, he got his start up there in that Nashville area, but he was sent to Montgomery to work for uh, my cousin Jimmy, Jimmy Golden, for his dad, Bill Golden in Montgomery, as a young guy. And, uh, and Nick one day was talking to Bill Golden, and Bill was looking for some guys. Hey, can you send me somebody different? And he said, okay. Uh, he gave him a list of like five guys. And then the last one he said, he said, we got a new kid down here. I think he's going to be pretty good. Uh, his name is Jerry Lawler. Would you like to have him? And uh, Bill said, yeah, I'll take him. And uh, gosh, I think that's where Jerry really started to get a little bit of his, of all that comprised Jerry Lawler that made him such a star. He, he really tried to, t- he kind of took off for them in Montgomery as a real green kid. And everybody knew at that point, Jimmy used to say, I knew the first time I ever saw him wrestle, he's going to be something special. And uh, I worked with Jerry many times, uh, my brother, obviously, many times. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, Jerry's a great guy uh, and a tremendous talent, tremendous talent in the ring. Uh, actually, he's a tremendous talent as a commentator and just about whatever Jerry wants to do. Artist. I mean, he's, mm. he's a talented individual. But, and the, the longevity <laughs> it's just amazing uh, if you stop and think about it. My goodness. Uh, the fact that he was wrestling or, uh, work, you know, appearing on WWF pay-per-view a few years ago for the working against the top guy for the championship. Um, and they did an angle. You know, he was in a ladder match to set that up with the Miz. And you've seen all these crazy ladder matches where guys are taking these death defying falls and practically breaking their necks. And Lawler just uses psychology. He takes one bump halfway off the ladder, but the crowd responds because, you know, Jerry's a little older. He's never, you know, they haven't seen him take the crazy bumps like he used to back in the 70s and 80s when he was just flying all over the place like a Super Bowl. Uh, But that, you know, and he's on the verge of climbing the ladder to get the title uh, and they get screwed out of it. And the crowd was so hot. I mean, it, it was the most heated main event that they've had on Raw in years. And that's just, you know, you have to have that something special that you can't teach and, 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 and a, an incredible understanding of psychology. And I think that's one thing that separates uh, guys like yourself, Lawler, all the guys who, who worked the Tennessee territories and worked Florida. Uh, that That's what set them apart, I think. Uh, and Memphis being that last territory, you know, I was there as a referee when Steve Austin came in and he, boy, he was, you know, just so green and Dutch Mantel kind of took him under his wing and kind of instill, you know, cause Dutch would play that lone wolf character, 
uh, you know, the kind of tweeter character. He's the only guy I know that would that could get away with uh, with jumping Lawler on TV and jumping Dundee when they're both baby faces, but yet they remain baby faces and it's not an official hill turn and they get, and they drew draw big money. And at the end of it, they shake hands and Dutch is back to being a full fledged baby face. Yeah. He got the name from, from, uh, from buddy, didn't he? Yeah. Yeah. He got his name from, from dad, you know, and uh, he was, I think he asked dad, you know, uh, uh, you know, I'd like to have a different type of name and, and actually, he was named after the guy that trained my grandfather, Roy, to wrestle, the real Dutch Mantel, uh, who was a shooter <laughs> in Texas. Wow. And, uh, and uh, basically around Amarillo. And uh, a fantastic, fantastic character, the, the actual real Dutch Mantel. And I love to tell those stories about my grandfather and what he taught me and told me about Dutch Mantel, the original Dutch Mantel. And uh, Dutch didn't know that name. He, he was like, who's that? Who's Dutch Mantel? You know, and <laughs> I don't know if Dad ever even explained to him, you know, who Dutch Mantel really was. But Dutch Mantel was one of the toughest shooters and probably in the history of the sport. And uh, just a phenomenal wrestler, just a, just an unbelievable wrestler. So uh, I, I wanted to ask you, Scott. Uh, you know, you're there, and and kind of this is, you know, we started off this first part of this uh, Super Stud Cast Twenty with Austin Idol, and I saw a match not too long ago that I had never had an opportunity to see. It was a cage match with Jerry Lawler and Austin Idol. And I was really taken by the match. Uh, I think I did. I did one of my super stud cast on riots and mm. this match. Uh, I, I don't know if you've, you've probably seen it. Uh, oh, I was there. You were there. <laughs> All right. Well, gosh, almighty, you'll have a great perspective then of what went on, you know, but uh, what a great match that was. And I guess uh, Tommy Rich must have turned heel. In that same mm-hmm. match, or or maybe he had just turned heel. Well, maybe. it had been brewing for a while. The whole the whole issue, it it, it Ron, it, it was such a uh, slow build, and then it just picked up steam uh, one night when uh, it, they were all jockeying for a position to get a shot at Nick Bockwinkel. And this is one thing that I always thought was really smart about Jerry Jarrett is that he wasn't a mark for bringing in the world champion because to him, it, it just didn't make sense to bring him in so many times and to put him all in all the small towns. And he would, he would get one booking on the champion. He did this with Briscoe. He did it with funk and uh, did it with Bockwinkle several times where he would get about two months of angles out of it because they would say, you know, the world champion's coming. Uh, they're going to wrestle the Southern champion. And then guys would start feuding over that. And that would be a catalyst for some guys turning heel and that type of thing. Um, and even though the AWA title didn't mean quite what it was by the time uh, 1986 rolled around, it was, you know, Bockwinkles was still the world champion in the eyes of Memphis fans because uh, not since 77 uh, had, uh, had Harley Race been in. Uh, Flair came in for briefly for an 82 appearance on, on TV. Uh, but Bockwinkle was the guy. And I think he clicked not only because he and Lawler, they were so super smooth together. And Bachwinkle was not a routine man, and and every match that he had with Lawler was a little bit different. 
and they told a little bit of a different story every single time they got in there. Uh, it wasn't just doing all the same, you know, uh, routines. Now, certainly right. Lawler would pull the strap <laughs> at the end and make his big uh, Popeye Superman comeback. But getting to that point was always something different. Um, I, the, one of the best matches I ever saw, uh, Bockwinkle worked, uh, had him had Lawler in an arm lock and kept, and Lawler would get out. Bockwinkle would slip back around, and the crowd was just up and then down, up and then down. And you'd think they might be bored of it, but because it, 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 they had never seen Lawler in a match like that. Right. Uh, and then, but then finally, Lawler gets loose, and he can still use that right hand, buddy. And and the crowd just went ballistic. Uh, absolutely, just those two together were just absolute gold. And I, I saw a lot of Lawler Bockwinkle matches because I didn't get to, get to go to the matches too often. And so I was always waiting for the, for, yeah. for one of those world title appearances. Yeah. But but it was great because Tommy Rich came in and and uh, you know Tommy's best days as a babyface were, were maybe starting to be behind him. He, you know he put on a little weight um, and he came in. He goes, you know, I said we're Lawler's uh, talking about he's going to wrestle Nick Bockwinkle and you know I'm not I'm not knocking Jerry, uh, but he's never been a world champion and I have uh I beat Harley race for it. And, and then Austin Idol kind of does the deal. He goes, well, yeah, I'm kind of, I'm kind of biff too. And it's, but it's not overt, you know, fans don't see right. it coming. It, it's just sort of an issue and they have it on a slow burn. So finally Lawler agrees to wrestle them both in one night. And, uh, this is when it just explodes and they jump Lawler and they, uh, they grab a, a leg each and rack him against the ring post. Um, and then Idol does one of these subtle hill moves that, again, you, you just can't teach it. Uh, I'm sure they didn't talk about it beforehand, but Lawler's sitting there holding his, uh, holding his uh, crown jewels that have uh, since been crushed against the ring post, selling it beautifully, because that was one thing that Lawler always did perfectly. And Idol, and he's got his head kind of tilted like he's just out, and Idol cradles his head and then bitch slaps him. <laughs> and I, I I mean I thought the people were gonna jump the rails right then and there. Uh and so that leads up. And then so for four months, Lawler keeps bringing in all these different partners. He brings in Bachwinkle, uh, Bam Bam Bigelow, all these guys, and they have this incredible run. And this is when Vince was starting to make some inroads in Memphis. Um and other promotions were struggling, but Memphis was red hot in '86. Uh, they had some sellouts in 87 and, and then drew, uh, about uh, 9,000 for when Lawler finally beat Hennig for the, for the world title. So it's a, it's a testament to, uh, you know, Jarrett's resolve and Lawler and, and Jarrett's storytelling abilities. Uh, and it all came to a fever pitch that night. I believe it was, uh, April 27th, 1986. I was in the third row and, you know, they had I was at 87. Okay. I always get it mixed up a little bit. All right. Um, and I can't even tell you the buzz in the building, not only because their hair's at stake and Lawler has never lost a hair match. And and this is one thing too, that helped that would help you sell a match back then, Ron. Uh, and you know, this, that, the history, because Lawler had always put his hair up. He'd, he'd had about 10 different hair matches over the years and he had never lost. And the fans knew that. And in their minds, it was impossible to consider that he that, that he could lose his hair. 
But Austin Idol, to get this match, because Lawler had, had cheated him out of the Southern title the week before, um, just a classic little gimmicky finish that they did where he beat Idol in five seconds. And Idol wanted an immediate rematch. Lawler said no. So Idol said, I want a cage match. I'll put up $50,000. And if I lose, not only will I shave my head, but every fan in attendance will get their money back. Yeah, so that's a great it, yeah, and 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 it's like, well, you might you think, well, would the fans kind of be clued in? Surely they're not going to refund everybody's money. But at the same time, there was no way Lawler was going to get his haircut, <laughs> so it was impossible to guess. And it was it was one of the hottest crowds I've ever been a part of. And when Tommy Rich came out, that place it went ballistic, and the fans started converging on the ring and I'm in, I've got, like I said, I was in the third row and I had my dad's Pentax camera and I'm trying to take pictures and I actually have one. I, and I said, this is, this is where I was almost crushed to death <laughs> trying to get a shot of the head shaving. Uh, you had drunken guys climbing the cage, trying to get in to help uh, the prone King. Uh, I was not one of them, by the way, I just want to clear that up. Uh, but, just unbelievable heat. And then Paulie's dancing around uh, when they, you know, they finally get Lawler's hair off and he's picking up the locks and he's dancing around and skipping. And Nido goes, Hey, you need to cool that buddy. (laughs) These fans are already hot. And and a lot of times Memphis fans, even if it were a hot finish, because it was so difficult, uh, especially on a packed night to get, to get out of that snaking mid South Coliseum parking lot, even though people would be upset they would bitch about it all the way back to the car. Well, not on this night. They stuck around. <laughs> yeah. They were waiting on them, uh, and it took 30 minutes. Uh, they had to they had to get uh, some police to come in and, and back them up before they they dared exit the cage. You know, I, 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 for fans out there, especially the patrons here, uh, if you want to look at this match, it's on YouTube. I'm sure it's uh, probably Lawler versus Idol in the cage. I mean, they obviously be able to find it. Uh, what really, what really uh, interested me is I could tell Tommy had not been healing very long, and uh, because of as you were saying, after the match was over they really started to get some tremendous heat and uh, Tommy was really pushing it. Uh, Idol was the only one in the ring there that uh, those three that really had a grasp on, Hey, look, this is, this is getting nasty here. And uh, yeah. And I don't believe he really had control of what was going on there. You know, he didn't, he didn't really have control of, uh, of, of those two guys. And, uh, you know, and having been in riots before, I was thinking while I'm watching, I'm thinking, boy, they ought to get out of there. They ought to get out of there. And they just never got out of there until it was almost too late. You know, uh, <laughs> and, uh, yeah. and I was wondering, uh, you know, what would have happened afterwards. So the fans really waited on them outside then that night. Oh, yeah. And, and you know, and it's hard to explain to to, fan, to newer fans nowadays and you, and you say yeah people were climbing the cage to get in and, and the police it was such a wild scene the police were having to yank them down and people think i'm pulling their leg oh no <laughs> and no. i'm like abs no i'm not I, i'm absolutely telling the truth they were that hot and they go so all that all those people believed that it was on the up and up and i said no no, they didn't. A very small fraction believed it was on the up and up. But 
the the way the story was presented and the fact that you didn't know quite how it was done and it was an ending that was impossible to guess it made it so easy to check your disbelief at the door yeah and, and you know i think yeah. a lot of people wanted to i think they just really loved the sport so much they didn't want to argue about it they just wanted to go and and have that release just have that have that time to just uh, throw themselves into into a physical event in which they didn't know what the outcome was really going to be. And as you said, with Southern wrestling, there was always a story behind everything. It wasn't just matched on the card and uh, didn't mean anything. Most of the time it meant something. And there was a lot of history leading up to these big events, like a cage match, like that one. And, uh, you know, just, uh, having been cut before by fans and gone through that type of thing, that's what was really remarkable about me when my thinking when I watched that match is the fact that that uh, Tommy is an example. Tommy was really enjoying himself. I mean, he was really <laughs> having a ball in there. And I don't think he had any idea of what, what was going to happen when they finally opened that cage door for those guys to try to get him out of there. And it, was, yeah. it was kind of funny to watch how they left, too. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, Idol said I asked Idol about it, and he said, you know, that all along I was the one who who was most concerned uh, because Paulie was still young. He didn't quite grasp that, you know, these people aren't playing, and and Tommy was just had all this pent up energy because he had been under the ring since three o'clock right. <laughs> with the I think with a case of beer and a bucket of uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken, uh, which I, I like to tell people that's sort of where the seeds for Kentucky Fried Wrestling was born. Yeah. Uh, but <laughs> so he came out. So he's all, you know, he's he's just so happy to be out from under there. And and I imagine just the rush because it was just a noticeable like, oh, you know, like the fans just absolutely couldn't believe it. Because I think weeks earlier, Lawler had broken Tommy's wrist. So he had been off TV. People thought he was on the shelf. And man, oh, man. And the interview that Lance conducts afterward, uh, I post it almost every year on the anniversary of it. And newer fans are just in awe because they've never seen real heat like that. They've never seen heels where you think it, it's it's almost like a shoot. And and Lance having his personal and uh, attachment to Lawler, he helped him get in the business. And he comes in, he goes, I just want you to know, I've been around this business a long time. I've seen a lot of things. That's the lowest thing I've ever seen. Done. Yeah. <laughs> and they just, you know, and they're just, oh, shut up, Russell. And it's just, it, it's just class. And they did that probably one take and they're done. Oh, yeah, um, I'm sure they did. You know, I mean, it, it was, a, it, that's the way it was done. I mean, I don't think I ever remember cutting the same interview twice. And, <laughs> you know, I mean, you just you, you cut them and uh, it was a done deal. Uh, you tried to do the best you could do. Uh, some guys were great at it. Some guys weren't. And those that weren't uh, usually didn't ever become very good at it. They could never get a hold a grasp on it. And and then you had the other guys like uh, Dusty Rhodes that just, you know, it it made his career without his 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 ability on the microphone. I don't think Dusty would have gone any place. Uh, well, oh. and every and everybody, you know, that's the thing. You know, Dusty was a tremendous promo, uh, but but he had the lisp, but it didn't hurt him. Uh, a guy like Mister Wrestling Two was really kind of gruff and garbled, 
but it was believable because it was like a tough guy who was so mad that he couldn't contain himself. Uh, and Jimmy Valiant's promos, he was the first guy who I ever saw, you know, in 77, he's doing like these really cutting edge pop culture references. And you almost believed he was friends with Burt real, uh, Burt Reynolds and Sally field. Yeah. (laughs) He's talking to, he's like, Burt, Burt just dropped me off in his, in his trans am out front, baby. I think Burt slipped something in my Coca-Cola, baby. I feel good. (laughs) And you almost, cause like, maybe he does know Burt Reynolds. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Those were great days back in those days for darn sure. Uh, well, hey, Ron, I would ask you, if you don't mind, I, I'm a little curious because I became, like I said, I became a super fan in 77. Um, but in, in, uh, in around 75, I got my first glimpse of Memphis wrestling because my dad would occasionally turn it over. And that was one good. That was the thing about Memphis. When that show came on, everybody in town had the TV on. Now, whether they were diehard fans or casual fans. Everyone watched that show. And so my dad, you know, would put it on and I looked up and I saw the Mongolian stomper throwing guys around. I think it was his debut match where he squashed Dennis Condry and I think Jerry Bryan and back to back matches, which is just beautiful booking. And they can't pull him off Dennis Condry at the end. And so all the guys from the back come in and he's just tossing them around. And I'm mesmerized. I, I, I'm looking at it going as a kid thinking, wow, this sounds like the Incredible Hulk. Uh, and he never said a word in his promos. You know, he, he had Bearcat right, and he would just stand there and occasionally speak this kind of <laughs> gibberish that they invented. Uh, like it was like they were speaking some Mongolian gibberish to each other. But Bearcat right was a tremendous promo. And Stomper would just stare there, and it was like his eyes were looking in through your soul. Oh, he's a, he's a tremendous talent. And uh, I was there in that same time frame, 75, from basically the end of 75, uh, won the Southern title by in a tournament, won in the finals uh, against Jackie Fargo. Uh, the last, uh, I guess, that thing was December 29th of 74. And then uh, held that title until Stomper took it uh, in June of 75. And you were talking about how Jerry booked his world champions and uh, and how he just bring the champion in for one shot. I actually worked with Jack Briscoe in Memphis in 1975 three times in six months. Uh, well, and one of those was a was a sellout, Ron, which was really impressive because you know they built so much around Lawler in '74, and then he and Jared had the falling out, and and you know you were going to take that top spot, and initially I think the crowds dropped a little bit, but then, you know, you got over quickly and then the arrival of the Australians. Yeah. They came in about the same time. And then then my dad and Rob got involved with the angle with them and I, I, they were baby faces and I was healed. I mean, it was a, it was a crazy situation, but we actually drew some phenomenal crowds. Uh, Actually we drew during an 11 week period of time, we averaged 10,000 the show. Yeah, uh, and uh, just amazing business. Uh, and like I said, three times worked with uh, Jack Briscoe during that time frame in Memphis, and a couple of those were one-hour Broadways, uh, long matches, uh, grueling matches. When you're working with a guy like Jack, that's up and down. That's a that's a tough tough cookie there. Those hour Broadways with Jack, but uh, 
that city was just phenomenal. I mean, it just seemed like it just continued on and on. And you're talking about that wrestling program. Same thing happened when I was went into Knoxville in 74. I was on a small UHF station. Finally, I was able to get on a big chan, big station, the biggest one in the market that had a range of about 150-mile signal. Went out all around for 150 miles. And we, within two years, had the same thing. We were, if you had a television at two o'clock on Saturday afternoon, you lived in Knoxville, 80% of the homes and people watching were watching wrestling. I don't care if football's on, I don't care what's <laughs> on competing with it, 80% was watching wrestling. And I'm sure that's pretty much in line with the figures that probably were being produced on the other side of the state in Memphis. Pretty amazing oh, yeah. what was going on on both sides of the state back in those later set latter seventies. They were just doing tremendous business there. Knoxville, that had been a a good town, never a great city for wrestling, just lit up. And Stomper that you mentioned earlier, once he arrived for me in seventy seven, he never left. He was my top heel, and what a talent in the ring he was. Uh, and he and Joe Duke oh, program there that was just absolutely phenomenal. It really, it, it, it did for Knoxville what Wicks and Monroe did for Memphis. There, LaDuke and uh, Joe LaDuke, uh, after they, uh, I mean, Joe and Stomper, after they did the blockbusting. I don't know if you've ever seen yeah, of that. Yes, I have. Absolutely <laughs> unbelievable stuff, you know, that just uh, people bought it because it was real. I mean, you, you you couldn't help but buy it. I mean, uh, it was so real to seeing those sledgehammers and those blocks being broken on top of their heads, and it was like crazy. When they came and suggested it to me, I thought they were kidding. I thought it was a joke. I said, oh, come on, guys. <laughs> That's pretty funny. No, 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 we're serious. You know, and that was that was a lot of different, uh, you know, things were so different back in those days. I always encouraged my boys to contribute, to think. Now you got an idea, boys. Don't just come here every night and do what you're told and, and never try to figure out uh, how to how to go forward. In. And once you start figuring out how to book, then you make yourself a better wrestler for darn sure as well. And I always encourage that. And uh, that was an example of two guys, Stomper and Joel Duke, coming to me and saying, Ron, we want to do this block back to back block busting on 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 our heads angle and i was like come on guys you, somebody's going to get hurt and they really didn't care you know i mean they 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 were so committed mm. and wrestlers were just really truly committed back in those days in which they wanted to to fill the building they wanted to do whatever it took and uh, the memphis is just a great example of of, you know, people around the country and around the world don't really recognize Memphis as being the market it was for wrestling and what type of things happened there. Jerry was so creative and so good at coming up with different ideas and different concepts. And and I, I don't know where, you know, I can't say that he got a lot of that from my dad, but I, I don't know at the same time that he didn't. I mean, he was he spent a lot of time around my grandfather, Roy Welch, in the early days, and then a lot of time around my father after Roy kind of stepped away from the business. And uh, I, I know Dad had quite a bit of influence on Jerry, and uh, he, Jerry just did a phenomenal job of uh, of taking Memphis to where it went. 
Well, and I think I think part of that he was such a uh, an astute student uh, of the of the game, and and not only that. But I believe he was an he was an English major for a while, and and he always liked to consider wrestling uh, Shakespeare for the masses. Um, you know, he really considered it sophisticated storytelling, but but told through theatrics and the brutal theatrics in the ring. Um, I think that's why you know his his TV shows were so episodic, um, and and the and the and the Monday night shows themselves would often leave you with a cliffhanger that you, you had to come back the next week or you at least had to tune in to see what happened next. Uh, the, the fact that they were able to draw the way they did and I was able to be a kid during that time period in its heyday uh, was very special. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's hard for for me to explain to other people uh, rushing out to get the the uh, the newspaper in the driveway. And, I, you know, my dad used to joke with me. I got so many rubber bands in the driveway because I couldn't wait to get inside. I had to open up the newspaper right there and find <laughs> out, you know, who, who won the matches. Uh, and and, my, and all my friends did that. And then we'd come to school and we'd talk about it. And I could, you know, that's probably what they were doing on Mondays after NFL games. They were talking about Terry Bradshaw if you lived in Pittsburgh. But in Memphis, that's, you know, yeah. that's, and, and, and Ron, I don't, I don't know if you ever heard that joke, but for years they said if, if you wanted pro wrestling or a, a pro sports team to succeed, in Memphis, you'd have to have wrestling matches at halftime. Well, <laughs> now they've got the Memphis Grizzlies there, and they have Jerry Lawler wrestling at halftime. <laughs> there you go. Well, you know, uh, uh, I got into hockey, and, uh, and I really considered having some wrestling in some of my hockey matches, and I did all kinds of things in hockey that uh, that I used to do in wrestling. Uh, probably probably changed the sport of hockey and uh, they never used to do intros or anything like that when i bought my got into not hockey with my first team in nashville and we just uh we opened our games with darkening the building and playing bad to the bone and spotlights on the players and doing things that were just unheard of uh and uh First night in in Nashville, we had a couple of guys from the NHL that had come down because I was a wrestler. They just wanted to see what how I was going to kill their sport. You know, they thought, geez, this, you know, what is he going to do? He's a wrestler. He'll have a goon team and all this stuff. And and I end up uh, having all these things happen during that course of that first game that these guys had never seen. They came into my office after the first period and they were like, what are you doing to our game? I said, yeah, man. I said, we're in Nashville, Tennessee. We're not in Minneapolis. I said, we don't have any hockey fans down here. We're going to try to entertain them until they can learn the game. And uh, that's kind of what happened there. And and uh, we turned a, a, a minor league team that uh, in a league that had never drawn 2,500 people. We drew 6,000 the very first game. And we just kept those kind of numbers all during the first season. And and then that, and in Cincinnati pushed those numbers to ten thousand a game, so uh, you know that it's just uh, wrestling is just a phenomenal sport, and it and it it can it can equate and it can be used, and and the things that happen in wrestling can benefit and be used everywhere. Grizzlies is a fine example. Got nothing to do with basketball. But obviously, you know, they, they feel like, hey, we, we might can we might can get some interest with this and get a few more bodies in there, a few more asses yeah. in the seats. And uh, it's uh, it's just uh, Memphis is just a tremendous town. And uh, 
I just, every time I worked there, I always felt at home there for some reason. Uh, having grown up there some as a kid and then going back during that 75 period, my brother spent years in and out of there as baby face and heel. I ended up being baby face and heel over a six month period of time. The first six months I was there doing a lot in 75. And, uh, you know, it's, it's just a great market for wrestling and that fabulous place to go and work. And those fans are so knowledgeable and, uh, you know, that's, uh, and they have seen pretty much everything in Memphis. Yes. Think about it. There's probably not anything that they haven't seen done at one point or another for sure yeah uh ron i want to i want to ask you really quickly because there's been some debate uh this week in fact with uh dave Meltzer, i, I believe made an offhand comment about tennessee wrestling and and i don't know if it was taken out of context i, I didn't read too much into it um kind of saying that you know it, people considered tennessee wrestling to be a joke um, I've talked to Dutch Mantel. He says that Flo- guys, you know, in Florida were saying that and guys in Georgia were saying, oh, you don't want to go to Tennessee. Well, he ended up going and he goes, I don't know what the hell they're talking about. I mean, yeah, some of it's a little bit more over the top, but it looks the same to me as it does anywhere else. Um, you mentioned kind of a culture shock initially when you were wrestling in Florida with the likes of Briscoe and everything centered around the championships and and the titles rather than maybe the personal issues. Um, Do you think that's a fair assessment? And and do you think that if you look past all the crazy gimmick matches and angles uh, that talent wise Memphis holds up to anywhere else in the country? I think talent-wise, definitely. You you know, that statement, I really believe, doesn't have anything to do with Tennessee wrestling. I think that statement is Nick Goulas. I think Nick had a really bad name and with promoters and with boys around the country. And he was their partners with Roy for so many years and had part of that business, owned half that business and was associated with being the man that ran that business. But actually, Nick didn't run the entire Tennessee business. He only ran Nashville and Chattanooga, basically, and Huntsville, Alabama, and Birmingham. He had some cities that were his cities, basically. But Roy and Jerry and guys like that had had the Memphis side. And I happened to be after 74 when I bought in and bought uh, Knoxville and turned it into Southeastern Wrestling, had the Eastern side. And there were great wrestling parts of that state to go to. I think that that they were the association. I get a feel from 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 just hearing the little bit I know about what went on with Meltzer. I believe it it's more about Nick Goulas than about the state of Tennessee, basically. Okay. And, and Nick never had a great reputation. You know, Nick Nick was a very difficult guy for some guys. My brother was very loved Nick. I never had a very good relationship with Nick, and neither did a lot of other wrestlers. But I always like to tell the old story that Jack Briscoe told me when I went into Florida in 1970, and we talked one time uh, about, I asked him, Jack, where, did you, where are the places you worked? And he said, I worked Nashville. And I was like, damn, you worked for my granddad. He said, well, you know, he said, not so much for your granddad, maybe as for Nick. And I said, uh, well, how did that go? And he said, well, Ron, I, I went I, when I went there, I went in driving a Cadillac. 
And I said, well, how did you come out when you left? He said, on a Greyhound. <laughs> <laughs> now, was that because one of the Foolers won it in a tournament? <laughs> uh, no, I think, that's because, I think that's because Nick starved him to death. And that's what was going on. And that had, all of that got out among wrestlers. They talked a lot about that, I'm sure, about you can't make money there. And, and there were two sides of that state you could make money on. But that midsection, in which was run by Nick, never, never drew the crowds that the uh, that Memphis drew or that Knoxville drew, as an example. Uh, they were just, you know, uh, our business was so, twice or three times what he was doing. And I think that had a lot to do with, with the way people viewed the state of Tennessee. And it just came from, a lot of it came from Nick and the way guys felt about Nick. Nick was not always popular with a lot of wrestlers. And, you know, and that, I get the old story Roy used to tell me about. He says, you know, they never respected Nick uh, before he got in, before I took him as a partner and put him in business. And, and I said, well, how did they disrespect him? He said, well, he said, lots of times they would take him on trips. And he said they would put him in the floorboard and the guys in the back would put their feet on him. <laughs> oh my gosh <laughs> so now he's going to get the chance to own a company someday he's going to get even you know and uh, i think that's what happened is nick got that shot and he got the he, he went to the top and he had a chance to to put his feet on him uh, you know instead of them putting their on their feet on him and you know that that's you know, and I saw that statement i i like you i did not get to see the statement that actually Meltzer made but uh you know, Tennessee, I just I don't know how it could have been a joke for guys that had worked the Memphis and the Knoxville ends because they realized that what we were doing there was a heck of a lot like what they were doing in Florida, except we were probably ahead of them. We we were doing things mm. that went the block busting on the head and uh, and the type of j- angles that Jerry was working in Memphis. Uh, we were we were really, really pushing the envelope and. And, uh, you know, uh, Eddie had a different concept. Eddie Graham, who owned Florida, he, he was he wanted that wrestling. He wanted that Jack Briscoe night. He wanted that whole the whole night to be wrestling. Uh, and he but, you know, when he was on top there before Jack became a star in Florida, it was him and Malenko. And there was a lot of blood in those matches there. You know, there weren't they weren't wrestling matches, you know, and uh so when he finally got his hands on a real wrestler, Jack Briscoe, he kind of changed uh, the the way he ran his business. And I guess a lot of people had that concept of, uh, you know, wanting to have that legitimate champion, that guy that had that big background. And I think when you we talked earlier about Jerry, you know, Jerry not getting that shot because he didn't have that legitimate background, you know. Uh, and uh, so it be. For some guys, it was a big thing. For other guys and other promoters, it wasn't. You know, yeah. and, it, and it did fit well. Uh, you want it's not bad to have your world champion being a, a three-time NCAA national champion. Uh, Danny Hodge carrying the world junior heavyweight championship around is a, you know, that makes sense. I mean, uh, you know, how are you going to get a guy that's more more darn uh, legit than Hodge and Briscoe and those type guys? And uh, gotta love them for it, man. Uh, just uh, just having those guys in the business was great for our sport. It really helped us everywhere. It's funny, Ron. I had um, I uncovered some some rare WHBQ audio 
that hasn't been heard in, in decades. Uh, and, you know, unfortunately, there's just not much film. And a friend of mine would sit with a tape cassette recorder <laughs> and tape, uh, and he was enamored with Lawler. So most of them are a lot of er- Lawler's early interviews with Sam Bass, who I think came over. You know, I think that the Bass, Jim White, uh, Lawler unit got, got started in, in Alabama and then came over to Memphis. Um, and then it's slowly Lawler, as he was developing on the promos, he took over the lead spot as, as the mouthpiece. Um, and, and, you know, and then they went into that year long build, it, it, you know, it was like a, a eight month program with Lawler challenging all the NWA contenders to even get one shot at Briscoe. So, you know, they have the champion booked, but he's not appearing for eight months and they're getting the storyline out of it. And they do some creative editing where it makes it look like Lawler maybe scored some pinfalls over Dick the Bruiser and the Sheik and guys like that. Um, but they're, in, you know, and the crowds are, are selling out and, and getting bigger and bigger. And it culminates. And, and Jarrett tells the story. Eddie Graham came in. Uh, we had the only thing that prevented a sellout, they raised the ticket prices by a buck. Um, but then I think they also had like a $20 golden circle. So they probably, so they probably made more money than, uh, if they had actually had a sellout with, with regular prices. Um, and they had, you know, and it was, and they had the lights turned off and as they made their entrances to the ring and he said, Eddie Graham and I are standing in the back of the Coliseum and Eddie has groomed Briscoe. You know, that's his man. I've groomed Lawler. And it was really we, it was kind of like our children, our, our 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 sons were going out there to fight. And I looked over at Eddie because he knew how much work I'd put into this and how much he had helped me. And he was bought, he had tears in his eyes and, and Jarrett was already crying too. And Eddie Graham said, boy, if you tell anybody about this, I'm going to kick <laughs> your ass. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and then, you know that, and that is uh, that's exactly it's a good way of uh, describing it. That that was like their sons. Eddie's Eddie's relationship with Jack Briscoe was truly amazing. I got the opportunity to see it a lot because I when I went there in 1970 to Florida, Jack was he was the top man, and uh, Jack was another one of those guys like Bockwinkle who wanted to help younger guys and and jack took a liking to me too as as nick had and he spent a lot of time with me discussing matches and and uh and he was he was always a, a complimentary guy uh, jack was really great i love working with him i like i said i worked with him three times there in 75 in the first six months of 1975 in memphis and two times in knoxville during that same time and once in louisville six times in six months with uh, Jack, uh, and I think four of those were one-hour Broadway matches. When no, you know, we we worked we worked the whole match. But uh, Jack used to. Uh, I remember one time I did I did a spot that he had never seen, and uh, and there were a guy. I did a spot to where I shot a guy in the ropes, and I was going to step behind him and roll him up. He was going to roll me up, and as we were running together, I just switched him and went behind him and rolled him up. Uh, Jack had never seen that done. And when I got back to the dressing room, Jack was like, wow. He goes, damn. He goes, did you, did you roll, did you switch him and roll him up, man? While, while y'all were running? I said, yeah, yeah. And he goes, he goes, 
who, who's taught you that? I said, well, nobody, man. I said, I just, I just came to me. I said, why not? It's easy and simple, right? And he went, damn right, it's simple. I'm stealing it, he said. I'm going to take that move, Ron. <laughs> said, okay, Jack. Hell, I, I said, that's great. I'm, I appreciate it, man. You're going to use something that I that you got from me, but uh, you know those guys, Eddie and and the relationship that you're talking about with Jarrett and with Lawler, it was it was and it was it was a family. They were family, you know. And then uh, Jack and uh, and and Eddie were family, and uh, you know, and the business was just—it's—it's—it's—it's it's, it's, it's so it's such a loss to me when, you know, since I've come back and kind of uh, reinvented myself in the last couple of years and started doing stud casts and super stud casts, I just think back on how wonderful a life wrestling was back in the '60s and the '70s and the '80s. I actually worked in Memphis quite a. Uh, three times in uh, 1968, 69, and 70 when I was in college playing basketball. Sneaked Was that over at Ellis Auditorium? Yeah, Ellis Auditorium. Way back in the old building in Ellis Auditorium. Uh, and I remember uh, flying in from University of Miami to Memphis and uh, and being so scared that somebody's going to see me. I told my dad, I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. You know, I'm going <laughs> to. I'm going to lose my scholarship. I'll lose my, I won't be able to play ball anymore. Oh, who cares? My dad said to him, who cares, man, about the basketball? He goes, you ain't going to be doing that the rest of your life. He goes, let's get you some experience. I remember going out and working with Jackie Fargo and those guys in the late sixties when I was 19 years old in college at the university of Miami. And, uh, it what a what a great experience that was, and just being around all that, the camaraderie that yes. that, that is there, and that you know the dressing rooms, and the you know when you wrestle all over the world, I had an opportunity to wrestle all over the world and in so many different territories, and you see territories in which the dressing rooms are horrible. You just it, you feel it feels like ice in there, you know it's. It, and you, you never saw that in Memphis. Mm-hmm. Uh, you never saw that in my territory in Southeastern or in Continental uh, and uh, Knoxville days. Uh, it was just, it was a party. Uh, everybody was happy. Everybody was loving it. It was the greatest business on earth to be a part of. And uh, that's, that's, uh, those days will never be there anymore. Definitely. Yeah. And, and, and such local heroes. You know, and, and and celebrities, and it's almost a shame you didn't get to enjoy that a little bit more because you were always off to the next town. Uh, you know, Dutch Mantel tell me he goes, I don't think we realized at the time how much money we could have made with personal appearances and things like that. I, I don't, I don't think we realized how over we were. Yeah. Um, but but then again, he goes, we wouldn't have had time to do that anyway because we were. No, no, tr- you'd have been you'd have been had to get in the car and go to Louisville the next night, you know, and then we go to Evansville. Um, but uh, yeah, you know, you reach a when you have those huge television audiences like they had in Memphis and like we had in Knoxville, uh, and later on down along the Gulf Coast, you you just you can't go anywhere. You are recognized everywhere. I could not go to the fair even uh, in in Knoxville, (laughs) you know, even with a disguise. 
You know, <laughs> I put a disguise on and I wouldn't even get to the place where you paid to get in. They would notice me already, you know, because I was tall and they would go, oh, you're Ron Fuller. I go, oh, and then as soon as that name came out, everybody looked and then everybody would come. You couldn't go out and have dinner. You couldn't, you just, it was kind of like being, uh, it, it was, it was almost too, too good, you know, to yeah. where yeah. you lost uh, your, that opportunity to just be lost in the crowd. You couldn't be lost in the crowd anymore. Hey, Ron, you know, we weren't putting up the same numbers, obviously, by the time I, I came aboard in, in 94. Um, and but still so many people stopped me, uh, even my I was a senior at Memphis State University when when all this was going on. My parents were were bursting with pride um, and, you know, that I was using my real name because my dad was a firefighter. And I was talking about being, in, you know, the on the living on the rich side of town with all my daddy's money. And uh, my candy apple red Mitsubishi Eclipse sports car and all that kind of stuff. Um, and I would have professors go, oh, uh, you know, I, I I don't watch it. I want to be very clear about that. I don't I don't watch wrestling. Yeah. But I was yeah. I was flipping the I was flipping the channels the other day, and I just happened to see you on there, and I'm like, uh huh, right. You were just flipping the yeah. channels. Yeah, right. Or, or my son watches it, but then they go, what are the Moon Dogs really like? You know, it's like. <laughs> There were so there were so many people who were still watching it, and I remember the first autograph I signed after I and this was like right after I turned heel was at the Mid South Fair, and this little kid came up to me and he's like Scott Bowden, Scott Bowden, get your autograph, and I went, yeah, all right, and I signed it, and uh, he took one look at me and he goes, I hate you, you creep, and he ripped it up. <laughs> It took off running. Oh my gosh. And I just laughed and laughed. I was like, oh my gosh. That that may be on a very small level what Jimmy Hart experienced years ago. But um it, it, it was still uh it was still a cultural phenomenon even in 94, 95. If not with attendance at the Coliseum, the the people just had a habit of still turning the show on because it was Lance and Dave. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and what a great combination. I mean, you know, the great thing about uh, these television programs that were being put together, the ones that were drawing these huge audiences that everybody wanted to see is it, it took more than one commentator. You, you had your backup guy was a very important part of that program, too. I was lucky to have that both a good situation in Knoxville with a local guy that turned out to be very good as a partner with Les Thatcher. Was that Platt? Uh, uh, nope. Charlie Platt, Platt is in, he's down there in Dothan in Southeastern. Once I okay. go South and take it uh, to Pensacola. And, uh, at one time I had Charlie Platt and Gordon Soley doing that mm. show down there. So, you know, I mean, uh, that it's like a two man deal. It sometimes takes two guys to really get it done properly. And, you know, when you got the right combination, it just all seems to work. Uh, your talent is good. Jerry always had great talent and he, he always, and you get that great talent by having great crowds. And if you don't have those crowds, you can't pay the guys. If you can't pay the guys, you're not going to get the guys. And then without the guys, you're not going to ever have the crowds. It's a, it's a formula that once you figure it out that you've got to have the best talent you can get, you've got to have the best people in the right positions. Your television is key. It is the most powerful promotional tool you have. And once you get that audience, you don't have to, you don't have to spend a lot of money in other places. Uh, my dad used to go crazy in Memphis. When he went there in 1958, Memphis was dead. 
he bought everything. I remember the, the bus seats uh, on the side of the road had wrestling on them, wrestling king of sports, cat, taxi cabs on the top of the cabs, on the back of buses, posters out every week, billboards. He did everything to, to promote it. And uh, once he established that HBQ television setup, that one hour, one and a half hour, 90 minute show at a good time spot, uh, he just he was able to back off from all that other stuff because that you rode that television. It was your it was your primary promotional tool. Oh, yeah. It, it basically, especially that 90 minute. It's a shame there are more 90 minute Memphis shows in circulation on YouTube, because I think, you know, most of the collectors that we know of anyway, were uh, Cornette and and maybe his friend, Norm Dooley um, and maybe Kenny Bolin were, you know, they were taping these shows on Betamax and, you know, there's, so there's some good quality stuff out there, but it's just not the same because it's the, it's the whittled down hour long show uh, with the, with the, with the tape promos and that kind of thing. And that weren't taped right after something took place because a lot of times, even though they told him a lot of times, don't mention Memphis. Just say, when I get my hands on you this week, you know, so they could use it in Louisville or whatever. Right. Like, they couldn't help themselves. You know, when I, you know, Monday night, I'm going to get you. Uh, oh, so, yeah. they, so they have to cut it. But the, it's it, what's what's on YouTube for the most part does not compare to what we actually experienced. Um, oh, yeah. You know, yeah, and the first you know, knowing that the show was live, and then uh, you know, M- uh, Memphis would often change the card because a big angle would break out, and you would have the live interview follow that. It was uh, absolutely the best wrestling show of the time. And you know, it's funny when, when I start, I got into the tape trading world, and I started getting tapes of of, of your promotion. Uh, I thought it was very much like Memphis. Uh, yeah. and, and I mean that as a compliment, maybe with a little bit, you know, maybe with a little bit more emphasis on, on wrestling, uh, but a lot of the, the, the storylines and the feuds and the personal issues, uh, very reminiscent of Memphis. Yeah. We, you know, we, we, Jerry and I seem to have a very, uh, uh, similar, uh, concepts of, of how to do it. And I was lucky, man, I end up with the best wrestling family in America to be as a tool for us. And down there with Bob Armstrong and Brad and all his boys coming, growing into, into the end of the ring and, and being able to form the stud stable. And, uh, you know, it was just amazing. All the things that we got out of basically two families, we carried two families for five years, basically, and just had a five-year feud uh, that just uh, did really captivated audiences. They loved it. It was something really different. And, and uh, you know, uh, Brian, I guess you're still there, my man. You, I know you. You're bound to have some questions here. Oh, I don't know. I talk enough to this uh, Bowden character on a regular <laughs> basis. I think I'm a little sick of talking to him. Now, I'm just curious, um, Ron, all the times that Robert went in there and booked, obviously uh, in 79, you not only had Knoxville and Pensacola, but that's right when the war would break out. But he would go back in later on, even after you were out of wrestling. Did Robert ever try to get you to come to Memphis and make some appearances when he was booking? Well, it depends on what time frame. Uh, once, once I got left in 1988 and basically sold USA Wrestling and got out of it, 
You know, he 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 never tried to get me to come back. Uh, well, one of the reasons is because he wanted to be the Tennessee stud. You know, <laughs> so, so you know he was like, "Hey, man!" And then he and then he asked me when I really retired and I got my hockey team and 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 I started in a different, totally different direction. He asked me, he says, do you mind if I borrow your robes, man? They've got the big horse on the back and the Tennessee stud. And and I just I said, heck no, man, take it. It's, you know, I'll never have any use for it anymore. Uh, but, uh, you know, no, he never really tried to get me to come in too much into when he was promoting. I mean, obviously, when he was working for, for the same company, he owned part of the Southeastern Continental uh, in Pensacola. So he he then at that point I was pretty much involved with everything. But you know Rob uh, Rob good Rob was a hell of a booker. Uh, he really really took he was the he really got a hold in Southeastern about 1976 and kind of turned things on in Knoxville. Uh, that's about the time that Joe Duke and Stomper came in and we we got a lot you know Ronnie Garvin we had some. Hey, Tremendous crews. We had, geez, fabulous talent, and that helped as well. But uh, no, he he never called out. He never expected me to do too many favors for him, especially after 1988. Scott, what about you? What did you think about Robert and Jimmy when they were coming to Memphis? Oh gosh, I uh, my first shows really uh, at the Mid South Coliseum were were all booked by Robert, I believe, it, with the exception of the first one, unfortunately, because uh, we've been trying to solve this mystery. <laughs> uh, I don't know, I don't know if you've heard us talk about this, Ron. Probably not. Uh, but my, my very first card, uh, because and this all started with Austin Idol, because Austin Idol defeated Lawler for the Southern title on Christmas night, seventy eight. And I was, you know, I was happy. I was opening presents and Jack Eaton, you know, this is the relationship that, that, you know, Memphis was on channel five. So the channel five newscaster, his, his lead sports story would be what was going on at the Coliseum. And he broke the news that Lawler had lost the, the Southern heavyweight title. And I was so upset. <laughs> I like put up my present. I was like, I'm just going to bed. And my uncle came in there because because my dad didn't didn't want to take me down to the fairgrounds. And uh, my uncle goes, Tell you what, in January we're gonna go. And I was like, All right. And and I waited and I waited till you know a big one. And finally got to January 29th. And I'd been buying all the wrestling magazines. And and I guess Bill After was enamored with. Mill Maskers because he he looks great on the covers, uh, not not so much at that point in the ring, but I had to see him. And they were bringing him in as a heel to team with Idol, and Lawler was Lawler was like, you know, I'm at, this is a stretcher match, going against Idol and and this this mass Mill Maskers. I'm going to go get a fighter. I'm going to go get Jackie Fargo. And it was, you know, the first time that Fargo had appeared in Memphis since the split with Goulas, and. Uh, they get they're going over the finish, and Jarrett claims that uh, he told uh, the the like, okay, Idol, you're you're gonna take the you're gonna take the fall and get carried out, and and Mil Mascaris interrupts. He goes, no, Jerry, Jer- Jerry, I I am merely passing through. I will do the honors. <laughs> 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 so not only not only did he come in Memphis supposedly and work as a heel, but he rode the stretcher out, and he's got this reputation for never selling. Oh but yeah. What, but what Jared was trying to get everyone to understand was that 
the camaraderie among promoters and and the strengths of those relationships. And he had become really good friends with Salvador Luteroff. And he and Salvador had a big uh, painting of Mill in his in his dining room, and he had flown Jarrett and his wife out there to Acapulco uh, to stay a weekend with him. And he looked up at that at the painting. And he goes, "Oh, well, I would love to have him appear in Memphis if only once." And Salvador goes, "I'll, I'll make that happen." And so by the time that, you know, there's there's no bill after there's no you know there's no major for, uh, photographers there. It's not going to be in the magazines, and it's possible that Mascaris, you know, on the on the power of that relationship between Luderoth and Jared said, you know what, I'm going to do this for Luderoth. Uh, I knew Mill very, very well. I uh, worked yeah. with Mill and Dose. Uh, me and Barry Windham uh, in tournament in Japan, 1983. And uh, Mill didn't do jobs in Japan either. <laughs> well, like, that's Japan. That's uh, Japan, though. Uh, he, did, he, did, he did some in Houston for Paul Bosch, and he actually wrestled the night before in Houston for Bosch. So it only makes sense that he would be passing through. Uh, so, but based on your experiences though, you don't believe it was him. You think it was a ringer. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 For the I'm record, for the that. record, let me just lay out a couple facts here. Mil Moscaris allegedly for the only time in his career worked as a heel in Memphis and insisted on not only losing, <laughs> but doing a stretcher job. To Jackie Fargo. I'm with Ron. There's no way in the yeah, world that that's, was Mill that, that, You know, I had knowing Mill and having traveled with him in Japan, him and Dose, uh, you know, the, I can't believe it. That's just really, really hard to fathom that, you know, uh, and especially uh, being the heel. You know, I mean, Mill, Mill was, he, he was baby faced through and through. I mean, he, yeah, I can't even picture him as a heel. So, <laughs> So, you know, that's a real coup when you can get a guy like that to come in and change from babyface to heel and then ride the stretcher out. Wow. Yeah, well, and then I Fargo paid him a hell of a penny that night. I'd like to know what that payoff was. Well, and, and he, uh, Fargo ran down as they were carried. They were about to the, to the end of the dressing room. I guess they were going to call an ambulance. Right. And Fargo dumps him over and keeps putting the boots to him. And, and Mascaris has to crawl back to the dressing room. Oh, Can you boy. imagine he wouldn't but, sell a hip toss. And he's yeah. taking a stretcher I, job from Jackie Fargo. No way. Now, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I, somebody just sent me a clip from Houston. He's in the Regino Hernandez. Hernandez drops him throat first on the ropes and pins him clean. Whoa. So, so but there you go. That's Houston, Texas, a city he was a major star in for many years for a promoter that he made a lot of money for and a promoter who was known for giving out good payoffs in Paul Bosch. I'm sure that relationship was certainly a little bit different than the relationship between Mil Moscaris and Jerry Jarrett, despite well, the well, no, incredible it's... friendship between Salvador Luteroff and Jerry Jarrett. <laughs> Ron, let me ask you something on this topic. Do you remember ever talking to or meeting Salvador Luteroff at any of the NWA no, conventions? No, I don't. No, I don't. Now, I remember him being there, but I don't. I never spent any time with Salvador. Uh and and I, I knew most every one of those guys. I had a a good relationship with a whole lot of people. I was a lot. I was bogged down and uh, and usually taken out of the equation a lot by Stu Hart, who, you know, <laughs> and uh, 
And, and and I don't know if you've ever had a conversation with Stu Hart, but uh, he and because he had trained Archie, the Stomper, right? That's where yeah. Stomper got his start. And uh, and every time I saw Stu, I, he would say, "I got that guy, Jesus. Uh, uh, how about the kind of kind of what's the you know the guy that bought the yeah, not have to say Stomper. Yeah, got the has 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 Archie." You know, and I'd like, and that, that conversation would turn into a 45 minute affair, you know, like, and then we wouldn't, there wouldn't be much conversation there. You know, he took so long to get to his point. And most of the time I would end up, end up making, finishing his statement. You know, he'd, he'd start to get it. You know, he did that. that did he, that. I said, he beat him. Yeah. 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 That's it. He beat him. I mean, it's like, that's one of the better Stu impressions I think I've ever heard. I always can't oh, believe it's the same guy. <laughs> oh, Stu, Stu. I love Stu Hart. What a great character he was. And uh, there, there's so many great stories about him. Terry Funk told me one of the very best about Stu Hart, and he and Junior would go up there for Stampede once a year, the big rodeo deal. And he said that they would stay. One time they stayed with Stu. And he said two things happened that day. He said one day when he said Stu was cooking breakfast in the morning and he said Stu's house was full of cats. They were just running everywhere, he said. And he said Stu had a spatula and he's flipping the eggs and he's talking to him and Junior sitting in the kitchen there. And he's got the guy, you know, and he's talking and then he flips the egg and the cat walks by and he stops and takes a, a shit right in the kitchen floor, right? Oh. And, uh, he looks back behind him and goes, God, look, uh, you know, and he, he reaches down with a spatula and he scoops up the crap and he opens the screen door and he throws it out. And then he turns around and starts flipping the eggs again. So Terry says, oh, man, Ron, Junior <laughs> didn't want to eat any eggs. And then he said to be set down at this long table because Stu had all those boys, right, and all those kids. And he said that he had one of those long poles that they used to have back in the supermarkets in the old time grocery stores and where you could you could raise it up in the air. And if you had a real tall cabinet and get a box off of it, you pull a little clip at the bottom of it and squeeze down on the box and lift the box down. That's how you could get to the boxes. He said one of those was laying over by the wall. And he when he sat down to eat, he, he said he couldn't figure out what the hell is that sitting there for? And he said, during the meal, he said, a couple of kids at the far end of the table from where he and Stu and, and uh, Junior were, he said a couple of them got into some kind of argument, and Stu reached down there, and he grabbed the thing, and he raised it up into the air. It had a big high ceiling in his house, and, he, and then he slowly brought it down, and he was going, hey, you little bastard, uh, you son of a bitch, and he, and he hooked <laughs> him around the throat with the clamp, right? He just socked it in there, man, and turned the chair over backwards, turned the kid over backwards at the table. <laughs> and Junior oh, and Terry was saying, God, Ron, you need to go stay with Stu if you ever go up there. So, uh, character. No, I never got to spend a lot of time with Salvador. Uh, I did. Uh, I was pretty close with Baba. Uh, and uh, for Japan and obviously pretty much everybody else, but... There were certain guys. There were so many guys at, at, at that. In 1985, I was vice president, and uh, I think there were probably maybe 40, close to 40 different territories uh, in that in those meetings. 
and you just uh, you didn't get a chance to see all of them. You know, even if you were there three or four days, and those meetings last three or four days, uh, those were grand affairs. Guys, back in those days, really amazing uh, who came and and the rapport in that room with all those those big name promoters from everywhere, and they were from everywhere. They they were game, people from England. There were people from. Uh, Germany, uh, they were they were representatives that I'd never heard of, countries and, and promotions I'd never even heard of that were part of the NWA at that time. Pretty spectacular deal. Is that, is what, you miss, is that what I'm sorry, Brian? Is, is that what you miss most about the business, the, 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 the brotherhood and the camaraderie? Yeah, yeah, I really do. I mean, you know, like I said, it it was it was what made the business unique. Uh, and and I and I assume basketball players and football players and other athletes have those types of relationships. But I just don't think it was the as as solid and as and as as complete a relationship as as wrestlers had because you saw them again every night. And you you dealt with them. You work with one guy one night, another guy the next night, and uh, and you've got this inflow of new talent and these older people that are that uh, you know have not been there, and uh, and you know or had these stars that are looking to help the younger guys. It's just uh, it was a it was an ongoing thing that just was really a wonderful thing to be a part of, especially if you owned a company. And you got the the uh, the thrill of going in and just seeing this group of guys who are just so happy and their mm-hmm. life is so good. Uh, you know that 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 to me was it was it was just a wonderful part of being in the business. Period. Yeah, yeah. I've really I've really been enjoying how you you know breaking it down about how uh you know when you brought in briscoe for that big card and you're building those big shows at the knoxville coliseum uh it's it's just so fascinating to me um just really great stuff well you know it's uh it's 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 uh, it's a lost history you know and i feel real honored and pleased to have the opportunity and being able to be in a position and i've got somebody like brian here that that helps me piece it all together and and to be able to talk the history to there's so many wonderful old school fans out there i believe it's far beyond the number of new fans that wwe will ever touch the the old school people and uh and it's it's a pleasure to be able to be able to just describe how you did things and and why it worked and why it didn't work and uh, that type of stuff and it's a it's 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 really something I enjoy I really do like it and and uh, Brian does a great job of uh, of making sure my facts are correct I guess he probably does that with you too I'm sure Scott no no uh, <laughs> I heard him correct you already once well he did on the year that's true, that's true. <laughs> I, and I won't. Ha- I'll hear about that for a long time. (laughs) You certainly will. But I'll tell you what, guys, we are getting close to the end of this episode of the Super Stud Cast. So, Scott, let me turn it over to you. Are there any final topics or questions you want to talk to Ron about before we wrap things up? Well, I have I have been I started with J.J. Dillon, who was a guest on our our show recently. Uh, The general even and even Lawler was a little uh, uh, taken aback when I asked him the question, because 
Uh, Jack Briscoe obviously is very special, and Lawler's not the most sentimental guy in the world when it comes to the boys and the business. Um, but you know, I asked him. I said, I said, who? I said, yeah, you got to pick one, Briscoe or Bachwinkle, Bachwinkle or Briscoe. And he's like, oh no, man. He's like, well, gosh, you know. And he tells me, he's like, well, Jack, you know, I it, I was 24 years old, my first world championship match, and you know, he did so much for me and gave me so much of that match and even did a finish where it looked like I beat him and I had the title in my hands and then they reversed it. Uh, you know, he just, he made sure he got me over in the eyes of the fans in Memphis, my hometown that a punk kid from Memphis could beat the world champion. He said, but I worked more with Nick. Uh, he was so super smooth. Uh, Boy, I got to go with Nick. In your eyes, I didn't know that that you were that you had a relationship with with Bachwinkle early on in your career. Who would you pick, Bachwinkle or Briscoe? Well, that's a that is a tough question. I mean, both of those guys were super talents uh, in in totally different forms. Uh, Nick was the consummate professional. The suit and tie, the the soft talking. He didn't scream in interviews, but neither did Jack. Uh, you know, uh, Jack had the fantastic wrestling ability. Uh, Jack and I worked the same finish. He worked with Loyal in yeah. Knoxville. <laughs> so, you know, so, and I know what, how that got me over. Yeah. And uh, that meant a lot to me because it was my company. And Jack, you know, until you said that, I didn't realize Jack did that finish a lot of other places. Well, but uh, I, don't know, Jack, I don't know if he did it a lot. Oh, he, he, for, yeah, he, he might not. He different. certainly couldn't have done that many times because I remember leaving the ring with the belt. Now, they don't let you do that anymore. And I don't think he intended that to happen that night. But once <laughs> I beat him and he's laying there selling and I got the belt in my hand, you know, I said, well, hell, I'm going to the dressing room. Right? <laughs> I remember uh, I remember that uh, Jack must have buzzed the referee. Jack's still down so, and supposedly groggy from being knocked out. And he he tells the referee and the referee leaves the ring and comes running and catches me just before I go in the dressing room door. And he says, Jack says, send the bell back, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> did, did Brian tell you the story about Lawler uh, taking the belt back to the dressing room after a bout with Terry Funk? No. Oh, my gosh. Uh, well, all week long, uh, Memphis Magazine has been profiling Lawler, and they, they told him they're going to put him on the cover. And it just so happens Lawler's wrestling. It's the first time he's wrestling Terry Funk. Uh, actually, it was August. Actually, I think we just had the anniversary of it. It was August 22nd, 1976. 10,000 people show up and uh, Lawler, they do see how to screwy finish and Lawler, and Lawler told Terry, he goes, and just for some controversy, I'm, I'm just going to run off with the belt. And Terry's like, well, all right, all right that's, that's fine. I'll, I'll beat you in the back and I'll get it later. Well, they, they have the photographer from Memphis magazine set up this elaborate, beautiful black backdrop. <laughs> and he t- and Lawler tells the guy, get ready. And after the match, he runs back there. He goes, hurry up, hurry up, take my picture. <laughs> they got about 10 shots of him <laughs> with this beautiful lighting. It's perfect. And it wound up on the cover of the magazine. And I think Mr. Lawler caught some heat for that. And Terry had no idea. <laughs> um, I'm sure he did. 
You know, I, I, I actually wrecked with Jack uh, in one of those championship matches in 75 that drew 11,300 people, and it was the first night Jerry ever upped the price a dollar. And I talked to him about it because we sold out the, the, the time before that I worked with Jack. And I said, you know, Jerry, why don't you increase your price by a dollar? Oh, I don't know, Ron. I don't think I don't. And, you know, and I said, well, try it, Jerry, just to see what's going to happen. You know, if it doesn't fill up, you're still going to have probably the same money. And uh, and he did. And uh, and we sold that one out at eleven thousand three hundred. And I think that was the very first time he was able to. He he had the guts enough to try to to raise his his ticket price because it was a world championship match. I'm sure he did a whole lot of that afterward. Well, and and that was the card. Was that the card where uh, Buddy was trying to get revenge on the Australians as yeah. well? Yeah, that, yeah, that was the card in which Dad and Rob wrestled uh, George Barnes and Bill Dundee, and uh, and I think Jimmy Golden was on that card. My cousin was on that card. Uh, you know, it was a lot of Welches on that card that night. Uh, a lot, a lot from the Welch family that night. Where, where, wait, just really, my last question for you for right now. I'd love to have you come on KFR sometime. Uh, what were your thoughts on the Australians? I mean, I, I don't think the territory had seen a tag team like that that took those kind of outrageous, crazy bumps. You know, Dundee was on the smaller side, but he was also the firecracker on the promos, whereas. Barnes, it seems like to me, was was almost like uh, Nick Bockwinkle in his delivery and was more posh of the two. Uh, and it's, and I love those kind of oddball pairings. Uh, is that how they got over so strong? Uh, well, I have stories about I was there in 1973 in Australia when uh, Dad was involved in the company with Jim Barnett. And they had dad had the idea for years, the Australians were just job boys in Australia and they'd never won a match. And dad had the idea of taking George Barnes. He said, let's take one of the Aussies and let's put him over. Let's let him win on TV. Let's let him work his way to a championship match. And so they did it with George Barnes. And the day they did that, began that process George George Barnes wrestled Greg Peterson, who used to wrestle in Memphis way back in the night, late fifties, the time frame where my dad first went there, and uh, and they they wanted the hard way. They wanted Greg Peterson the hard way. George Barnes on TV that day, and George to make the very first interview that an Australian had ever made in Australia. <clears throat> I watched it, gave me chill bumps because he busted his eye really good he was bleeding like crazy he beat peterson in the middle of the ring he went out and got the microphone and he, they got a real good close-up his eyelid was hanging down because he had been busted hard way and uh and and george barnes said in that aussie accent he says my god you know i never have another aussie will lose to these damned americans I'm going to be the one that turns it around for all of us Aussies. And uh, I was just like, wow, man, this is going to go someplace. Well, six months later, he and Bill Dundee, the two best guys in Australia, end up in Memphis. That's how they got there. And, uh, yeah, George was not the talker. George was the man. George mm. had real strength about him uh bill dundee's a tremendous worker i love bill dundee he worked for me at usa wrestling the entire time i was there and uh i really like bill 
but uh, George was George was George was phenomenal there, and as the as the Aussie, the tough son of a gun, and uh, yeah, they were a great team. Uh, they were a phenomenal team, and I think they did a lot during that nineteen seventy five time period. Oh, yeah. I was a heel. They were the team, the heel team underneath me, and they were they were drawing money. And once I was there and over as a heel, and they brought Rob and then Dad in to help Rob. And I remember working with those guys, and which uh, they were beating. And they had a Johnny Gray. They had the third Australian, Johnny Gray, and uh, Johnny Gray would keep get, getting involved in those tag matches, and I wouldn't go out there to help my brother and my dad in the crowd. I would stand there, and the crowd would be saying, "Go help them, you ass! Go help them!" Talk about getting heat. That was the oh. best I ever got. I wouldn't Oof. watch those matches because I knew I'm going to get so much heat when I don't go help them. And then when I finally did, wow, it just the roof came off that place. Uh, those guys were wonderful to work with. Well, there it is, our special tribute to Scott Bowden, remembering Scott Bowden here on the Super Podcast. On behalf of myself and everyone from the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network, we send our sympathies to Scott's wife, Scott's friends, and family. We are all terribly upset about the news of his passing, and if there's one good thing to look at, it's that his legacy will live on through his podcasts, through his podcast appearances, through the videos of him managing, and probably most importantly, through his writing. And he was, like I said before, maybe the single most talented and gifted writer to tackle wrestling history. That's it for today. Let's all keep Scott in our thoughts, and let's all have happy memories of Scott Bowden. And until next time on the 605 Super Podcast, I'm the great Brian Last. Tally-ho! The announcers on this program are selected and paid by parties other than this station, namely the promoters of championship wrestling.